our 2017 year in review on episode 74 of So Many Insane Plays. Twenty seventeen has been another eventful year in the history of Magic's grandest and oldest constructed format. Join us for a brief tour down memory lane as we recount our new cards, sets, decks, and stories that shaped vintage this past year, and as we award our annual Moxies for these categories. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi everyone. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can tweet us at many insane plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or TheManadrain.com. As always, we begin our show with a few announcements. There are some tournaments coming up in Southern Michigan. Unfortunately, one of them will probably have happened by the time you hear this. <laughs> this Sunday at RIW Monthly uh, on 1-7 is Proxy Vintage. And I the, just point the, that out. Even though it has potentially passed, I still point it out to remind everyone that that is a monthly event. Same thing at Udo Games Udemonia in Berkeley this Sunday, uh, January 7th. We have a, a uh, 15 Proxy Vintage event. Which will probably Excellent. have elapsed by the time this is live, or you hear this. But <laughs> We'll make every effort to get this episode live so that people can hear about those. However, also in Michigan, we have monthly vintage, proxy vintage at BC Comics in Battle Creek on the 27th. Far more lead time for that. And I'd like to point out an event that I've only recently learned about, although I don't believe it's new. But there's a, a store in Indianapolis named Game Time, and they are holding monthly proxy vintage as well, which I discovered via their announcement on the Manadrain. It's also on 127 this month. I think their schedule matches Battle Creek's BC Comics schedule, unfortunately. So I won't be going down there. But for those of you in the Indiana area who, for whom Michigan is a bit too much, then Indianapolis has monthly proxy vintage as well. Steve, do you have some article updates for us? Oh, yeah, that's right. It's been so long since we podcasted. There's been quite a few things that have, been, <laughs> that have come out. Uh, the big thing I, I wrote and published, finally, was the, uh, the history of the... Uh, Star City Games Power 9 series. Mm -hmm. uh, Kevin, you, I think, took a look at that, right? Oh, yeah. And we discussed it on the show in a prior episode, at least some elements of it, right. and the history of it, how long it went, and our a brief bit of our experience with it. It was a really great series. Lingered longer than I recalled because I stepped away from it. <laughs> you moved and, to Texas. <laughs> yeah. And But it really generated some excellent memories, some excellent vintage uh, tournaments and results and decks and players. So... It really was a good time for the format and really set the stage for where we are today. So this article I wrote is a complete retrospective. It's a narrative that, that kind of weaves together the history of the series, meaning how it was set up, how it was launched, the key defining moments in the series, where the series moved geographically, the, and then highlights. I mean, how many decks would you say are published in this article? Probably, I don't know. <laughs> Hundreds. No, 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 no. In the article, <laughs> yeah, yeah, there are hundreds of. Uh, <laughs> yes, there were hundreds of decks that that were in the top eights. But what I mean is, in the article itself, there's probably about 15 different decks that are published that really illustrate what happened during the series, like Robert Vroman's Ubastax or mm -hmm. Sean Anthony's uh, hybrid gifts 
combo gifts a pitch long deck or your Trinistax deck. So the the article is a bit tricky to write, right? Because for five years this year there was there was in 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 all there were twenty seven Star City Games Power Nine tournaments. That is, the company Star City Games gave away twenty seven sets of of Power Nine <laughs> over wow. four and a half years, right? Yeah. And so the challenge for me was to write an, a compelling narrative that kind of told the whole story in one you know one bite. And so I did my best to kind of weave a narrative together that told all these elements of the story how this you know the the predecessor tournaments to this this um series which were you know like the the gp dc side events in 2004 where pete Huff, heffling and, and star city games ran a, a 90 player event side event and the setup and you know how it evolved over time the different changes into the structure you know going to two-day tournament events um you know moving and expanding beyond the the core cities um, you know the the kind of the interesting stories about the players who repeat had repeat victories in the same cities. So there's a lot to tell here, and it's it's all free. It's an open. It's it's uh, completely visible for anyone. One of the cool things that I did though is for the first time ever in the appendix, I have a complete list of every event with hyperlinks to the top eight deck lists coverage. Because in a lot of cases, Star City Games treated these events like pro tour events. You know, they had player interviews. They had you know, um, deck tech, um, metagame breakdowns. And so I have for each event, and Kevin, you saw this, um, all the deck lists, in, in, for most of them, actually, Star City Games decided instead of just publishing the top eight deck list, they actually had a complete list of every deck list in the event. So like for Star City Games Richmond 13, there were 148 players and every deck list is available on this link. So if you go to this article, which we'll provide in the show notes, you can go to the bottom and just click links, you know, as hyperactively as you want, and you can just scroll through all the deck lists and, and really enjoy looking at the deck lists. Right, Kevin? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's what I was alluding to when I said there are hundreds of decks, because yeah. for someone like me, I really did click through a lot of those links and look for certain top eights and think, <laughs> oh, yeah, that was the first time so-and-so played this, and that was right. the breakout for that. And, and for obviously, for those of us who were present, it holds a little bit more power, but it's still a fascinating history lesson and there are certain gems there that are still alluded to and make yeah. ripples to today. The gifts list you mentioned, yeah. uh, Ubastax is another one that stands out obviously the, powerfully the painter, for me. The painter deck, the flash deck, <laughs> the oath exactly. deck, the oath decks, the different gush decks. There was the, one, there's a lot of relevant formative stuff there. Yeah. Yeah. And Andy Probasco's one of the, the final tournaments, he broke out painter when Shadowmore was legal and it was really well strategically positioned to attack the tyrant oath and flash deck which was combo deck which is such a menace mm-hmm. so um and in it towards the end i have a list of every player who had four or more top 8s five or more top 8s and there was one player who had seven top 8s who i won't mention <laughs> <laughs> kevin may have just g- given it away um no, but, nothing nothing at all but i also tried to figure out um you know who who actually played in the most number of events and i think it's andy probasco just based upon the um, the, the events where every deck list was published and where Andy top aided and where he did coverage, I think he played in at least 15 of the 27 events um, and probably more. Um, so I gave him kind of the Road Warrior Award. But the reason I did nice. this, the reason I did this, uh, this article was as a kind of promotional marketing tool for my History of Vintage series. So my History of Vintage series, which you know, if you've listened to our podcast in the past, I've been working on for years, um, is a series that is a that looks at the entire history of the format since 1993 to the present. And it was originally envisioned as kind of like a 20-chapter thing. It's become a 25-chapter thing. 
And I'm going to publish a number of free articles that will kind of special reports, if you will, that will accompany this series, which is called Schools of Magic History of Vintage. And the thesis of this series is that since the very origins of the format, there have been these schools of magic that emerged. And you, and it's, it draws upon Robert Hahn, uh, famous articles for the dojo, where he argued that there were these, in his initial formulation, four or five, and then later on, six schools of magic, right? And he iterated it a number of times. And I actually borrowed that quite seriously, that there are two of his five schools are actually continue today as schools of vintage magic. The O'Brien school, which is the kind of taxing strategy, it's a taxing tempo strategy, and of course the Weissman school. And then I have three other schools uh, that have continued over these 25 years history of the format. And just I think since we last, Kevin, since we last podcast, I published really a handful of additional chapters in this series. I think the, certainly the, 2007, 2008, and 2009 and 10 chapters are live. And the 2011 and 12 chapters, 2011 chapter will probably go up by the time this is around the time this podcast is launched. And then the 2012 chapter is in the queue. And in fact, I wrote the 2007 chapter, 17 chapter in preparation for this. So I only have a few more chapters to go and then we'll be able to compile this into a really amazing book, which I've been promising for a long time, but the end is actually in sight now. You know, since I published about four chapters in the last month, in the last two months, four or five chapters, um, with a few more pending, uh, the, the history of vintage series will be compiled into a really cool book. We need to go back and do some editing in the early chapters to make sure everything is consistent and flows really well and to actually update things. So if there's anything, here's what I'd like to say. If you've been following the series, um, and you have anything you think I should add, maybe there's some anecdote that needs to be added or some insider story. I have a list of people I need to go back and interview, because I've done a lot of interviews for this series. I've interviewed many, many, many people, but there are still some people I need to go back and touch base with and ask ask some questions about or get some anecdotes about. But if there's any, anything that you've spotted, um, hit me up, let me know, and it'll I'll incorporate it as best I can into the final final version, which will go into a nice published book. But, you know, the same kind of format as the Understanding Gush book, so... Just a, Sounds good. Yeah, and and I have in mind some ideas for some uh, other promotional free articles. One thing I might do, you know, around the time of the book launch, which will happen, you know, within a couple of months. Well, I was thinking, Kevin, let me know what you think, and and also listeners, let me know what you think. But I was thinking maybe something like an article that has like the ten most interesting decks in the history of vintage, or like the <laughs> you know, or like um, maybe something like the uh, most innovative decks in the history of vintage. Um, you know, I could also do kind of like something like the biggest vintage tournaments in the, you know, a profile of the biggest vintage tournaments in the history of the format. Um, but if you have ideas for things like that, I'd be, I'd be happy to consider them. Awesome. Sounds good. So like I said, the last, you know, I think the 2007 to 2010 chapters are all live. 2011 will be up shortly in 2012, probably within a month or so. And then, um, you know, the rest should come shortly thereafter. Anyway, let's, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a lot of content to cover. We're going to look at all the new sets and what they brought into Vintage. We're going to look at some of the big, take a, a look back at some of the biggest tournaments of the year. And we're going to look at some of the, you could call it evolutions to the Vintage format, both banned and restricted list changes, as well as some of the interesting changes to Magic the Gathering Online and some of the debates and discussions that have happened over the year. But Kevin, the place I think we've got to start which kind of nicely bookends the year is the Vintage Super League. Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's dive in. Let's look at Vintage Super League season six and seven to start our year in review. How's that? Love it. 
So, Kevin, it seems, you know, like forever ago now, but but <laughs> but season six of the Vintage Super League was really formative to the format at the beginning of the year. And we're we're going to get to season seven, which I know <laughs> I have a lot, you'll have a lot to say about, and I've got a lot of questions, and we got a lot, a lot of breakdown to do. But let's begin by looking back at season six. Season six, for those of you who may recall, is the one one by one Oliver two. And I think it's interesting. Season six definitely was a reflection of the times. It <laughs> also was very formative in the structure of season seven. It informed how Randy organized season seven. Right. And it was obviously powerfully influential on the concept of the Brewer's Challenge. Right. But let's we I mean we must recall that season six occurred in the pre-restriction mentor world and specifically mentor was involved in almost every match yeah. of that season it, frequently in the hands of Oliver but in, but he was not alone it's yeah it's remarkable just sticking to the structure of the season for a moment it, I had forgotten this before I went back and looked but the structure was a departure from the previous five seasons I mean aside mm-hmm. from the abbreviated I can't remember. I think it was the season three, which was this abbreviated summer season. All the seasons of the VSL had the same structure, which was that you have a nine-week season, regular season, in which every player plays every other player, and you introduce new decks. Season six actually had was had a playoff, a play-in, but it was a, a bit different of a plan because the the change to the regular season created more slots. And so the play-in ha- had three slots that, that people could play in. And you and I both played in that play-in, Kevin. Mm-hmm. And it actually kicked off right at the beginning of the year. It started like the first week of January. Um, but the, the, the structure of the season was actually basically two semesters. It was broken off into two semesters in which half the league played essentially in, in one pod and the other half in another pod. And then they did it again in different pods in the second half. Mm-hmm. And the play-in... Uh, the way the play-in worked is there would be there essentially there were three tournaments. There was like a, a first play-in group, a second play-in group, and then kind of a, a free-for-all for all the people who didn't secure a spot <laughs> in the in the last play-in group. Kevin, do you have any right. memories of that? I specifically remember getting trounced by Andy Probasco on his white red <laughs> uh, Eldrazi list, and I also remember splitting with Reed Duke, which was a little bit of foreshadowing. Yeah, your, your first, your first encounter with Mister Duke. <laughs> right, right. It was a good time, and I obviously I wish I'd won and been part of the league, but I still had a great time. And I think it was an interesting stepping off point for introducing more new people and diversity into the league too, which Randy then extended into season seven. Right. Right. So, so just so, so folks remember, uh, LSV, Kai, Kai Buddha, and, uh, Shuhei bowed out of season six. They bowed out after season five. And Randy brought in automatically David Williams, Chris Bakula, and Bob Marr, who were relegated in season four. But uh, on the January 3rd play in, Oliver two defeated you, Reed, and Andy to win the first qualifier with, with Silent Mentor. And then the, the following week, Rodrigo Tagores defeated Rachel Agnes, Caleb, and myself with Leovold to get the second slot. But the final slot was determined by a two-week double elimination LCQ in which I, I, I think I beat you, Kevin, in one of the earlier rounds, and then I yep. faced Rachel in the finals. Yep. And I beat her, but the problem was that I had to beat her twice. Yeah. And she was playing Mentor and I was playing Eldrazi. So I had the, the most number of wins in that LCQ, but then Rachel was kind of waiting there as the boss and she defeated me. And it really interesting. It was actually a really interesting finals where I don't remember exactly what happened, but she she played like a dig-through time, I think, in combat, 
with monk tokens yeah. to kill me and it was pretty it was a pretty amazing um victory um but then in in the regular season uh there was again as i said there was two semesters of six weeks the playoffs were oliver rodrigo and paul uh um who automatically qualified for the playoff group but then there was like an additional battle for the wild card where eric Froelich uh advanced and then as you already mentioned oliver two won what was interesting though in the playoff group Oliver two went five and one against six non mentor decks, and I think the <laughs> best performing deck behind him was something like three and three, which might have been Eric. And there was kind of a conversation at the end of the VSL between Eric and and Randy that that the Gush mentor deck was too good and something needed to happen. And I yeah. feel like that was pretty influential in shaping DCI policy. But we'll get to that. We'll we'll leave that on the table for now. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Oliver Oliver just crushed crushed a pretty and pretty you know intense competition there right to win the vsl absolutely he went through some hall of famers to to get there which most vsl winners have to do yes <laughs> but he went through efro who has historically done just incredibly well he's usually the end boss for the vsl he went through paul Rietzel as well and but i do think it really kind of set the stage for the year on you know fortunately or unfortunately and in a lot of ways, it informed everything we're about to talk about in terms of the rise and fall of different decks, the banner restricted policy, the ways VSL season seven was structured. It was really an interesting yeah. kicking off point for 2017. Well, let, let's 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 uh, let's shift to the, the bookend then. Let's talk about season seven, which we've spent a lot of time on season seven in our in our most recent uh, podcasts. And we're going to spend some time today uh, covering the finals match, of course. Uh, mm-hmm. But I'll set up kind of how we got to the finals. So the season, it's it's hard. I mean, the season seven seven actually stretched quite a bit of of territory if you think yeah. about it, because it launched on August 29th, but it actually kicked off on September 12th. So depending on how you count, it's you know straddled between four or five months of the year if you count the announcement in the in the finals. Right. So technically, it was kind of like a almost a a five month uh, season. If you count the beginning of December and the end of August, it stretched into five months at least. Right. Um, once again, Randy had selected 12 players. What was most of the players were from the um, season six, but the difference was uh, there was one player who was brought in who was completely new to the VSL, who was Aaron Campbell. Yep. Who was, who was known as a kind of a dredge aficionado. And, and Aaron, as we've covered in previous shows, brought a really interesting element, you know, s- some. Fan uh, favorites, um, some cool decks, some great plays, some some great commentary. Um, so it's really enjoyable to have Aaron. Um, and then, it, so the the season did this year. This season did not actually have a play in tournament, but the structure was substantially different. So it kind of borrowed the pod approach from season six, but it was as you had already mentioned a Brewers challenge, and the rule was that um, players couldn't bring the same archetype twice so they'd have to switch up over the three the trimesters um and i really i really love this because it meant i could play decks like ad nauseum and rector flash which i really enjoyed playing <laughs> um and you brought a bunch of brews as well um kevin yep um but in the regular season just to recap the regular season you started out zero and three but then really turned things around to go six and three to make the playoffs and i i i started i think two and one and then i went one and two and then two and one um and then i ended up five and four tied with rich shea for fifth place and then of course rich shea and i had a uh a tiebreaker match which we can talk about if you'd like 
But Kevin, I remember at the at Eternal Weekend talking with you in our hotel room about. <laughs> I don't remember whether you were. Th- I think you might have been three and three at that point, and I was probably also three and three. But I said, Kevin, yep. we can both make the playoffs, and I, you know, and I kind of we talked about it. I don't think you really had put much thought into that at that time. No, not really. I, I was just in the in the kind of mindset of I don't want to be relegated even though relegation is is not actually a thing this season. I really just wanted to end up in the top half of the pack maybe. And uh I was going to be perfectly fine if I ended in the position you ended up in for example, if I ended up just on just below the bubble for the playoffs, <laughs> that was going to be fine with me. <clears throat> I really could not have imagined how that last trimester would go. Well, yeah, because it was unprecedented, right? I mean, you ended up I mean, the the two unprecedented things that happened running up and into the finals was that Reed Duke had the best VSL regular season record of all time going eight and one, uh, losing only to you in the regular season. Uh, (laughs) But then perhaps just as impressive, if not more so, was that you broke the VSL win streak heading into the finals, which was how many matches Yeah, going into the finals. It was nine, I think. I think it was nine. (laughs) So absurd. I know, because I had six in the regular season, and then I went 2-0 and against Bob, and then I won the first one against Efro. Yeah. So that was nine. And then Efro beat me, and then I beat him in the third. Right. So. You, you knocked out Eric in the <clears throat> end to face Reed. We, we, we have to mention, though, that Bob lost to Eric on the most extreme <laughs> and uh, improbable circumstances. I mean, his matches were just so painful. But the, the highlight, of course, was drawing Blightsteel Colossus uh, not once when he had Tinker in hand, but twice in a row. Yep. He had two <laughs> consecutive draws off the top of his deck that were Blightsteel Colossus. And you really have to consider how difficult that is. It may be the first time in Magic history that someone has drawn <laughs> Blightsteel Colossus with two consecutive draws. Yeah. Yeah. Someone ran the probability. Uh, and I can't, I think you did. Wasn't it something like 0. 0.000 something percent chance of that it, yeah. happening? It, it was, it was extremely tiny. It was extremely <laughs> tiny. Um, and we had, you know, there was obviously some fun debate in the commentary led by Randy about, are you supposed to draw with library there when the only <laughs> way you lose this game is if the top card of your deck is Blightsteel? Right. I mean, he had <laughs> everything, you know. Yeah. So one of those draws was Bob's choice because it was his main phase. He has seven cards, including Tinker. He draws with library and, get, and hits Blightsteel. But he's not dead yet because he can just discard the Blightsteel for a hand size and <laughs> yeah. pass the turn. So the first draw was was on Bob. You know, he had a choice, and most people agree it was the right. He made the right choice, but he still got punished. And then, sure enough, the shuffle fairies arrived, and Bob <laughs> draws Blightsteel off the top for his draw step the next turn, which was which is where the percentages really shrank. That was pretty remarkable. Yeah. Pretty remarkable. So the you know Bob really I think should have won almost all the matches he lost against Eric. But hey, <laughs> it, it was it was Eric, you and Bob battling it out to see who would play Reed. And as I said, you beat Eric and Bob, yep. rather. And um, and then you were sitting there, uh, rather, Reed was waiting for you as the final boss, sitting pretty in the, that first pull position waiting for you all. And, and we should point out that the structure of the matches changed because it was best two out of three matches with three decks right. submitted well, between Eric, between sorry, Eric, Bob, and myself. But then the finals was best three out of five matches with only three decks submitted. So let's turn to the finals now. We've got a lot to talk about. And Kevin, I'm excited to interview about this. Interview you about this. <laughs> All right. Where to begin?
Kevin, let's start with deck selection. So, you know, what did you expect Reed to play and how did that inform what you wanted to play and what you ultimately brought to the table? Well, first and foremost, it was no secret that Reed was going to play Storm. It's the the vintage deck he's, I think, known most for in terms of his success in playing at Champs and playing in the VSL. So I figured there was there was a high 90% chance that Storm was in one of his three lists. And that's bolstered by, and then there's kind of a circular element to the fact that he was on the play for the finals, having the superior record. <laughs> so the fact that he's a Storm right. player, combined with the fact that he was on the play, just bolsters the possibility that he's going to play Storm. After that, I figured him for the same kind of decks that I'm into. I figured him for a, a Blue Stew kind of deck, maybe Turbo Xerox, something like that, Mentor or the like. And then I figured him for shops because shops is still so, so good in the format. And it's also bolstered a little bit by the fact that he was on the play. So there was an interesting decision point on my part, given my expectations as to if you're Reed and you know you're on the play, do you put Storm first or do you put shops first? Because both of those decks are powerfully rewarded for being on the play. And then there was an implicit assumption that whichever one wasn't first in slot A, that is, would end up in slot C because he was most likely to be on the play again in slot C. So that's really the baseline. I didn't know what kind of blue deck he would come up with, so I chose to play a deck that I thought was best against Storm on the draw, and that was my Remora deck. And I chose to bring Shops because I still think Shops was the the best performing deck in the format. And then the third deck was one that I had stuck... I stuck with one that I'd had in the playoffs, and I think ultimately... That was a a poor choice on my part in hindsight. Yeah, I think really well. I mean, Reed is a superior player to me. He is perhaps not as experienced in vintage as me, you know, on a day to day basis. But he's no slouch. He's been around, and he probably read me for picking the three decks that I did. And so the second yeah. deck that he chose, which he put in the exact correct slot, was uh, basically a, a, a nightmare matchup for a paradoxical outcome. It was almost a paradoxical outcome hate deck. I mean, in as much as it was still a viable yeah, vintage was. deck, but he made certain choices in the construction of that deck that I think, in hindsight, point to he was expecting what I played. But how does that logic not also apply to your Grixis deck? Um, it might, but at the same time, he possibly interpreted that as he still wanted to be on the play with Storm. Storm can beat anything on the play, and so I think he felt like he could overpower anything I brought. Because basically, Storm is designed to exist and succeed in a world where people have null rods and mind break traps, and his build had those features, and he won with them. So I figured. Well, that seems slightly overstated. It's not like Storm is doing very well in the vintage. Well, it's format doing very right well now. when it's guaranteed to be <clears throat> on the play. <laughs> you know, it's hard to tease out what you can account for. But we don't we we don't have a lot of circumstances where that, that right. happens to so be the my, case. So that's a hard that's a hard I, I claim to test. And I'm, I say that in jest. My point is simply for a player who's very confident with it, and you can tell them they're 100 percent on the play. I I see no reason to shy away from playing the deck they're comfortable with and very good on the you know mo- one of the most rewarded decks for being on the play. I mean, if it's if, if you always had to be so, on the draw against Storm, Storm would be one of the best decks in Vintage. <laughs> I'm confident saying that. So let yeah. So let's talk about a little bit more about your your deck selection and then how you decided to sequence yeah. your decks. A- ABC. Well, I figured, given everything I just said, I concluded that Reed would want to come out as strong as possible because being up matches in this format is advantageous. And so I figured he would put slot uh, a slot A would be Storm, and I was right. 
So I put my what I considered my yeah. best anti storm on the draw deck, which is my Remora deck, which I tweaked and by, I added main deck mind break trap and extra mind break trap to the to the sideboard. And uh, I basically it went it went about as well as it could be expected. I mean, I drew a dozen cards off of my turn one Remora in game one. <laughs> so I figured if I was going to be read with how he was going to match his decks up, that I thought he would put his shops deck in the third slot. And I wanted to play his shop deck with mine yes. because I felt good about my mirror technology, and I, I simply felt good about that matchup. Right. When when we spoke on the phone, you know, thinking through some of these sequencing questions, we 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 felt that the chances he would play Storm, as you already said, was you know well over ninety percent, and shops very high, at least over fifty percent, probably over sixty percent. And we were also convinced that he would slot his Storm and Mud deck in slots right. A and C simply because being on the play. Those are the two decks that are advantaged the most from being on the play. And your highest chances of being on the play, you're 100% on the play if you're read in match one. And I think you have a higher probability of being on the play in yeah. match three. Yeah. Right? So so, so you're playing Storm and, and Mud, Aggro Mud, in, in either A or, or C. The, the big question mark was what would he play in B? And what is your best deck to face either Storm or Mud? So so talk about talk about how you ended up so, so mud makes sense in, in, you don't want to play mud when, when you know you're going to be on the draw, right? right? So you don't really want to play mud in, in the yep. first match against, even though you think there's a really good chance you'll be playing a mirror or storm. So it makes sense to play mud either as B or C. But talk about, I mean, talk about what ultimately made you want to play your Grixis deck or one BR deck. In it had the most I could do against storm on the draw in that I had moved Mindbreak Trap into the main. And Remora is a turn one play that either extends the game or increases the likelihood that I can, um, that I can fend off early victories. So it has the most yeah. counter magic of any, you know, reasonably of, of any deck that I was going to bring. And also Mr. Remora is simply for that matchup. It also has the secondary feature that it is my deck that is also, I think, best or second best against shops because as I've tuned the deck over the course of eternal weekend and as over the course of some weeks of the vsl yeah. i had really come yeah. to enjoy the shop the deck shop matchup <laughs> and so i felt that if i had the pairings or the alignment of reed's decks flipped by 180 degrees if he was shops in a and storm in c then i was still putting myself up for the best chances of success Possible yeah because i was still wanted to play against shops with my with my remora deck even though Remora is got is awful against shops, I had great sideboard plan. And then if it worked out that I was shops against Storm in slot C, I was still going to be okay with that, right? Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's interesting. And 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 so far, Reed, uh, you know, played according to plan. I mean, some of it is just logic. If you have these advantages and you're in this position, here's the deck that you're incented yeah. to play, and you show up with it. the The big question, the mystery, was what he would play right. in the B slot, and neither one of us anticipated or could possibly have predicted he would play this like bob's revenge this super <laughs> hate uh you know null rod ancient grudge deck right <laughs> i mean there's no way with no right. force of will it's a really either. interesting concept and it, it could be a whole topic of discussion about his deck because without any force of wills it gives up some equity against a faster combo de- not faster a combo deck like outcome you give up yeah. some equity against things like tinker right. and early outcomes but on the flip side you gain all this value from having your interactive spells be incredibly, incredibly cheap, and 
you, you don't lose the card advantage of force. Which is good against right. shops, which gives you which is good against shops because there's a real strong incentive for you to slot shops in the B slot. Potentially. Yeah. Right? Assuming I've lost yeah. to to combo in the first uh, slot. Yes, absolutely. So it, it's really interesting where that deck was positioned. I think I think he intuited that my third deck would be an outcome deck. And well, everyone. Just if I could interrupt on this point, everyone in the playoffs had as their third deck as a yeah. a deck, an outcome deck. I believe. Yeah. Well, I mean, Bob and Eric <laughs> yeah. and I. Yeah, we all did. And, and even me oh, and right. Rich. I, I, I forgot that you did too. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you played my <laughs> outcome deck. <laughs> so the yeah. the simple truth is is that he brought an interesting brew. It was set up to fight on the major axes of most major matchups, right? It's a null rod deck. It had Pyroblast and Leovold. It's it was not way out there, but he made a couple of interesting changes. The force of will changes is both noteworthy and interesting and functional. And in the end, it turned out to be perfectly aligned against my outcome deck. Yeah, it was shockingly but well there's aligned. There's <laughs> some irony to that, and that is we played five games of that matchup and <laughs> It's like the Emperor talking to Luke. Only at the end did I realize how that deck was constructed. If you go back and watch right. the games, I had no reason to believe he didn't have Force of Will. I just assumed he didn't draw them. Right. He did not play Leovold. He did not play <laughs> Leovold until the game the last game of until the finals. The, the decisive game. And he played game. one null yeah. rod in game our fourth game, but that did right. not tell me, that did not suggest to me that he was a four yeah. null rod deck. It's I mean, we're going to save the play-by-play analysis for a few minutes, but it's remarkable in game, the very first game in match two, he had two null rods yeah. in his opening hand, and he didn't play null rod on turn two, and he didn't play yeah. null rod on turn three, <laughs> even yeah. though he had them. <laughs> and so I didn't know he was a null rod deck until it was, until it was all over. I didn't know he was a Leovold deck. I mean, I could, I, I speculated that he was a Leovold deck. Could yeah. Have surmised. Uh, yeah. But I didn't have any proof until it was all over. And the, you know, the, the matches were still quite close. I mean, I won the games, I mean, were still quite close. And I won one with Tinker. And I lost a close one that maybe I should not have lost, which we can talk about in the play-by-play. I don't want to overstate this, but I think that the structure of the format of the finals is actually was actually tremendously yeah. important. And you and I spent a lot of time kind of strategizing around how that structure influenced what decks you play. Um, but one of the most under appreciated areas in which the structure matters is what happens when you get to matches four and five. And um, and I think that's really where, you know, sh- sure, he really got you in match two, but but the advantage he had, the big strategic advantage he had was being up two to one going into the fourth match meant that he could play a deck like he played. I mean, going into match four, his strongest decks are obviously Mud and the Storm deck, not this like Bob's revenge <laughs> right. deck, but that's what he played in match four because he could he knew that he had a match to give up, so he could play the deck that you least yeah. anticipated and try and get a, kind of get a win out of it. And that's you know that's such a huge advantage going into Definitely. match four is being up two to one just in terms of the structure. So, yes, and and also the whole thing would that. have been dramatically different if we had deck lists well, too, which I, right. I, I don't complain about one way or the other. I oh, think it yeah. made the whole thing more interesting, but. It, it also informs the structure and deck selection and your play. It's, it, yeah, it's something that Randy could consider, like, you know, no deck list for the first three matches, but seeing the deck list for match four certainly changes the equation. But before we get to the play-by-play and some of the plays that you made, Kevin, talk a little bit about your selection process for, for match four. 
So, I mean, you and I, I suggested you put together a flow chart and you had a whole flow chart you put together. So, so talk about, you know, obviously, if you're up two to one, what would you have played if you're up two to one? And what, what, and, and talk about what ultimately was decisive in terms of playing your Grixis deck in match four. Well, the most basic element was being on the draw. Right. So it goes back to the right. play draw elements. And I felt like the Remora, the one BR deck was the best deck I had on the draw. But there is an implication. And that is, I also made the assumption, which then speaks to what you just said, that he would play one of his best on the play decks. I would have ranked, and I think most people would rank his team, his, his Bob's Revenge deck as the third best deck for being on the play combo and shops being far more rewarded for being on the play. So I valued that aspect of the equation when I was planning for match four, both in advance and in the moment. And so I chose the deck that was best at being on the draw, especially best against one of those two decks. And that's where you pointed out he really sidestepped the logic because he could afford to gain some surprise equity given that he was up a match. And it was it was a surprise. It totally was. And in the end, I don't think it's a, an awful matchup for me, but I can but I can tell you that <laughs> still misunderstanding his deck as much as I did made it a worse matchup. So Kevin, let's talk about some of the plays and let me just say that I was extremely pumped, extremely excited to do coverage for you. I mean, people have seen me with like an energy high, that was me. <laughs> uh and but I did not anticipate that there would be so many people who would be upset at my lack yep. of partiality impartiality. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I know that Reed Duke has a huge fan base, and justifiably so, <laughs> but I thought it would be uh, okay and also quite obvious that I was polling for you, but I sure. think a lot of people were unhappy about that. Any, in any case, my, my coverage and commentary was intentionally slanted, you know, I was rooting for you, um, but I was also so, so excited for you, I mean, it was really, like, the, yeah. you know, the, the days I before, a couple days before <laughs> that, I was just, my... And, excitement was just like in a you know a fever pitch for you because this is such an exciting finals but um but yeah so so let's let's talk about the matches you ended up playing four matches and the each of them had interesting plays i mean i think kevin and i want to get your take um on them i will say though that i got some criticism Mm -hmm. from some people who said that i was making plays based upon knowledge of what you had i think that's overstated I think some of my disagreements were more strategic or structural, and I'll talk about that when we get to them. But let's start with the first match. So the first match had this kind of like iconic yep. opening moment, right? Where Reed is on the play with Storm Combo, and he has turn one Black Lotus Necropotence. But you matched it. You matched it with turn one Remora. Well, not, not only did he have turn <laughs> yeah. one Lotus Necropotence, he had Duress right. first. I mean, it was one of the better openings you can have aside from just winning the game, but... Um, but he duressed and I mental misstepped, and then I didn't have force of will. So I, but I had Remora. So I was left with a Remora that had no other support. I think my hand was misstep, yep. Remora, yep. Gush, and f- uh, three lands and a Mox. Uh, four mana sources. Um, but I had the Remora and I had a misstep. The misstep told me I can probably stop him from going off on one, right? I can either hit a duress or a ritual or certain cases, Manifold, Mystical Tutor, that kind of thing. I figured I was safe that he wasn't going to go off on one through a misstep. And then my Remora would come down. I have a Mox, which means I can upkeep it and still play a blue spell on two. So I was feeling okay, although, you know, it's not great. It's never great. Sure enough, he had a very a very strong anti-Remora opening with the, the Necro, but he had to pass the turn. 
unfortunately for Reed, he and I didn't know this at the time until obviously he passed the turn again, but he didn't draw any lands in his necro hand. Yeah, he was bottlenecked at his one land. Yeah. Yeah. He had plenty of mana sources, but every one of them drew me cards. He had two off color mocks and a mana vault, and I think a dark ritual. But Yep. Yeah, and at least one ritual. So but he had one of the things that really even though I drew into counter magic for his um his turn two defense grid, he also had time walk. Let's pause there for just a second because yeah. One of the points of deb- so, the setup for this match, this game, is turn one Necro versus turn one yeah. Remora. And later, Efro pointed out he said he thought that Remora drew more cards for you yeah. than Necro did for him. I don't know if that's true. It, well, it was at least comparable because <laughs> I think comparable. I drew a dozen cards before the game. The problem, as you point out, is that yeah, the problem was just Remora didn't draw you blue cards. You had drew you drew garbage. But this decision of whether to play the defense grid was really interesting because. He could pl- if he pl- he could play just Mox Defense Grid, and you would not have been able to force it because you didn't draw <laughs> the Force until the third card, which was he went Mox right. Mana Vault. Then he played Defense Grid, and you and you drew the you drew the Force. Um, it's interesting his sequencing of going instead of going Mox Mox, he went Mox Mana Vault, presumably because you might have a misstep, so it decreases the chance of you drawing misstep right. and being able to hit the Mana Vault. In any case. It is interesting. I argued on the stream in my commentary that if I was Reed, I probably would have gone defense grid. But in your favor, you did have in hand a Lotus, and you would have had to pay a mana to upkeep the Remora, but you would have been able to probably pay for a Force of Will through the defense grid with the Lotus. So True. But, that's true. Yeah. No, I, but that's pretty low odds. There's no way for Reed to... It's true. It's true. <laughs> so I, I think he probably made the right play in retrospect. I actually take back my analysis. <laughs> well, I mean, he's he has to value potential force of will versus mental misstep is really the the metric there right sorry in case i've left this unclear you literally drew the force of will on the defense grid remora (laughs) trigger so i just want to remind everyone of that you and i know that one more card than he needed to is what is is what comes down to yes that's that's why that yeah that's why that was a a relevant debate right (laughs) um but but keep going. So keep going how that unfolded. Well, unfortunately, that game didn't f- unfold in a very interesting way from my perspective. I drew no more counters. <laughs> yeah. I just ended the game with Lotus and Lands and Tassiger and some other, you know, different kinds of interactive cards. But I didn't get another turn because he drew the time, the time walk. And time walk, you know, in conjunction with Necro is kind of like <laughs> amazing because it's time walk plus you draw a ton more cards. So. He, he did, and he gave me a ton more cards. They just, I didn't see another... I, I take that back. I saw one more mental misstep. Yeah, I mental misstepped something on his third turn, and then that was, that was I it. I think probably one of the most, int- the most interesting moments in uh, the entire game was the very last, second-to-last play, the penultimate play that Reed made. It certainly isn't necessarily the most relevant, given your hand, but the fact that he decided to, to dark petition for Talarian Academy there was so interesting at the end. Because he already had the tendrils, and I was trying to think with Randy: is there a way he can like petition for like defense grid and play the defense grid and do a mini tendrils and then win next turn? But what's so brilliant about that is that if you think that you're bottlenecking him, so he goes dark petition right with some mana, and then he yeah. plays dark ritual, leaving black black up. And if if you have misstep or force, and you play either one of them on the assumption that you're bottlenecking him, or even mind break trap you know you're well, yeah. which you wouldn't play there um then he <laughs> just plays the, he went for the academy which is uncounterable play the academy and cast tendrils which beats yeah. 
anything you have except Mindbreak Trap because you can't force, you know, tendrils. So yeah. that was a really awesome ending to that play. I thought Reed, I mean, I think that particular decision and that particular play speaks yeah. to yeah, how well Reed plays, but it also is kind of emblematic of his play on the evening. I think you'd agree. Yeah, and that and that game kind of demonstrates what I had hoped for by putting the Remora deck in the A slot on the draw. I really can't ask for much more. I ended up uh, bang putting Remora into play on turn one, and I countered three spells, but you just kind of <laughs> overpowered me, and I didn't didn't get as much gas as I might have wanted. But honestly. <laughs> I guess. I, I guess. <laughs> I, I drew a dozen cards, and to draw two counter spells in twelve cards is only a little bit below average, you know, in my deck as a whole. So, well, you had you did have main deck mind break trap as we just dis- discussed, though. So, yeah, and it and it would have potentially won me that game <laughs> if he had just let it linger there and not and not made a different play. But well, let's move on to the next games yeah. because we've got we still got a lot of matches to cover, let alone um, the rest of the, this match. Right. Um, the second the second game was is you had an incredibly interesting hand. It was Library of Alexandria and Counterspells. Had a Force Misstep and I think Mindbreak Trap on top. Yeah. And but it's that age old question. The entire game was defined by one key question. Yeah. The age old question of when do you move off Library? Yeah. And you made a decision to immediately move off of it. I think, which I think, if with the benefit of, I think you're conflating something because I didn't get the chance to be on library until turn two. Well, yes. So here's, so I'm. There's a missing step. <laughs> yeah. You you you're on the play and you played library and Reed played turn one duress. Yeah. So you had on turn two you had a choice. Do you? play a second land and hold up fl- Flusterstorm, or do you not play the land and then get into the library next turn, yeah. assuming he doesn't do anything? Yeah. And it turns out that he would not have done anything relevant, <laughs> so you would have been able to get to library. Because he mulled into a um, hand that was like three lands he, and Simeon Spirit Guide and Duress and yes, one business spell yeah. or something. Right. Yeah. So it's overstated. What I said is in- incorrect, but you did have an opportunity to get on the library. Yeah. It's just the kind of the inverse of of it's the inverse of the when do you get off library? It's when do you try and ramp up to library, <laughs> and <laughs> right. you know, what are the circumstances? Um, and and I value were, I valued uh, deploying other spells on that turn too. Yeah, more than I hoping mean, that the library was going to be good enough. It obviously, you know, I have the benefit of having seen the hand, but I was in a VSL spot that was similar to yours, where I moved off library too quickly and it cost me. Yeah. And and I feel like if I was in your spot, I would have ramped to library. But there was another play I disagreed with even more. And I want to, do you remember when you decided not to play the top? Uh, well, in hindsight, yes. I, re- I went back and rewatched all of these. And I think, I, I honestly don't know why I didn't do it in the moment. I feel like it... Obviously, I could have played the library, the, the top tapping library to cast it. I think yeah. I might have been bottlenecked into thinking that all of my other mana was accounted for because I had I had an underground sea and a Valk and a Deathrite Shaman, and I had. But you, you I, also had a library. I know. Yeah. But I had earmarked yep. the the, the uh, underground sea for activating Deathrite Shaman because that was part of the my strategy there, and I had earmarked the Valk for casting the Pyroblast in my hand, and so I think I had mentally talked myself into, just, it, it was a relatively quick analysis, I think, too quick. I talked myself into I wasn't going to be able to get any value off of playing the top, meaning I, I expected to have to tap out, uh-huh. I wasn't going to get to look with it, but obviously, <laughs> obviously that's wrong in the sense that, yeah. well, I mean, 
and I could have Plenty just might be overstated. I could have yeah. just sacrificed a turn of Deathrite Shamaning too to get there if I wanted. But really, the, the the simpler analogy is it doesn't cost me anything because, as you and Randy observed in commentary, I can't just pop it back into my hand. And if I if it lets me be on library, it doesn't count against me. So I think I just didn't account for the fact that I could put it back in my hand in real time, and I felt like I didn't have enough mana to make good use of it. I think it was totally correct to have played it. I should have played it off the library, and that would have been that. And it would have been a good thing, and it would have helped me win. Yeah. T- Ult- ultimately, more about- Go ahead. I mean, ultimately, yeah. that game was silly, though, because I just drew <laughs> I just drew mono, you know, interactive business for the whole game. Just off the top of my deck, it was all counterspells. <laughs> yeah. I, I ended the game with all four of my Force Wills in my hand, didn't I? I uh, yeah, you, d- yeah, you did. You drew. You know, I don't think I've ever seen... Yeah, no, that's true. I mean yep. that game was mostly defined by Reed's draw. My draw yeah. could have beaten his a much, draw was terrible. Yeah, my draw could have beaten <laughs> a much better draw of by his. Uh, but even so, his, his, he, I mean, he cast Simeon Spirit Guide. You don't really need to say much more than that. <laughs> yes, it, right. it chipped in for some damage, and yes, we did end up in a scenario whereby a mini tendrils would have killed me if I if I you know if the play went a nope. certain way and I didn't counter certain spells. But he didn't even draw those cards. It was all it was all bad for him. The possibility of a mini tendrils after the Simeon Spirit Guide had chipped away at your life was something I brought up on stream. Mm-hmm. Um, but he didn't have the cards well, let's for go- it. No, no, he didn't. Yeah. So let's go to game three. Game three, you know, each of these games introduced, I think, I would say like one or two really defining decisions. Yeah. You know, it's like the, like the first game was about library. The second game was about library. The first game was about, you know, strategic, from his perspective, what's strategically important vis-a-vis the grid. Yeah. And he, I think, played it better than I would have. Um, but in the third game, it was really all about the mulligan. I mean, it was like you mulliganed, I mean, and the chain of vapor play, which we'll get to, but <laughs> he mulliganed to a six card hand that had four mana, Mox Ruby and Academy and a lot of black spells Yeah, and ancestral. You, you mulligan into, <laughs> you, you had a seven card hand that had no counter magic that I would have kept. Yeah. And I don't remember exactly what it was, but I remember it had click. I think it had Snapcaster Mage. I think it had something else. Do you remember was a preordain in there? Uh, it had some business that wasn't counter magic, and I can't recall. Yes. It must have had at least, I think it yeah. might have had Ancestral in it. I don't remember. No. I don't you remember would have kept exactly, an Ancestral hand. <laughs> you would have I'm kept not, Ancestral. I can't, I can't but, recall, uh, but it, it had no it had no disruption. No fast mulligan- disruption. Yeah. Right. You mulligan to a hand of six that had no land <laughs> and one mana source. It had a Mox Jet. Yep. The hand had what I consider to be three castable spells in the sense that it had Flusterstorm, Preordain, and Force of Will. But right. obviously all of that is predicated on finding a mana Having source. Having a land. And so I, here's the question. It, did you scry into it? Did you bottom something or did you see that? Did you see that, Tarn? Uh, no, I saw it. I saw it. It oh, was the top okay. card. Yeah. <laughs> that was a very risky play. It was risky, so but just, you know, just, I'm going to see two cards so, i'm gonna see see two different cards by my first turn and even if i don't hit the land i i reasonably believed that i could win that game if there was a land in the top or a blue mana source in the top three two two or three yeah. cards and that was That's the calculus reasonable. i did and i thought if if i hit the hand is actually really good and it turns out it was it was pretty good it got even so just better. to refresh yeah let me just ref- refresh our audience's recollections because we're talking because we've just we've rewatched this recently yeah Kevin keeps a six-card hand with no land and a mox jet, and he's on the he's on the draw. Yep. And he scries, but as viewers, we don't know what he sees. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, if there's no land there, you're in trouble. Yeah. Like if you don't see a land right there. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Oh, and, and, and my so hand here, had my hand had shattering spree. 
It had Shattering Spree yeah. and Force. I, I remarked on the stream, I said this, you you probably saw this, I said that that Tarn was one of the best possible mana sources you could have there. Oh, yeah. Because it gave it, it gave you the fuel you needed for the Deathrite Shaman later. Yep. It gave you direct access to the red you needed to blow up his mocks for the Shattering Spree. Yep. It was just it was just perfect. It was. It did so much more than a dual end would have done there. Yep. You're <laughs> right. It was absolutely ideal. And oh, by the way, the Deathrite Shaman was not in my hand. It was the tur- It was the card I drew the yeah. next turn. No, off- you, no, no, I know. Of a preordain. Yeah, yeah, and and also you had no black mana except for the jet. Yeah. So it was like perfect. You perfectly curved out because then you you were able to cast Jace the following turn off of the Deathrite Shaman that you played off the Mox Jet. Yeah. Yeah. Which was just unbelievable. Yep. With the Vulcan, your basic island. So, um, you know, I have to say, Reed. I don't know if I've ever seen a player get more value off Cataxian Probe. <laughs> you know, there are, of course, those exceptions where people play like Probe, Therapy U, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But that Probe gave him so much information to the very end of the game. In fact, his final play was predicated by the Probe because he knew you had Force and Flusterstorm when he cast Chain. Yeah. That was such a valuable Probe. Yeah. It was, and also, um, it got us into a point where I, after I had. After I had landed Jace and brainstormed with Jace and played a land, I only had two cards in my hand. And he knew there was a subset of cards he knew they could be, but he didn't know all of them. Obviously, I had seen, I don't know, five or six different cards by that point because I had drawn Preordain, drawn and Jace. That's six, maybe seven cards, depending on if I bottomed. Right. So he knew that Force of Will and Flusterstorm were among seven possible cards. And so he had to do a lot of calculus regarding what what kind of counter magic I could be fronting. He knows, but my by brainstorming with Jace and playing a land that I'm obviously fronting Flusterstorm because basically no other counter magic in the deck would I play a land for, right? Except for Pyroblast, but that's medium in terms of impact. But he right. has since he's seen the Flusterstorm, he says it's a high likelihood that I have Flusterstorm. But it's interesting because I went back and watched that and thought about what he was playing around in the, the very last turns and Efro then made an interesting summation when he jumped onto the stream after this game about how he thought that Reed took a real chance by playing the chain to begin with. Yeah. And, yeah. and then just the way it worked yeah, out, he, he got did. maximally rewarded for it and I got maximally punished. But I, I just want to, yeah. I just want to point <laughs> out something I, I am obviously def- a little defensive and uh, stung by this particular play because I think... So let's let's describe the play before you do yeah. your analysis. Well, Describe what happened. So I had Deathrite Shaman that was tapped, Volcanic Island tapped, Jet tapped, and Jace, basic and, and uh, one land untapped. Uh, was the Basic Island? Yeah. Yeah. A blue producing land. I had two cards in hand. They were Flusterstorm and Force of Will. Right. Reed starts his turn with Telerian Academy and uh, Lotus Petal as his only right. permanence. And his hand was Duress, Dark Ritual, Chain of Vapor, Ch- um, um, uh, Cabal Ritual. That was his hand. Right. And he draws Dark Petition. Petition, yeah. Now, <laughs> uh, the whole reason this play went down the way it was was because I properly, I would say, properly read read the nature of reed's hand based on how the first three turns had gone and concluded that he had that kind of hand a no business mana kind of hand and i was right and so when he played that chain of vapor on jace i thought perhaps a little too quickly mind you but i thought this play smacks of desperation it smacks of he wants to extend this game so he can draw into more business um and i 
I really didn't think that there was. I, he I, had I, it. I really didn't think there was he a chance something. he had it. But also because of the way the prior two turns had gone down, I concluded that he obviously wasn't sandbagging any Moxen or any mana sources. He would have played them because I play Remora and because he had Academy in play. He would have played them. That's so, a pretty big. That's a pretty big assumption, though, that he has nothing. I mean, since he's drawn so many cards he has turn drawn, after turn he has drawn one card because the per- the turn before recall that when i played jace he played ancestral recall off of the academy in response and i misstepped it yeah that's true i mean he he hasn't drawn cards this game but he, there, he, he but pre-ordered there are cards or he that you haven't on one. seen though no obviously i haven't seen any of the cards yeah. i'm pointing as yeah. i read his hand so he, because he well but, think about the way he played pedal and then passed the turn on the prior turn that's a very that's a very um low confidence play that's a very defensive play on his part. When he played Ancestral in response to my Jace, I concluded, I said, oh, he has a very low business hand because he was protecting this Ancestral. He didn't have a way to proactively make sure this Ancestral resolved. And I was right. So- he didn't have a way to make to force that Ancestral through. Now, it turns out he could sacrifice his whole board to duress me first. Yeah, that's possible. Yes. But point is... Yeah, I, th- he- I, think the issue, I think the issue is that bec- he, he, he clearly was bottlenecked in mana. And given that yeah. you haven't seen that he's been holding a pretty big hand yeah. the entire game, yeah. the chances that he has business he hasn't played is fairly high, but he just hasn't been able to play it. So, so one and, and and an obvious inference is that one way to unbottleneck him is to is to play rituals but he didn't want to play his rituals just yet yeah so you'd have to kind of that's a, that's a reasonable chain of inferences but even if you don't know his hand there's a more fundamental there's a more fundamental uh principle at stake which is that when you're in a control role against a combo deck one of the things that you want to do is maximize the counter magic that you can play in any moment yeah and i couldn't and one of the and one of the ways to maximize the counter magic is that, to let the, yeah. the yeah one of the ways to make counter magic maximize your counter magic is to let the jace resol- the j- chain resolve yeah because then you'll not only be able to play flusterstorm but you'll also be able to play force of will pitching jace so yeah, so uh, from from a kind of role assignment perspective irrespective of the particulars of the board state if you're just narrowly focused on maximizing my ability to deploy counter magic in this moment, letting the chain resolve actually makes sense. Yeah, I agree, I agree completely. And you also had, by the way, two more blue spells on top of your deck. Yep. One of which I think was a Vendillion click. Yep, and deck fade. So, so, so it doesn't in the it doesn't really matter. I mean, it's not like you ha- you have to pl- replay the Jace next turn. You'll still have three mana, and you can immediately play click and take the next business spell. So I really feel like. I don't feel like it really. I just think it was, frankly, an objectively incorrect play, given given the principle of maximizing counter magic and what you had on top of your deck. Uh, given, I mean, <laughs> so if you put the click if, on if top, those decks, are, if those are the two can, primary principles, then yes, I would agree. Yeah, yeah. Clearly, there's an, a reason to force or to, to counterspell chain of vapor, right? But well, yeah, the reason to counterspell chain of vapor is so that you can draw, see an additional card. Additional card next turn, uh, no. or fate seal him next turn. I was, right? was going to say, I completely disagree. Or you can, or fate, yeah, it's, or you can fate seal him next turn, and every but turn I, for the rest of the game. <laughs> yeah, but he, that's true. But here's the thing. Here's I, the thing. The I, fact I feel that like you're cl- not giving that statement enough credit. If that Jace survives to the next turn, I felt my win percentage went up above ninety five percent. I I think that that's over. I'm I'm being candid because I haven't thought about it, but I think that overestimates the value of the fate seal. I don't think it gets to ninety five percent. Well, that has been my I, experience I I, I playing think, that deck in matchups like that. 
Also, now, maybe also the, given maybe that the, I knew I had at least one more counter spell to, to support that. Here's the other problem: is the fate seal even gets slightly the next the first fate seal activation yep. gets slightly less value when you know you're going to be clicking him in his draw step next too. Uh, yeah, I, I might so, not have fate sealed then. I might have yeah, just brainstormed exa- it and exactly, clicked that which, next turn, which undercuts the rationale that you just gave for protecting the Jace, which is that if your next play is Vendillion click then the line of fate sealing him to infinity actually has even less value. Of course it does not, because the Vendillion click establishes the value of the Jace for every turn thereafter. I get to see his hand yes. and yeah. know what, yeah, what's but, a fate seal. But my claim was narrower than that. It was specifically about the first fate value, the first fate seal. So, yeah, okay. anyway, I, I well, just think... Also, I think keep in mind how much mana I had. Three mana. Yeah, which, which is, means I what, can't click and Flusterstorm on the next turn either. Yes, but what I'm saying is that... It, Look, if I was in your position, I th- I'm I'm really narrowly focused on maximizing counter magic against Storm. Yeah, I would have I would have n- not put myself in the shields down position, especially because I have click next. So the way I would have thought about it is, I think did you put click on top or Dak on top? I put click on top. Yeah, that's even better. The way I would have thought about it is this: if he can pl- if he plays two things, I have to counter right here. I have two counter spells if this chain resolve right. True. And then if he doesn't, the next turn. On his next draw step, I'm going to click, take away his only business, and I'll still have Force of Will protection. So it's functionally two counter spells. And then if you don't have to force, <laughs> then you've got then you're then at that point you're yeah. going to see well y- you're going to have DAC. You don't have to convince go- me of yeah. the efficacy of letting Chain of Vapor resolve in that scenario. I mean, but I, I, but I, I get I, it. But what, I really do. What I'm trying to say is though it really doesn't depend in any strong sense on what he has in hand, well, or even assumptions. It's just about. I, I mean, I, a, a simple, a simple heuristic or rule of thumb of I, I maximizing think, counter magic into into the sequence that you have next. I think, I think you've made your point. I don't okay. agree that it what you just said about what's in his hand, but that's obviously apparently a difference between you and I in these kind of scenarios. <laughs> I read his hand, and I read his hand correctly, and. I mean, it's not that much of well, a bad well, what beat you, story. What do you mean you read his... You didn't read his hand correctly because you lost to no, it. No, no, no. I mean, wouldn't... I read going into that turn, I read his hand as he, he he can't deploy his spells, he can't defend this ancestral. I mean, I believe that I read the nature of his hand accurately, but he okay, drew before. the card that punishes me. Like, he drew Dark Petition. How many other cards but punish could... me in that scenario? Demonic Tutor, any no. one of his other... Demonic Tutor does not punish you there? Oh, I'm sorry. Demonic Tutor does. I, thought, I was thinking Vampiric Tutor as soon as you said it. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Demonic Tutor. I mean, Yogmas Will also punishes you. Yeah, okay. You can replay the, the. There's. I mean, I think there's a lot of cards actually he could draw well, there. Actually, Yogmas Will doesn't because he can't get, then go get the tendrils. No, that's not the plan. The Yogmas Will is you. You replay the point of Yogmas Will is you get to replay the pedal and, and resolve ancestral, yeah. and then hopefully you draw another black mana, and then you can. Yeah, I, replay. I think I still win that yeah. game. If he just wills for ancestral, I, I doubt it. I doubt it. I think I still win that game. But that's neither here I, nor there. I, I doubt the point it. is, yeah. how many how many cards you know did could he pull off the top there that win him that game? That's so, what I'm getting at. So you, so you're. Uh, I think it's. I think it's more than you're giving credit for. Actually, well, I mean, y- y- okay, you know these things. So, how so, many well, do you think it is? Me, well, it really depends on how we define win the game. <laughs> I, it, no, I, I, that sounds like splitting hairs. But let me let me explain why. <laughs> I get you. So there's there's cards that can like just there's a a a, determina- a deterministic line. I get you. Right? And then there's also cards that dramatically increase your chances of winning that he could he could pull, he could resolve there. And I, I agree so that like, Yogmos Will so is one of those kind of cards. Sure. Yeah, so for example, one of the cards in hand could be, uh, I mean, he could have been holding a land. No, he would have played he it. Could, There's no reason to play that Lotus sorry, Petal he could have to, drawn, to feed sorry, Ancestral. He could have drawn, I'm sorry, let me rephrase. Yeah. He could have drawn a land right there, 
yep. that would have allowed him to play like a draw seven or something else he couldn't play, like a wheel. Um, that is that is entirely plausible. In other words, if he draws a volcanic island, let's say, and he's holding wheel and ritual and duress off the chain, he could go dark ritual, duress, take your counter spell, Volk wheel. That's a that is a line he could have played. Yeah, except that he had pondered on one, and I I believed that if that kind of play was open to him, he would have made it on two. Wasn't it a preordain, not a ponder? Okay, he he had played one of those two cantrips on one. Yeah, it was a preordain. And I believe that if he had access to that kind of play, he would have been able to get there through the preordain. It was obvious to me that the preordain I, either whiffed or put that ancestral into his hand, but he missed on mana, or he avoided mana, I, I should say, say, because of my Shattering Spree play. I have to say, his preordain really puzzled me. He put He apparently preordained, he either bottom cards or he put cards into his hand that seemingly in that moment had almost no value. He drew Chain of Vapor off the Preordain. I assumed he bottomed both. I could not tell on the replay. Mm -hmm. He drew... He drew a ritual first, immediately off of it. Not chain, right? No. The immediate first card. It was a chain was and then chain. a ritual. Okay. Yeah. Then, ri- okay. Yeah. In any case, in any case, it was. Yeah. It. it I, I have to agree with you. He probably had to bottom both because those didn't seem like cards that were immediately useful. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, so I mean, anyway, we're, we're yeah. getting bogged down to the details here. Obviously, you can make a strong case for just maximizing my counter magic. Let that chain resolve. I'm probably in a good place because Vendillion Click is still a good disruptive card. I don't value the click as much as you are if my Jace isn't in play. Is it still a good card? Absolutely. Does it keep yes. me alive for at least a turn? Probably. Yes. Um, yes. However, and that's that I, to me is what it's just a duress well, is what it is. Yeah, that's fine. And however, it's I, about mid- I don't believe yeah. I don't believe my chances of winning that game are as high with click you next turn and not have this Jace as they are with defend this Jace now. Yeah, I, think I think if the, the game prob- goes beyond yeah. that turn, there is just this huge gulf between making the, the the more careful play of keep up two counters and rely on this click. Keep in mind, I only had three mana. And I knew I know that I knew, I've been saying that multiple well, times. I know, but I, so I, I'm assuming that whatever your next plays, I'm making a, a bottom line assumption yeah. that your next couple of turns, you're not going to be able to cast Flusterstorm. Well, I'm just so, assuming that to be the case. But I don't. That to me isn't. It doesn't really matter. I mean, except I don't really think. Except yeah. part of your tenant here is maximizing counter magic, right? If I yes. can't play, if part of my plan is to not play this Flusterstorm for the next two turns, then casting it right now on this on this desperate chain of vapor is it the best use of it because now then i know that i've still got my fluster storm online and i'm not yeah. wasting any mana Here, and here's it all, it all way comes of, down to does he have it right now or not right yeah the 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 maximizing counter magic is is actually a slight m- inaccuracy what i'm actually <laughs> saying is minimizing the chances he has to resolve strategic objectives well okay and 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 that means reducing risk in every given point Obviously, there are trade-offs in Vintage. Yeah. To I reduce was risk in now one, for later. Exactly. Reducing risk at one moment means enhancing risk at another moment. Yep. But I think that you could have reduced, re- created an overall reduction in risk by taking the line where you have two counter spells by letting the chain resolve. I mean, just t- I to me, it. yeah, he would have. What would have actually happened is he would have resolved the chain, then he would have duressed you, and then you would have. He would have taken what the force. He, he wouldn't and then have duressed you. He wouldn't have duressed you. So if he does duress you, then he he can either he has only lotus take the plus. Yeah, he he wouldn't. He would just right. and and you're back. Then next turn, you you would have obviously been able to click away the the dark petition or the duress and been in great shape. Yeah, um, I would have drawn but, click for the turn, and then I would have 
I would have debated you've whether a, or not I needed to a, keep up Flusterstorm here. You've, you've made a strong defense of your play. I just think even from an objective perspective, it's not it's not the route I would have gone. Well, but but it, it's impossible it, to be objective, it, of course. You, our, our two perspectives yeah. are too you, different. If you <laughs> if you do you you still it sounds like you still feel like you you made the uh it's hard to say the right play, but you it's a defensible play. It but. is, but I have to I have to say that just letting the chain resolve is obviously the safer play, meaning it yeah. it, it dramatically increases the odds that this game is going to go past this turn. <laughs> right. But I also I also had confidence in how I had read his hand and I believed that my reading of the situation was correct and he basically drew one of a very short list of cards that allows him to just win from that position. I yeah. I honestly thought because well, I, I mean see, he obviously I think didn't the, have that's the point I that's the point I disagree on. Well, hold on. I think about think, think about how the yeah. prior turn went. The prior turn was the same it was Lotus Petal. It go. was Lotus. Yeah. No. Well, okay. Yeah. It was Lotus Petal. Go. Sorry. But this, it was the same mana configuration and the same number of cards in hand. And he passed the turn. Well, meaning, well, hold he on. Could, meaning, yeah. If he had, if he had ancestral and also I win the game, he would have done it. If he had, no. yes. On the prior turn, if he had, I can ancestral you and still win the game if it's countered, he would have gone for it. But he, well, he knew that he knew that you had Flusterstorm and Force, right? But yeah. he did not know that you had Misstep. He did not know that you had misstep, and so um, yeah. When he on his on your turn, he when he when he played the ancestral and you ran misstep, that was an unknown factor. Yeah. Um. So I could see why he would want to. Um, I guess. I yeah, guess. I mean, maybe it, look, I'm misremembering look, if, exactly how many you, cards were if, in my hand. If he resolves that ancestral, and because if you did not have misstep there, yeah, and he resolves the ancestral. Well, it wasn't going to resolve. It, it was no, but okay, I was he going plays to force it if I didn't it. He plays the ancestral, and you have to either if you don't have misstep, you have to force or fluster it. Yeah. Um, then, then we're back to where we are. Except I don't can, have cards in hand. Yeah, and, you're both in top deck he, mode. He still he doesn't win that, that game if he doesn't draw dark petition right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that's true. If the inc- if he can duress first, though, well, the ancestral still is not going to resolve because you have three counter spells. Yeah. Anyway, let's let's move off from this. I, <laughs> we I should move on. Point, I, 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 think I clearly that, acknowledge I, that that countering the the ch- the chain was a risk. I knew it at the time, and I just figured that yeah. I read his. No, it sounds like properly. it was a cal- yeah. It sounds yeah. like it was a calculated risk. I think that the, the the it sounds like after unpacking this, the fundamental point of disagreement is I think that there are more cards he could have drawn in that turn that would have exposed you. I think that you're, there are more <laughs> top decks he could have drawn than you you're acknowledging. I think it's a much higher percentage. Well, I was I was trying to I was trying to get you to commit to an actual number, but you seem well, unwilling to do if, so. If I look at it, I mean, if I look at his 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 deck, I'll sure I'll go ahead and say that I think it's. Um, How many dark petitions did he have? I don't remember. I don't remember. What it was two, three, or four? He didn't have. He uh, didn't have that many. But I would. I would. What? He didn't have that many. He only one. I think he had one or two. Oh, I did say two, three, or four. So yeah, I think it's you know, look, any of the draw sevens. If he has a, if he, sorry, if he any, if he if he has a, a draw seven in hand and he's a, a land, then that 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 turns a lot of things on. I think there's a lot more. I think if you add DT, any of the dark petitions, Yog will, uh, you know, cards that that get you closer to a more stronger stronger position. If he has dark ritual and cabal ritual and arrest, then necropotence is is a potentially game winning play there as well. I think there's a lot more than you're giving him credit for. I think it's much higher. Well, at any rate, I I thought the I, odds I'll give you were a with me. I think it's probably I think it's probably actually like let's say ten ten out of sixty, yeah. whatever ten cards. Yeah, I decided to take those odds. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's I think that's you know it's it's it reminds me of the risk of harm is very low, but the consequences of the harm is quite great if the if the odds I get you. turn out against you and I get you. 
and I think that this is the kind of scenario where even if the 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 odds are low, the gravity of the harm is so significant that you have to do whatever you can to avoid that that risk. <clears throat> well, so. if you take the odds to be in my favor, and the result <laughs> of my and the result of my winning that particular interaction is basically winning the game. Yeah, it actually turns out to be even bigger than that, right? If you win that match, then you probably you have better chances of getting to game getting to match four with yep. a, a two one lead and, and so on and so forth. You're right? But yeah, I, I just I think I'm more risk averse than you are. I mean, everyone knows I'm like a hyper conservative player, so I would everyone knows I would I would have maximized my counter magic at that moment. Yeah, and you're you're somewhat famous for discarding your win conditions in VSL <laughs> to maximize my counter magic. On, in, yeah, in I am I am a little more a little more risky player than you are, <clears throat> but that's not okay, saying much, right? I mean, that's yeah. Like, <laughs> It's 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 inches, not feet. Let's let's go to match two. All right. So here we're talking about I'm on the play. I'm on outcome against an unknown opponent. And I honestly don't even remember how game one began. It was a little bit of a haze. Uh, my I know that my draw was not very explosive. I didn't cast paradoxical outcome in any of the games where I played it. I know that this was this the game that I won with Tinker into Colossus or that was that game two? Uh, Must have been game no, two. that was game. That was game one. You won with Tinker into Colossus. Oh, okay. You, you, what okay. you did was you, you, you played Vampiric Tutor for Tinker, and then off of on, on turn two, yeah. yeah, because he played Deathrite Shaman on the first turn of the first four games we played of this matchup. Right. I remember that being a little bit annoyed that I would like for him to have a slower start since <laughs> apparently he was not fully powered, which I did into it. Yeah. But um, yeah, yeah so, played, so I played. Yeah, I think he, I played Seed of the Synod and a Cantrip, and then he played Deathrite, and I played a Fetchland. No, you played Seed of the Synod. Oh yeah, you played Fetchland, and then you you tinkered away the Seed of the Synod for Blightsteel, and then won well, the game. And this is the game where you specifically referred to the fact that he had two Null Rods in his hand neither. and didn't play one on turn neither. two, even though I had played a Seed of the Synod right. on he, one. He played the Dark Confidant instead, <laughs> which is an interesting choice. What do you think? I, I mean, I if you're on a multi null rod deck, I can't even begin and your opponent to goes C to the synod, I can't even begin to explain that one, Kevin. <laughs> I guess he, I guess he just assumed that the game was going to go longer than it was. Yeah, but I can't imagine making that choice in that particular game state when, when I have, yeah, when I just have C to the synod and flooded strand, and you have the opportunity to play null rod. Game two, you know, maybe he was, maybe he was thinking I had mana drain. Yeah, game game one was pretty straightforward. Game two was really interesting. Now I have to say my commentary suffered because I was kind of demoralized from the fact that he was playing this like Null Rod Ancient Grudge deck. I was like, <laughs> you know, feeling really really bad for you, especially because I had recommended my you know the the, the paradoxical deck I played, you know, against Rich Shea, yeah. and I was like, Keeping- I was really I was felt really bad, but the way that the game actually played out, you actually could have won the game. But I yeah. talked with you afterwards, and obviously there was a, a Magic Online setting problem that you encountered. Well, this is just my experience, inexperience with Magic Online. So this game was very resource denial intensive on Reed's part. He ancient grudged multiple artifacts to keep me off of Mox Opals. Yeah. And fortunately, I just, he I drew just kept two ancient lands, grudges. fortunately. <laughs> yeah. He ancient grudged me multiple times, and he was eating away at my life total with Deathrite Death Shamans. And I, of course, I drew Snapcaster Mage in the face of double Deathrite Shaman and dig through time. But so I was having a hard time doing anything except just trying to keep my head above water mana wise. But there was one point in turn, I don't know, four or five, something like that, when he's double draining me with Deathrite's turn over turn. And I'm able to instigate Deathrite activations on my turn and then play Time Walk to get another turn. And after I'd cast Time Walk, just in the act of going to my, my, you know, my next turn, 
I passed, and in my end step, he started ancient grudging me. Well, turns out I've got this dig through time in my hand, and I, I had access to like th- three mana because yeah. I had I couldn't cast the dig on my turn. But if he grudges me, it suddenly gives me enough cards to right. dig. Problem is, and this is just it's just my fault. Sorry, everybody. I don't play Magic Online very much. But I was thinking like you do in paper. I was thinking, okay, this ancient grudge is going to let me dig. I'm going to have enough cards, so I just need to wait for it to resolve, and then I can dig. Well, unfortunately, on Magic you Online, if you want to, you have to if you want stop. to wait for something to resolve, you have to have. <laughs> I was about to say, in the past, you have to have set a stop. That's not true. You, but you have to add a stop if we didn't have one so in order for you to get priority during your end step. So I was just playing like I would in paper. Yeah, your ancient card resolves. Here, let me pull this. Oh, wait. Now it's my draw step. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, great. Well, that's just super. And, that was probably a game-losing error. And then you brainstormed into Mentor, Amox, and Tinker or something. And- it was uh, preordained. Because so I, I was able to dig on my turn, having yeah. had the new cards in my graveyard found a whole bunch of stuff that didn't help at all unfortunately uh, but i found i kept preordained mana vault or something i was just desperation yeah. at that point well, you, and i preordained into tinker and mentor and some other cards so it's not clear because we don't know what the order of the dig cards were but there is a yeah. good chance that you would have been able to dig into mentor and a mox and just go off on your next turn that is resolve well, you, you could you can guarantee that the the mentor and the tinker were under the seven dig. You cards. had lightsteel in your ha- could, hand, so the tinker was less important. But you did see brainstorm. Yeah. You did have brainstorm. Yeah, I know. So um, it is it is a sure thing that tinker and and mentor were not going to be in my dig, because I drew a card and then cast dig, right. and then saw those right. cards with ponder. Right. So they were at least the, eight, the at least the ninth and or higher further down. But what but, it does mean is I wouldn't have wasted some mana, and I might have been able to outcome for two. That's, I'm sorry, that's what on it my was. Turn. You would have been able to outcome could, and then into the mentor and replay yeah. the mentor with with generate some monks, probably. But, uh, it's not clear though if I would have had the mana to do that, that because I had two dual lands and a seed of the synod and an opal, and um, and I would have had to on my on my second turn from time walk, I would have had to cast mana vault off of uh, seat. Then I could tap mana vault and opal to outcome for two. That would theoretically, theoretically, draw me into Mentor. It's not a sure thing because Mentor could have been the third card down there. So if that draws me into Mentor, I still just have two mana. I could play the Mana Vault, play the Opal, and then cast Mentor and have maybe Brainstorm in my hand. I think yeah. I might have been able to. Uh, um, I think I think I might have been able to establish a Mentor plus a Monk, yes, which would yes. have been enough and to then, at least keep me alive. And then the alive. following turn, you would have been able to explode. Um, no, no, because no. I had no other action in my no, but, hand. Wait, okay, I had sorry, let me, let me back up. The brainstorm though could have put the blightsteel back, and then you could have tinkered. It wasn't a brainstorm, Steve. It was oh, a ponder. I'm sorry. Okay, I saw those three cards with ponder. Got it. Yeah, that's right. So I would have still had blightsteel in my hand. I would have put tinker third down, probably, maybe. I don't know. I could tinker into top. So I guess, it's possible you could have stabilized and then maybe strung survived long enough to to. To then, it's possible I could have stabilized, but keep in mind my life was super low. I was at eight or six or something it, when all this was happening. Really just, from all the it, the death rate draining, it just depends on what what's after that and, and what exactly was in yeah. the in the dig. We just don't. Yeah. So well, I mean, I'm I'm pretty I have a pretty good recollection of what was in the dig because I know I kept mana vault. But, but what ponder. I'm saying is the dig um, would have been a turn earlier. So yeah, I would have been able to get to the mentor. Whether or not I could make use of it after that is a little too hard to speculate because we don't know the sequence of cards. Right. But so that was real unfortunate. I felt super bad about that because that that's just a. I mean, that's just my inexperience uh, with, coming out with, to play with the platform. And, yeah, it's, yeah. It's just, in, in and, essence, you didn't put an end step stop. 
you know, which I which I never did and never will. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> I will. I will. On your, do you have a stop on your own end step? Um, I don't think I would I think w- I wager do. that ninety plus percent of players don't have a stop on their own. Yes, end I step. think I do. That's I would say that's anomalous. Yeah, I'm I'm never going to have a stop on my own end step. <laughs> I'm going to just have to remember this kind of scenario in the future. Um, I think you give up too much time equity by having a stop in your own end step. Well, if you have listeners yeah. respond to us and let us know, do you have a stop in your own end step? <laughs> that seems weird to me. But but anyway, I, I want to set up though what has just happened though is going into game three of this match. I have seen Deathrite Shamans, um, Ancient Grudge, and Dark Confidant, and so that's kind of it. We haven't had that much interaction in this match. I think he might have wastelanded me. So I am assuming that he's in some kind of Leovold based four color bug control list. I'm assuming he has Jace the Mind Sculptor, maybe Green Sun Zenith, uh, probably Dak Fade, and he's probably on one of the four-color Dak lists. And so I'm thinking I'm playing against a Pyroblast kind of deck that uh, it, the house has Ancient Grudge and decided to bring him in against Outcome, which is totally reasonable. I haven't seen Leovold. I haven't seen Force of Will. I haven't seen Nullrod at this point in our match. He just beat me with Deathrite Shamans in Game 2 and Ancient Grudges. So then Game three happens, and I'm still boarded as though it's one of those kind of matchups, you know, four color Leo deck kind of things. Assuming he has force of wills. And Steve, what's your what's your recollection or notes from how game three started? Because well, it's all a blur to me now. <laughs> um, you know, to be honest, Kevin, my notes are pretty sparse on this game. It was just so so demoralizing. I, I don't actually remember how it played out per se. Um, the only uh, go ahead. Well, let me let me. The only thing I remember is that you drew Flusterstorm and you had Flusterstorms, and I was bemoaning the fact that I wish you had Vampiric Tutor instead of that Flusterstorm because he had no Force of Wills, which you didn't know at the time. But my my strong feeling was that against this like heavy Ancient Grudge deck, which you did see a lot of, your best plan for victory against his creatures is just to speed out Tinker. And so I felt really, you know, that was one of the of all the plays that you made. That sideboarding decision was one of the ones I most strenuously disagreed with, and I made I said it several times on the stream. Well, had I known the actual configuration of his deck, I would completely have agreed with you. I would have had Vamp in, and I would have had uh, Vamp for Tinker as one of my primary strategies, especially in the face of all those Null Rods. But also, it would have been very hard to sideboard because I didn't ever, ever, in, five, in, in three post-sideboard games, Actually, four post-sideboard games, kind of, because... Uh, no, the first one from match four isn't post-sideboard. But at three possible opportunities, I never brought in Fragmentize in this matchup. I brought in Comball in this matchup because I had him pegged as another control deck, another Force of Will deck. That Comball was going to be good as a way to win a long game. Yeah, And that was... Again, I was doing that all the way until our fifth game with, with each other because I didn't know any <laughs> right. of the things that made right. his deck what it was. Yeah. So you chose a strategic line based upon information you had, but yeah, yeah. exactly. I, 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 and I didn't, I didn't get the countervening information until our fifth games, the last <laughs> game of the finals. Right, right. interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> well, yeah, that was that was brutal. Let's let's switch to the third match. I mean, that was the one that you, I mean, played some really extra- <laughs> extraordinary magic. T- tell the one that I won. Yeah, the one that you won, but you also had some great plays and and some tough math, well, really, in the workshop mirror. <laughs> I mean, workshop mirrors are just like this, right? You you get into a scenario where you've got two or three creatures, your opponent's got three or four creatures. Do I even have a profitable attack? Do I die on the swing back? The uh, the ominous what happens if they draw ballista question. 
this this is where the skill of workshop mirrors comes into play and it is not my strength it's not the the majority of my experience is not with workshop mirrors i have experience playing against workshops from basically every other perspective (laughs) except the mirror and but i felt good about the way i had built my deck based on the results of champs and it was a very very low to the ground and i really thought that this kill switch technology (laughs) was good (laughs) i felt it especially was good with the low to the ground strategy because the one of the things that gets trumped in the workshop mirror is if your opponent is able to go bigger if they can get down their precursor and or worm coil engine it's really hard to trump that and this kill switch method is one where you can so i was feeling really good about that turns out uh it it worked but it didn't work for that reason basically it worked just as a tempo play and i really really enjoyed going back and watching the commentary where randy and efro didn't even know how kill switch would work <laughs> and so they're like well if it works like this it's going to be great oh it doesn't work, <laughs> doesn't like, work that. like that i guess it, i guess it's not so good why is this card any good and then i keep using it and they're like oh well i guess if you can do this every turn it's okay and it was funny to in 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 the repeat viewing watch them catch up to the technology as i was applying it but the simple truth is is that in both of our games we both had pretty strong draws multi-mana lands in fact i think we, we had two of them each in game one multiple wastes and strips and i just drew what i needed to deploy my spells i drew academy which was a slow burn mind you i had to play chalice for zero just to, to fuel it in game one <clears throat> and this is the game where we both still had our spheres in and sure enough the game ends with both of us having spheres or at least having cast them but my mana situation ended up better than his after all the wasting and stripping was done and then in games two and three it was it was a little bit more of that, but especially game three featured that that fantastic, fantastic kill switch interaction, <laughs> which I felt really good about. And Randy, it's for, to his credit, by the end of game three, Randy had surmised, hey, wait a second, this kill switch is really good when you are just chipping in damage and you get your opponent into scenarios where they have limited outs, very few outs, especially if you happen to draw Ravager or Ballista. But obviously, that's the strength of the deck. But but in the midterm, there's this period of time where you just get to damage them for chip damage, and that, and they don't get to damage you back because of the effect right. of the the, right. the the kill switch. Yeah, it was hard to see exactly how that was all going to play out because you know there were some times where it was like the kill switch. I mean, obviously, you need to be able to attack <laughs> to get the value so that you can tap your things right, and it's just it the sequencing really matters, right? Because yeah. you don't want to like tap well, down your own steel overseer and not be able to use it. At the same time, it really, I think there was one point where you didn't tap a mox that you needed to tap just to draw mana from it so it wasn't affected by the kill switch, right? Do you recall that? Well, the kill switch taps the mox. Right, but there was so. a point where, but, but the problem is the kill switch taps the mox, but it causes things not to untap yep. if the kill switch tapped it. So I think there was one point where you, you had a mox in play that you didn't tap that you should have, right? Uh, Used I bef- think I ended up not using that mana that turn because right. if I so remember correctly, just, that was a turn I played a second workshop and played a ballista. So you should have just tapped the mocks anyway. But then there was this whole yeah. thing was is like with his wastelands whether you'll be able to even act to be able to activate the kill switch. So it was kind of like well, a high risk, high reward play on the sense. Like, there was the, there was absolutely that tension, and I drew I drew the lands I needed over time. But I would point out that the fact that I was able to kill switch in several times at intervening turns bought me that time so yes you can get into scenarios whereby if they waste you 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 can't feed the kill switch with just moxen that's the truth you need to have an ancient tomb or you need to have two non-shop lands but on the flip side 
those are the kind of lands that you usually have the most control over whether or not you have them, right? Because the workshops are such lightning rods for their wastes. That, yeah. And also, I'm boarding in another land. I'm boarding in a ghost quarter, so I've, I'm, I'm increasing my ability to activate it. And I have found in testing that you didn't need many kill switch activations, but if things <laughs> went south and they were outdrawing you, you can just stop them from killing you. Assuming you have either two lands or the one ancient tomb, they just don't get to attack you for every time you can activate the switch. And then every time you draw a creature, it just gets to hit them, and then it becomes tapped forever. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously this is more complicated by things like Revoker and Wastelands in, in, in actual matches, but I think game three of our match really demonstrated that technology. <laughs> interesting. Yeah. And, and game two had, game two ended up being not that interesting because I just couldn't deploy all my spells. Um, and he ended up getting the advantage with, with Foundry Inspector and, and Chief of the Foundry. But games one and three both had really interesting combat math scenarios where I think Reed navigated navigated very very well and i just had one more tool that he couldn't defeat but game one was really interesting uh parry and feint with regard to arc bound ravagers (laughs) and where you move the counters and how much you sacrifice i I had too much material for him to overcome but i think he made the most of what he had and the same goes for game three he had some really interesting choices in game three vis-a-vis when to deploy the cards in his hand his sequencing involving metamorph and involving gta and you know his waste and stripped and ghost quarter it was really riddled with interesting choices on his part and i didn't appreciate how decision intensive it was in in the match obviously i I couldn't see his hand and it looked like he just deployed threats every turn but honestly he had a ton (laughs) of choices that game and it's a really our game three match three was a really interesting one for workshop aficionados to rewatch. so vsl match three of the finals is something to look at if you want to better appreciate the subtleties and nuances of the workshop mirror as well as the yeah. really challenging decisions that are frequently encountered Pr- yes, pretty paradigmatic <laughs> so unfortunately the the finals ended with a fizzle instead of a bang because <laughs> we go into match four and the most interesting thing about it is deck selection yeah <laughs> <laughs> which you and i have already discussed so we don't need to review that anymore um and i think you as you said reed had something of an advantage and I took the defensive stance, and he took the stance that was, I think, most um, surprising. And it's not, the matchup is not one that I that I have strong feelings about because it's two mid rangey, I guess I would say, blue decks going against each hmm. other. But I was still at a considerable considerable disadvantage because I didn't know what his deck was yeah. configured like. Yeah, you were you were really and in the dark. I thought as soon as he played that Deathrite Shaman, I thought, oh. This is good for me. I'm a Remora deck in a blue mirror. This Remora is going to pay off. No. Yeah. I, I play my Remora, and his hand has has creatures. only creatures, basically, <laughs> including Leovold, which you hadn't seen yet. Well, Leovold didn't come down until the game was over. He played he played Bob on the next turn, right? And then didn't play another non-creature spell until my Remora left. <laughs> yeah, which is super anomalous for that deck. And I had top going. Now I, I did have to counter a Null Rod in the midst there, and. Again, I did not read him for being a four null rod deck. I, I read that as that's my one main deck null rod, maybe you know, one or two, maybe just to get some extra value against outcome. Um, I did not read him as a four null rod deck. And so when we went to sideboard, I, I, I don't even know if he kept them in, but I just kind of mulled into a crappy hand in game game two. And it was not a, a very competitive game. I think I had one permanent for most of that game, but it was really, really interesting. The structure of the whole thing. Led to a very interesting nexus at the beginning of match four 
which did not really manifest as interesting magic, really, in my in my estimation. Yeah. But I think it was still a fascinating structure and an interesting thing to decompose. And for those of you who enjoy the the play, I I can honestly tell you I don't remember any of what I was topping into <laughs> in game one there because there were no lands. I was just yeah. desperately wanted a land. And if you recall, I fetched a basic mountain because he had destroyed my outcome mana base so much that I was expecting that he was heavier on wastelands. Well, it turns out he really kind of wasn't. But I respected his wastelands enough that I, and I only had access to the one land at the time. So I fetched a mountain. And after my shuffle, there was just another, there was never another land on top. I, I think, I don't remember if I ever played another land that game. I mean, it's interesting for all, right. all the complexity that sometimes arises, sometimes vintage just resolves to the simplest thing. Like, I didn't draw yeah. a second land. You know, it's like, or <laughs> I drew a Remora, I played Remora, and he's playing all creatures. You know, it's yeah. like, <laughs> well, I would, I would make a specific uh, support of that statement to direct our listeners back to Reed's article from a few years back about lineup theory. Did you read that? No, I've article? never heard of it. Well, this is a good he plug. wrote about the concept. Yeah, he wrote the con about the concept of how your cards line up with your opponents. Meaning, um, if we both play our cards just into each other, like I've got, I've got creatures, you've got forces, I've got creatures, you've got swords to plowshares, I've got this, you've got that. When the dust settles, one of the things similar to assignment of role, you know, yeah. aggro control combo, that kind of thing. Similar to that is one's understanding of what is the purpose of all of my cards yeah. in this matchup. And when vintage decks are nothing if not slaves to efficiency, <laughs> we, 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 we tow such a, a fine line for, I've got this one sideboard card for this specific scenario or this specific card or this specific matchup. <clears throat> there are many vintage decks, mostly the blue ones, but many vintage decks have these kind of features. And what you just observed, I think, is another way of observing the fact that all of my cards in that particular game, game one of match three, up uh, match four, excuse me, lined up terribly. Yeah. I, I yeah. mean, I had great magical cards that did not do what I needed them to do because of the nature of the matchup, which I still did not fully right. understand, mind you, right. as well as the, the particular sequence of draws. And that's just the kind of thing you, you invite when you play a card well, like Mystic Remora. I haven't read... Uh, reads uh, article, nor am I familiar with that theory, but I get, I get the concept. Sure. You know, in my ways of thinking, I, I, you know, in my gush book, I have a pretty detailed formula that divides up between what I call ultimate strategic objectives, intermediate strate- strategic objectives, and tactics. And tactics I define as things that either support and reinforce your strategic objectives or disrupt mm-hmm. And, and 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 slow the opponent's attempts to achieve their own. So yeah. in, in my conceptualization, um, disruptive cards are generally of a tactical nature. That is, their yeah. primary purpose is either to protect and reinforce your strategic objectives or even more likely to disrupt your opponents. In some sense, though, that lineup theory, assimilating that or mapping that into my the structure I just articulated, it's hard to know whether we're talking at like a strategic level or a tactical level, because in a strate- from a strategic perspective, the reason I was really bummed is because he's playing a Nullrod Ancient Grudge deck against a deck that is, you know, as Ephro says, has like 30 artifacts in it. So Yeah, you're talking about match, match two, two, of course. And yeah. so it's like, you know, there's just a fundamental... And I do say this, I say sometimes tactical plays can achieve strategic significance. So like, mm-hmm. for example, if you play, if you deploy a Leyline of the Void against Dredge, protecting it then becomes a strategic objective because it so impacts your opponent's ability to achieve their strategic objectives. So actually, it, it interfaces at a strategic level. 
Um, it's it's hard to know. It's hard to make sense of you know this lineup theory. Obviously, playing creatures into Remora is is like Remora is a strategic objective, but only if your opponent has a lot of non-creature spells, right? <laughs> so, right. And, and Nullrod is a strategic objective, and if your opponent, you know, it's a tactic, but it requires a strategic significance if you're playing a deck like our mentor, Paradoxical Mentor deck. Yeah, well, and game, <laughs> boy, game one of match four uh, elucidates this, sorry, demonstrates this perfectly with the Shattering Spree that I had main deck in that Remora deck <laughs> when he announced Null Rod on turn two, yeah. and my board was like land mox mox, 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 Remora top. Yeah, I hadn't played the second. I had I only played two Mox in there. I ended with four uh. on that board. I had to counter that Remora or that Null Rod, even though you had a mo- red Mox. I, yeah, I had Shattering Spree in my hand. Right, because when I topped, there was no other land. Right, so it turns his Null Rod, which is. At a tactical disadvantage in that matchup, right? It's no better than it is against any other five mox deck, really. Um, it turned it into a huge swing in that particular game because I had to force the situation. it. Situation, and yeah. I died with that shattering spree in my hand because it has no other function in that matchup. Wow! So he yeah. it was like that. Null rod was like at least a three for one for him, and it didn't resolve. <laughs> Which is what this is an example of what we're talking about. I I, I also want to point out that. Ultimately, his deck selection and his his rogue deck construction, this brew that he brought, indirectly won him game two of that match also because, and this is hard to see unless you're willing to sit and pause the video, but I mulliganed a seven-card hand in game two that had something like four lands and fire spouts and preordain or something else. I mulliganed that hand because I thought it was garbage against another control deck. Like, if he just lands Jace on turn three or two, I, my hand had nothing to say about that. I was still approaching that deck as though it were uh, like a four-color control deck, where that four-land fire spout hand would have just decimated his Bob plus Pyroblast hand in game two. <laughs> but I had no way to know that. So I, I really do think Reed should get a lot of credit for all of the equity that he gained with his deck construction and the matchups and where he put it in his three, I think... You know, obviously, there's a lot of factors that go into winning this finals, but I think that one has been overlooked by a lot of people in their analysis of the whole thing. I give him a lot of credit for that. It's yeah. also a very brave choice. Yes, that's- it takes guts to bring a deck with zero force of wills. <laughs> it really does to, to a vintage match. You know, the finals of a league against another vintage player. It takes guts, and he did it, and it paid off. Well, any final thoughts on? I mean, I, I guess we have to just you know, I have to personally congratulate you on an incredible run. Um, and not only that, you know, just your success and your visibility in the vintage community. And, you know, you've been, um, and I couldn't help but root for you. And I, I'm not embarrassed about that. I'm disappointed <laughs> that, uh, that so many people were mad at me about it. And, um, I, I mean, I, the vintage community is, is very vocal and a lot of we, people have a lot of different opinions about how things should be in the grand scheme of well, things. We so gotta, I'm not surprised that some people were well, we gotta, complaining. Well, we got to support our own. You know, I just think that the yeah. vintage super league obviously has a bigger audience than the vintage community. Um, I just think a lot of the people who right. were complaining didn't, didn't realize that. Um, but, but the, but you know, you, you did great on in the league. You did great at wonderful on commentary. Um, it was a pleasure to see your deck selection in the brew, part of the Brewers Challenge. I loved, I loved, you know, this is a this is a really epic and memorable vinyls. And um, 
and look forward to more vintage super leagues with you in them. So we have a lot more ground to cover for, for 2017, but I want to give you the chance to have any final thoughts. Well, thank you for all of that. I appreciate it. I had a great time. I was going in. My goal was to have a good time, play some fun decks. I accomplished that and won a whole bunch of games too. So it was just more than I could have expected. Every one of my opponents was fantastic. I mean, I had a great time, yourself included. Our match was really, was really fun and interesting. <laughs> and our ma- yeah, uh, Ant versus Pumpkin Spice was another fun one to watch. So I- I'm just grateful for everyone involved, uh, Randy, especially for for bringing me on board. It's funny. I said on commentary at one point that I thought my matchup against commentary was better than my matchup against my opponent. I don't think that, that was when I was only yeah. three. <laughs> Obviously, in hindsight, that didn't really turn out to be the case. But I will say that win, lose, or draw, if I get invited back, the commentary is just a great sense of of fun and joy for me. And I really enjoy that aspect of it, too. So uh, it was a great experience. I hope to be back. And uh, congratulations to you as well for its fifth place, yeah, right? Yeah, defeating Riche. Uh, <laughs> official fifth place. We, so we, I th- well, I, I don't, I'm not embarrassed to say this, but we used to have a, uh, a saying on Team Mean Deck, which, of course, is no longer <laughs> uh, active. Um, it's kind of a defunct team uh, now that it's <laughs> the only remnant members who are active are me, you, and, and Paul. But we don't, you know, just the, the team just, we don't actually... We don't have an active team anymore, but um, yeah. we used to have a saying at the old Mean Deck opens and at the at the uh, Star City Games things: beat Rich Shea or find a ride home. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I managed to do that this this time. Well, congratulations on a good performance, and it was a very entertaining match between the two of you. Yeah, and pretty pretty I'm, cool I'm just, set of set of games we played. Yeah, I'm just pretty pleased that in the first VSL where you and I are both participating. That our finishes were second and fifth. That's that's pretty <laughs> yeah. good. I feel good about that. Pretty I good. Mean, I, I don't I don't aspire to have an average finish the likes of Efros that went down with his third place this season. I, so yeah, Efro is, is unbelievable, and obviously <laughs> he's made the playoffs every time. But I, I have you know more than just rooting for you. I was really hoping to see a, a quote unquote vintage player rather than a Magic Pro win again because I think I'm the only person to win the VSL who isn't either a Hall of Famer or a Pro. So. Yeah, true. No, the- That's true. But and I, I agree with your your um your sentiment there. But I must admit that players like Reduke and LSV and Efro, they have a lot of There's vintage no cred, yeah. right? Yeah, they just happen to also be amazing at every other format of Magic, which you know we're, we're almost citing as a as a fault, <laughs> yeah. but it, it's clearly not, yeah. right? And, and if these people were not um. I think I speak for a lot of players that if they were not also great at other formats and just on teams and and consist consistently successful, that they would still be passionate magic players about their formats of choice. And in some cases, that would be vintage, too. So cool. So no, I, I agree with your sentiment there. I don't begrudge these uh, fantastic pro members of the community from doing so well in the VSL because we need that, right? That's part of the purpose of the league is to be entertaining, show what highly skilled players bring to the format, and... And have good magic as a result. Yeah. I think we and, had that. And this innovative season. decks too. I think the, the Brewers Challenge works yep. well. All right. And I, I hope Randy continues with so it. So here we go. We got a lot more to cover, and uh, here we go. Since we've already covered the VSL, which bookends the year, we're going to take the rest of the year out of chronological order. 
uh, we're going to first do is look at some of the biggest events, and then we'll talk about some happenings in vintage, if you will. You know, every year in the history of the format, as I have been writing about, is layered with all these interesting tournament results. And typically, especially in the last decade, maybe decade and a half, there are up to half a dozen really like marquee national, international, or large regional events. And beneath that is like a layer of really interesting mid-level regional events and then small local events. And 2017 is is no different. The big events from the year, which we're going to revisit, are Eternal Weekend Europe, which had the European Vintage Championship, the NYSE 5, Midsummer in New York, which was really interesting. The Manadrain Open 18, also known as the Waterbury, which was in April. Um, and of course, the North American Eternal Weekend. Those are the big four events of the year. There was a, a regional event that, that's worth noting as well, which was the Eternal Extravaganza 7, which we'll touch on. And then we'll get to the other things that happened in the year after that. But let's, let's just turn to these events first. Um, Kevin, let's start with Eternal Weekend Europe, which was at the Bazaar of Moxon. Mm-hmm. Um, that was an interesting event. And one of the reasons it was interesting is because in March, just before this event, the DCI wrote a note saying it was not going to do anything in Vintage, although they discussed possible action in Vintage. But they wanted to see the results of this event. And specifically, they felt this event was going to give them a lot of data. <laughs> yeah. Remember? So Yeah, there's a lot of interactions between the topics for our review here and this yeah. one as pertains to banner restricted policy is interesting yeah so but let's let's just take a look at a ter- european eternal weekend so your Europe, european eternal weekend ultimately had 152 players which by the way is i think like 20 or 30 players if not more than the than eternal weekend uh the than the european vintage championship the year before in 2016 mm-hmm. and the top eight was something of a surprise if you recall kevin uh the top eight had Three workshop aggro decks, one white Eldrazi deck, one Leovold bug control, one Grixis control, and two mentor decks. But here's the thing about the mentor decks. One of them had one gush and the other one had multiple gush. So there was only one multi gush <laughs> mentor deck in the top eight and only two mentor decks overall. Well, and the multi gush one only had three gush. So yeah. And the top four actually had zero gush and zero mentor, right? Yep. It was it was two workshops, one White Aldrazi and one B- Bug Leovold. And the winner was, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Joaquin Solis mm-hmm. playing so. White Eldrazi. Which is, uh, on the year, the highest profile finish for White Eldrazi. N- yeah, yeah, I mean... It, and actually, I mean, it, it, there are some I mean, other... I- there are some other noteworthy performances in the events we're going to discuss, but this really kind of marks the beginning of the decline, honestly. Right. I played <laughs> it in the VSL, you know, a lot of matches in that last chance qualifier to the finals. Mm-hmm. But we didn't see a lot of White Eldrazi after after this point. I mean, it was kind of the this you're right, this was kind of the the last gasp, but he crushed this field. I mean, he he beat all these workshop aggro players in, in the blue decks. Yep. Um in this top 8, 152 players. That's a very impressive Taxing decks just crushed this event, and they they did do a metagame breakdown. As we we saw, the taxing decks were were we estimated probably around twenty five twenty six percent of the field. Mentor in total was only twenty percent, and then coming out of this event, there were some restricted, surprising restricted list changes, which we'll get to. <laughs> but that was that was the first kind of big event of the year besides the VSL, big paper tournament for sure. Yeah. The next was the Manadrain Open eighteen, which has become less of a national event and more of a regional event, I would say. Yeah. Um, it always had a, a regional focus, but it, 
it's in some cases it drew more national attendance. Um, this year it was held in April 22nd, which was also interesting timing because it was <laughs> it was a week before the big the next big restriction. So it was right. really the last event in which we had kind of that meta game, right? It was after right. the restrictions announcement, but before before the restrictions took effect. And 115 players went to Oakville, Connecticut for this uh, this this event. And Ray Robillard, who we've interviewed in in in, in a past show, uh, who who organized these events, always organizes a really community focused event. So he has like trivia categories, you know, a lot of fun um, side events and, and stuff. It's really designed to be fun, you know, to kind of have a party atmosphere. Um, but once again, you know, a big paper event. And it, the metagame, the overall metagame was really similar to the European Vintage Championship. Mentor was 19% of the field. Gush decks had a slightly larger share. They were 21.7% of the field. Workshops were 23.5%, although taxing overall was 30% of the field. Paradox of Outcome was 10%. Oath was 8 and Dredge was 6%. And, and Matt Murray and Ryan Ebenhart calculated the win percentages of all the decks. And Shops had the overall highest win percentage at 64%, whereas Gush were actually sub-50%. At forty six point eight percent win percentage, mm-hmm. the top eight though uh, was Andy Perbasco and a- a- Andy Farias with Just Guide Mentor. Although ironically, they finished uh, seventh and eighth place <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> in the top eight. Um, and there were three shop decks and a tribal Eldrazi, which kind of m- mirrors the uh, the European Vintage Championship, right? Yep, <laughs> Except yep, yep. it's a tribal. There was white Eldrazi, a dredge deck, and one paradoxical Alchem deck. And the finals was a Ravager shop mirror. So the the um, Taxing decks won the first two big tournaments of the year in in, Mar- in in April, both in April. Yeah, and the and the top eights had very similar ratios for their their construction. Yeah, and the overall metagames were very very similar. Mm-hmm. And then of course there was a huge restriction after that, which we'll get to. We'll get to. The next big event was the NYSE Five, which is organized by Nick Detweiler. It's an annual event uh, so far. And what's unique about this event is that it's got a huge top heavy prize pool. So it's got the top 16 in the past has gotten the top eight's all gotten power and the top 16 gets either a bizarre Baghdad or a Mishra's workshop, which in today's markets is quite, quite good prize prizing. Yeah. Uh, they did change it this year so that the bottom half of the top 16, I think, got dual lands instead of bizarres, if it, something like that. I don't, Dude, they removed out. They took drains out or shoot. I don't remember. I thought he were, I thought he moved some mana drains into the prize, prize pool because they were less than the yeah, bizarres in the shops, something, something like that. Something was moved, but the top eight yeah. still got power. Uh, I should know because I won Ancestral Recall. <laughs> <laughs> um, the this NYSE though, but the way he counterbalances that is that the the entry started out as a hundred dollars a pop and is now one hundred twenty five. And what's interesting about that is that it really doesn't make a difference, right? Once you tra- factor in travel costs, hotel, yeah. you know, even if you're coming, unless you're actually in New York City, it's the entry fee really does. It could be two hundred dollars, and it's just. You know, it doesn't really matter that much. Well, and anymore, it's yeah, it's not significantly different than the cost to get into uh, vintage champs, right. for example. So exactly, exactly, yeah. and it's got great prizes. So that happened on June 24th in Long Island, and there were 132 players who showed up. They paid 125 dollars a piece, including a cohort of Spaniards, including Rodrigo <laughs> Tagores, who came from Grand Prix Las Vegas the week before. Mm-hmm. And I think the shock was that the metagame was pretty similar to what happened before the April restrictions. Right. Because the taxing decks were 27% of the field. Shops were 23%. That's almost identical to the Waterbury two months before. Mentor was 18% of the field. And Paradoxical decks were 12.3%. The top eight, though, was even more consolidated. It was literally 
four <laughs> workshop aggro decks and four mentor decks. Right. The workshop aggro decks were, you know, all Ravager shops, but the mentor decks were three Jeskai mentor and one paradoxical mentor. Of course, I played um, a Jeskai mentor deck to second place where I lost in the finals to Ryan Glacken, who I beat in round two, but lost in the finals. <laughs> but I got a I got an ancestral recall for my effort. So that was the that was the second biggest tournament of the year so far. Didn't um was was that the match in game three of that finals where Ryan played his whole hand on turn one? Yes, yes it was. <laughs> <laughs> that <laughs> thanks was for epic. reminding me, Kevin. Uh-huh. Thanks for that was pretty thanks epic. for rubbing it in. <laughs> well, well, it's a compliment that it it took his whole hand on turn one to really <laughs> defeat you, Steve. Okay. No. <laughs> I'll take it that way. <laughs> and then the last major event of the year. Um, was, of course, the North American Vintage Championship, which was completely epic. <laughs> I mean, completely <laughs> epic, which, of course, is at Eternal Weekend North America, organized by Nick Koss, and this is his, I can't remember, is this his fourth or fifth Eternal Weekend? Something it must around? be five the, at this The point. first year was 13, so yeah. when Joel Lim, so That's five. Yeah, yeah, it was the fifth, and the this was a huge event. 427 players registered to compete. Wow. So by far the largest vintage event of the year. The second was the European Vintage Championship, followed by the NYSE and then the Waterbury, the Mandarin Open 18. And uh, it was interesting is um, the field was a bit different than what we'd seen before. Shops was only 17% of the field, but Eldrazi was 10%. So the taxing decks overall were 27%, which is actually identical to the Waterbury. <laughs> the taxing were 27%. Um and a large, remember, a large portion of the the uh, Eldrazi budget Eldrazi players were playing Tribal Eldrazi, which was a budget deck. Mm-hmm. The the Xerox or Comer school decks, which were split between Delver and Jeskai Mentor, were only thirteen point six percent of the field, or fourteen percent of the field. In our uh, Eternal Weekend review, we we you know our my predictions were closer to that. You, but we spent some time talking about that. Dredge was ten percent, and Paradoxical Outcome was way down at six percent. But Oath surged to ten percent of the field along with Blue Control, which was nearly 11%. But the the big story coming out of this event was the top eight, which was five Workshop Aggro decks and three Oath of Druid decks, and again, once again, a Workshop Aggro Finals. So, you know, both the Waterbury and the... Um, well, Workshop Aggro won the... It won the Waterbury, it won the NYSE, and it won the North American Vintage Championship, and Tribal Eldrazi won the European Vintage Championship. Mm-hmm. So, Taxing decks won all four of the big events of the year. <laughs> and Eternal Extravaganza was won by Dredge. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so w- w- that was the that was the regional big regional event which was yeah. run by Dredge, which was in the hands of Ryan Glacken. Right. Um so pretty interesting, pretty interesting. How big was the Eternal Extravaganza? I I think it was around 90 some players. I asked someone online. It was about 90 some players. So, pretty cool that we had five you know, 90 plus player vintage events and paper over the course of the year. That sounds about right, Kevin. Um, we didn't, yep. we spent a whole bunch of time talking about the oath decks that they, the other three oath decks that were in the North American vintage championship. But it was clear, I think, in your, in my opinion, that oath was the one deck that was able, capable of both, it was essentially competing with workshops, both mounting a defense with ancient grudge and a resi- resilient mana base and multicolor mana base, and consistent mana. And a quick attack, quick strike attack. Um, and Brian Kelly was brilliant with his, really his Kelly Oath deck. There were two Kelly Oath decks in the top eight. So pretty yeah. cool summary of the year, right? In terms of events. Yeah. And, you know, we have talked about how the 
the metagame interaction with the ban and restricted policy as has really formed the the narrative, the, the larger narrative of this year. But I also want to point out just that how interesting Champs was after all the dust had settled on the restrictions and on restriction, that the Champs top eight, the, the major story, of course, is the dominance by workshops. But we still managed to have an emergent deck in Oath and the, you know, the new breed of Oath with Inferno Titan really have a breakout performance at Champs, too. Right. So every one of these pioneered, events... Pioneered and pushed by Brian Kelly. Exactly. Yeah. Every one of these events had its own little miniature narrative and its contribution to the larger one, which is why yeah. we like to do this kind of review show at the end of the year. And of course, one of the stories which we covered a lot in our last podcast was Andy Markington's just domination. <laughs> I mean, he he top aided this event twice in a row and then won it, beating Rich Shea in the finals, no less. Yeah, really, in a workshop really mirror in a workshop mirror and, and an epic workshop mirror. I don't know if it's the most epic finals we've ever had. I mean, we've had the finals where Paul lost to Dredge because of Chain of Vapor. Yeah, you know, we've had we've had some really crazy finals, but this certainly was up there. Certainly, it was up a there. good one. And it was, it was especially With, interesting from an analytical standpoint, as we've already yes. covered on this show, just because of how it advanced workshop technology to a fine point and threw all of the mirror technology into relief. So we don't need to rehash that ground necessarily right here and now, but it was fascinating from those standpoints. Yeah. the the uh, One of the layers of vintage play that has come to kind of shape the metagame and perception of the format Outside of these paper events that I've, these layers that I've described, is is are the Magic Online events and the, I mean, inaugurating with the the Vintage uh, Holiday Festival a couple of years ago have been these kind of large premiere events and you know for about a year and a half we had the Power Nine Challenge but there were really two big changes to Magic Online this year that I want to meld into this story about how we observe vintage changing on Magic Online. The first was in May when the Wizards announced that they were going to... So remember, these, these premiere events, these once-a-month premiere events, pioneered for Vintage because Rich Shea and I wrote an open letter requesting that Wizards do this, and then not long after, they announced these Power 9 challenges. But they were so successful that they um, adopted the same approach for other formats. So they scheduled a legacy um, challenge and a modern challenge and then we have the vintage challenge and a commander challenge i think and what what they did was they took the monthly power nine challenge and turned it into a weekly vintage challenge and that's a huge change for two reasons one it means that we've got the largest magic online event going from a monthly event to a weekly event and that means more data and more rapid metagame oscillations right kevin right um, but the other change is there was a change in price structure. So part of it is just unfortunately Power Nine just didn't have a lot of value by the end of the Power Nine challenge run, <laughs> you know, like it does in paper. Um, and so the the new formula actually created basically you got your entry fee down to the thirty second place. But sticking on the change here, when we when we were discussing this change, the one reason I was reticent about it or had some apprehension around it was because I was concerned that it would dilute attendance, that is having one big event a month would have higher attendance and more focus and prestige than a, a weekly event, and that I also was afraid that they would have be smaller. And I think that that is, and then, frankly, that I would play less frequently, because when it's once a month, you kind of have to put it on your calendar, and this is a special event that you got you to gotta make time for. 
Right. I think all those predictions have proven true, unfortunately. Uh, just to put that in relief, the Power 9 challenges at the beginning of the year were 62 players in, I believe, March and April, or February and March. At the end of the year, the uh, vintage challenges were what? They were down to what, Kevin? Um, uh, 40 to 50 players on average. Yeah, I mean, we had we had one event that was on December 16th that had only 36 players. Right. So, I mean, you know, it, it oscillates. I mean, the high in the last couple of months was 51 uh, before Thanksgiving, but it's, you know... The median is definitely closer to 40. 40 than 50. Yeah. Whereas at the beginning of the year, it was, you know, more like 60, over 60, around 60, 50 to 60. Yep. So we've lost, you know, about a third of the player base that you would, you know, that's a misrepresentation, but you understand what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> the third of the attendance, you mean? Attendance, but yeah, that we had for the uh, the other event, the the Power 9 Challenge. And I have to admit myself, I've played in, in a, many, a lot fewer of them. In fact, this year, uh, I've played in, I played in the January, February, March, and April Power 9 Challenge. I top aided uh, one of them, and then got 16th in January. I top aided the April event. Um, I got fifth place, and then I played in two vintage challenges since then. I played in the May 27th one, and then I got second place in the June 17th one. So I've only played in two vintage challenges since it's gone to that vintage challenge format. I played in six overall events, so it's it's definitely um, impacted my my interest in attendance. And I, this isn't to say that that that'll be normally the case. I just haven't um, been quite as enthusiastic about it since. Um, but I'm glad to see that it's continued to continue to maintain itself, even if it's plateaued. Well, we, we always want vintage online to be healthy. Yes. And the good news is, is that, that we have established a plateau that, as you said, and there seems to be no reason to believe it will diminish any further. And we've established this plateau through a period of time that is actually the kind of the lull in the year, right? The numbers we just cited are for Q4 which there are no major paper events to plan for. That's true. The, there's there's the uh, vintage champs prep is a long way away. The next NYSE or or Mana Drain Open or Extraordinary Extravaganza are still many months away. So this is really the downtime for vintage. That's and true. We still have an active audience of 40 to 50 players playing consistently. So the metagame continues to evolve. The results from North American vintage champs continue to be iterated on, which shows some health for the format and the community as a whole. I agree. But I think as important as the change from the Power 9 Challenge to the Vintage Challenge is, I think there's an even bigger change that happened this year on Magic Online, and hopefully the listeners are anticipating what I'm about to say. But the institution of the Vintage Leagues has been tremendous. Mm -hmm. Now, it hasn't come without loss. The Vintage Dailies were um, ended at the end of August, and no. In previous shows, we've gotten a lot of data from Vintage Dailies. Yep. Vintage Dailies, you had all the 4-0 and 3-in-1 decks reported, so we had a lot of data, and it was much it was much more granular than what we get from the we got from the monthly Power Nine challenges because you could see kind of like the day to day metagame changes. You know, it was also much more thorough, right? Um, and I, I've, I talked a lot about this um, in you know I talked a lot about what the, the in, I wrote an article at the beginning of the year called Notes on the State of Vintage saying that people are now engaging at vintage at different speeds. There was like the small crowd of people who played in the dailies and compete and like changing tech from almost day to day. Yep. And there's like the people who play like on a more monthly basis, either in the Power 9 challenges or on paper, and the people who engage in a more quarterly basis. 
And there are different needs and different experiences and rhythms and flows for those player bases. And I think it created some tension that, um, that we'll talk about in a little bit. But the Vintage Challenge was a really remarkable departure. So if you think about Magic Online as a platform or a format, it breaks space in the sense that <laughs> you are able to play wherever you are from an airport lounge or a hotel room or your home or your bathroom, bedroom, the living room, wherever you are, right? But what Magic Online hadn't yet done is broken time. That is, the Vintage Challenges and the Power 9 Challenges, in order to compete, doesn't matter what time zone you're in, you have to play the, the same time simultaneously. The vintage leagues were the first thing that, that broke both time and space. That is, you can compete and play in a league anytime you want. You can space your matches apart as far apart as you want. You can decide to hop in and, and join a match. It's been hugely successful. And I find it to be so much fun and a huge improvement. Now, I haven't been able to play in many since vintage, the vintage championship because I just haven't had a lot of time and I've been working on other things. From what I've seen, we've had you know well over 100 players consistently in the league. In fact, I played, I think, one league match in probably a month and a half. <laughs> so I haven't had a lot of time to play in it, but I have really appreciated the uh, flexibility in, in, in being able to do that. Because I could play you know, late at night, one or two matches a night, and then without having to devote you know, a big chunk of time. So Vintage Leagues, the advent of the Vintage League is a huge uh, change and improvement in the vintage experience for vintage players on Magic Online. Absolutely, and we've seen a, a s- relatively small group of people really embrace it thoroughly. Right? It's, yeah. it's become almost Brian comedic. Kelly how plays, much Brian Kelly? Yeah, <laughs> play, I, I play. think I think he probably just plays twenty four seven. But I think that's a very modern approach to Magic, and it he made top eight at champs this year. I believe that those two phenomena are connected, and I believe that regular vintage league and premier uh, challenge i should say players will continue to do well at champs and be rewarded for their their skill and experience so i i absolutely love it i think that you know if i had the time and the wherewithal to to play vintage on a regular basis i'd love to do this league business but at least as a an outsider in the sense of i'm not a participant in the leagues it's fascinating what they've done for our metagame advancement as well and for you and i on this show and for others like us to observe the the shifts in the format and prepare then for larger events. Well, yeah, I think that's true. I think th- I think there's two things you just mentioned. One is the the opportunity to prepare. I think yeah. that's actually where the league actually has the most value. Sure. The, it's harder to observe the metagame uh, evolution of the leagues because the leagues refuse to publish lists that are close in appearance. Yeah. So we don't actually get a complete portrait of the decks that go five zero in the leagues. Unfortunately, Absolutely. that's that's but, a, a sad a sad. Um, feature of the league's format and unfortunately the two things are while they happen to concurrently they're not directly tied and we've we don't need to cover this ground again because we've said it many times on the show that you and i are definitely in favor of additional data we're definitely in favor of full disclosure when it comes to this kind of thing yes transparency we know the reasons that are stated for wizards for having done these things but we've also gone on record to say we believe those reasons apply differently specifically to vintage Yes. where metagame evolution is not breaking the next pro tour or doing yes. other uh, undesirable things for organized play. We think that the vintage folks should be able to have all the data. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. Well, um, you know, the the two other big things, the, the big occurrence that we have to talk about were the two big restrictions. 
So, uh, Kevin, you take it away. Start with April. (laughs) In April, it was announced after we had been monitoring the metagame very closely, and all of you listening here probably were following along, that in Vintage, Gataxian Probe and Gush were restricted on April 24. We immediately, in a, both immediately before and immediately following this announcement, had much to say on the matter in terms of the rationale provided, what Wizards had said going into Eternal Week in Europe, which Steve already alluded to, and the data supporting before, during, and after these choices. And unfortunately, this led to one of the greater uh, quantitative um, like mistakes, is <laughs> I guess the best way to put it, <laughs> but but specifically... We had quantitative results both before and after that demonstrated right. that the goals espoused in the announcement specifically were were not met. Yeah. So let me let me read the relevant paragraph. It's only four or five sentences again. And this is all they had to say about why and by way of explanation why Gitaxian Probe and Gush were being restricted. Uh, this was let me see who wrote this. This is there's Aaron Forsyth writing on behalf of apparently the DCI. He says in Vintage, the metagame has come to a bit of a standstill as Monastery Mentor decks face down their main Predator Workshop decks. The primary issue seems to revolve around the prevalence of free draw spells for the Mentor deck that let it churn through its library for no mana while creating an abundance of tokens. We believe that by removing these free draw spells and the perfect information that comes with Cataxian Probe, we will significantly weaken Monastery Mentor base strategies. Hopefully, the move away from free spells in the Mentor decks will lessen the impact of Workshop's decks' various sphere of resistance effects opening up the metagame as well. So what we have in here is an explanation as to why they hit Probe and Gush, and two predictions as to what they hoped would happen, be accomplished by it. I think the critique that we had is that, number one, as I said, in their March announcement, they said they were going to make a decision based upon the data. And then they seemed to make a, a, a decision that really wasn't data-based, right? right? And then they had a prediction that the data completely refuted. That is, <laughs> the, 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 neither one of these predictions, we did not see a significant reduction in monastery mentor-based strategy. In fact, the numbers stayed the same. Mm-hmm. Nor did, did they lessen the impact of workshop decks, various sphere effects. In fact, sphere effects spiked. We saw workshop decks after this restriction go to like 40% of top eights, you know, on Magic Online that summer, the most it had ever had, half of the NYSE. And I think my problem is there was no mea culpa. The DCI is not necessarily in the habit of admitting it made mistakes, but so I don't necessarily think it should have come out and said, you know, we made a mistake. But if you make a decision and it's based on a faulty premise or a theory that turns out to be wrong, then don't you have to grapple with that in some way? Like, why is Gataxian Probe restricted? If if Monastery Mentor was the problem, and that's why that's specifically the explanation or the presented explanation as to why they restricted Probe, and Mentor is now restricted, does Pro, it raises the obvious question: Does Gataxian Probe need to be restricted? Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a big poll, a couple of big polls. We had a poll on Twitter, and there was a big Facebook poll. And a very tiny number of vintage players felt Cataxian Probe needed to be restricted. I think it was like under 10% in both polls. So why is it restricted now if Mentor was the problem? Uh, and I think there was a, also a really open question as to whether Mentor or Gush or both cards needed to be restricted. But we'll, we'll come to that in, in a second. Anything else you want to say about the April restriction, Kevin? No, not specifically. Just that I think it'll be interesting to see if we ever get a kind of mea culpa because I guess... 
Well, the mea yep. culpa would be let's let's let probe back into the format, right? <laughs> well, in a sense, I'm not trying to argue with you per se. I would just point that the August subsequent August restrictions are a form of mea culpa. You mean, but yeah. the points you just made were not addressed. Exactly. It's just implied by the fact that we have to take further action. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So which is which is yeah. one of the worst possible outcomes, mind you. And you and I have gone on record a number right. of times. This kind of policy mistake creates multiple cascading effects yes. that are just all bad. So so you've already mentioned the August. I'll, I'll, I'll read it off here. The August, On August 28th, they made three changes. Ian Duke, on behalf of the DCI, actually, it's interesting. The the um, It's not the case this year, but in some of the more recent ban and restricted list announcements, they are no longer framed as DCI announcements. They're actually framed as, as um, R&D announcements. So I'm not sure why that is, if there's been a kind of organizational change between the DCI and R&D. But that's kind of a side issue. Yeah. On, tw- on the 28th, Ian Duke, presumably on, again, so I say presumably on behalf of the DCI, announced three changes to vintage. The restriction of Thorn of Amethyst, the restriction of Monastery Mentor, and the unrestriction of Yogamoth's Bargain. Mm-hmm. Uh, we in our podcast had advocated for the unrestriction of Bargain, and they did that. And they invited people. They also stated in their explanation that they considered Windfall. Um, but they, they thought it would be slightly riskier and that they wanted more feedback on that, on that point. It says, they said, quote, it's still a card we'll continue to discuss in the long, discussing in the long term. So that's a kind of interesting note. Yeah. Um, and they, they, you know, explain, compared Gristlebrand to, uh, Yagmas Bargain to Gristlebrand and so on. But regarding Mentor, they basically did, it was a mea culpa kind of. It just said, you know, look, this is the clear best win condition for Blue Decks. Um, in an effort to weaken such strategies and allow for more diversity and choice of win conditions, Mentor is restricted. Um, and then they they admitted that workshops were dominating the vintage metagame. In fact, they used some data that we had mentioned in our podcast. We said They said data from 12 recent vintage challenges finds that 40% of the top eights being shops and 30% Mentor. So they, they had a data-based explanation here. I, I think this, it's interesting, the decisions in August are as good as the decisions in April were bad. <laughs> I mean, that's th- true. These, these are per- virtually perfect. I, I, the only thing I would have done differently is probably restricted sphere instead of thorn. Yeah. Um, and they they did hit on that point. Yeah. The only way this could be really improved is if some element of the the prior restrictions also walked back. If probe like at least probe. gets unrestricted. Yeah. I can understand gush being problematic still, but yes, probe is not does not deserve to be restricted any longer. So. I had mentioned I wrote three big free articles on um, Eternal Central this year. One was at the beginning of the year. It was the notes on the state of vintage. And I mean, I kind of acknowledged that there was a lot of anxiety among the player base, that there were different player segments who weren't happy with with the state of the format. Um, And we haven't even gotten to the sets yet. We're going to talk about the sets that were introduced this year, this Mm -hmm. past year. Um, But um, it was clear there was a lot of agitation to restrict something. And the consensus was that Gush Mentor needed to be reined in. And I agree with that. But as between Mentor and Gush, I strongly argued that Mentor should be the starting place. Now, maybe, and I said this in, in my article over the summer, which was called Understanding Gush, the Final Chapter, question mark, where I presented all the data from Gush si- since its unrestriction in 2010. And one of the things I pointed out was that bet- from Q4 2010, through Q2 2013, Gush basically I oscillated from 6% of the top eights to, you know, roughly 20% of top eights. And in fact, that was true uh, through Q3 2014. 
you know, on average, Gush was like 12% of top eights until, until the Delve cards were printed. And Gush went from being, and just to give you the numbers, which I've presented before, Q2 of 2014, the second quarter of 2014, Gush was 5% of top eights. And Q3, it went to 10% of top eights. And in Q4, after Cons of Tarkir, it went to 34% of top eights. Gush decks. So mm-hmm. you go from 5 to 10 to 35%. And then after that, it was always above 20%. It was clear in my view that that was explained by the Delve spells and then Mentor, because Mentor was printed immediately afterwards. I, I think, at, and I presented this in multiple podcasts, I said, if you have two options, you can restrict Gush or you can restrict Mentor, or the third option is restrict both. I always prefer the prudent path. You start with the card that has the, you know, that you think is really the core problem. And I always thought it was Mentor. If they restricted Mentor, then we can see what the percentage of the metagame of Gush is. And if it was brought to an acceptable level, like 22, 23%, then it could have stayed. We just don't know what it would have been, right? We don't know. I mean, or even like 19%. It's possible that Gush would have needed restriction. But with Treasure Cruise, Dig Through Time, and Mentor restricted, it's also possible that Gush could have been acceptable. It might be borderline, but it would have been good to know. We know that Mentor was the problem because when they restricted Gush, Mentor didn't decline at all and Workshop <laughs> spiked. So it was clear, clear that Mentor was a problem. I just wish that they had made the more prudent decision. I mean, look, their April explanation mentioned Mentor four times and didn't mention <laughs> Gush once. So, so, I mean, obviously Mentor was the problem. I just think that it, it would have been good to know. You know, and I think that there's a, I don't know what the probability is, but there's a, a really good chance, maybe 50%, maybe lower, maybe higher, that with mentor restricted, Gush didn't need to be restricted. And I think one of the biggest problems I had is there is a, there was a narrative that Nick Detweiler, among other people, espoused that Gush was always a problem and always has been a problem. And I'm saying, if that's the case, then why was it fine for four years? Why was it literally like an average of 12% of top eights for four years? If it was inherently problematic, that narrative is just, I mean, I'm like trying to talk to Nick about it and he just doesn't want to hear what I have to say. He's like, we're just never going to agree on this. I'm like, but what is there to agree on? Can you just acknowledge the facts here? Right. <laughs> I mean, it's just a factual question, right? It's an empirically resolvable question. Anyway. Um, so I think the DCI ultimately got it right by hitting, th- by hitting something from workshops and mentor. It's just too bad that there was a lot of carnage along the way. Hopefully in the future, maybe the very near future, some of that can be worked back. And their discussion of bargain and windfall in the August announcement does give me some confidence that they are also forward-looking in the sense yeah. of valuing a smaller restricted list. So that those two things combined give me some optimism for the future. I also wish that we had been able to explore the alternate scenario that you just described. But at the very least, we can try and undo some of the damage and move forward with good policy. I'm not convinced that we are we have reached the point of good policy, but the August announcement, as you put it, is good. Yeah. <laughs> and it sets a lot of good standards for and for such announcements. Yes, I, I agree. And and I mean if there's one thing we've learned over the years, cards that dominate the format, after a couple of years, the metagame context really changes. I mean, yeah. Thirst for Knowledge could not have been more dominant. And now it's fairly innocuous. Yeah. You know? Um at one time cards like Tinker, Yogmos, Will and Time Vault dominated the format, and then you have printings like Graph Digger's Cage, and those cards kind of go away or become certainly much less salient. So things change. Things change, and you know maybe someday. I certainly think that the restriction of Gitaxian Prome is completely unjustifiable from a data <laughs> perspective. 
and yeah. from a community perspective. And certainly there are voices who, who felt it needed to be restricted from a play pattern perspective, but we don't restrict cards in vintage for play pattern concerns, at least thus far. And you know, there's very, very few cases in which we restricted cards that weren't dominant. You know, Flash is probably the one example that stands out. Right. Um, and I, I think at the time that was a mistake. If you restrict Brainstorm and Merchant Scroll, Flash probably did not merit restriction at that time. In any case, th- th- those were some pretty big changes in the vintage format. And, and overall, I mean, with four cards restricted and one unrestricted, that's five changes of the vintage format in the course of one year. And at the end of the year, we have the we have a a, a vintage restricted list that's now at forty six cards, which is the largest it's been since two thousand nine. Mm-hmm. So so I, I I agree with you. I think we need to try and see if we can print. A f- I think there are some some can- obvious candidates for unrestriction on there beyond yeah. beyond windfall. Um, and hopefully the DCI will attend to that. And we can talk about those in a future podcast, Kevin. Yep, we will. Um, that kind of leaves us with really the, the last big events of the year, right? Which were, oh, well, we have some data we're going to go over, but which were the, the new sets, and we're going to break those down. But um, our, our year interview, I don't think would be complete unless we presented some data since uh, since the vintage uh, champion, since the vintage North American vintage championship, and even since the the August restrictions, mm-hmm. Kevin, we've compiled some top eight data. Uh, Matt Murray and Ryan Eberhardt have published uh, monthly challenge uh, data, and what they've done because they actually go in and code all the decks. They have match win percentages, which is not typically how vintage players or Magic players more generally engage with data. We're used to the kind of top eight penetration uh, rates. That's kind of how we're conditioned to interpret and, and grapple with data. But the match win percentage data is actually quite revealing. And and I think Matt's position is that over time, nothing should have a really high match win percentage. And if it does, then that suggests may, there might be a problematic deck. So it does get us, gives us, give us some new kind of rules of thumb or ways of in, of considering or evaluating metrics uh, for performance. We'll, we'll talk about those in just a second. Kevin, where do you want to start? I don't know. <laughs> well, why don't we start? Why don't we start with the with the top eight data that you've compiled? So we've looked at all of the challenges, the weekly challenges, beginning in September all the way through the end of the year. We've got we've got December thirtieth challenge on here. How many challenges is that? It's one hundred forty four top eight deck lists, but is it sixteen, seventeen, somewhere around it's there? Eighteen challenges. Eighteen challenges. Yep, we it's had a lot two, of data. <laughs> yep, we had two five week months in here effectively. So we've got 144 total decks, and we'll talk a little bit about movement over time here, but we're really going to treat this as a as one whole time period and just talk about it in those terms because we don't want to do a full metagame it's show more here. Than, it's more than Q4. <laughs> it's, a, <laughs> yeah. it's a third of the year. So we've broken these into a, uh, you know, a mixture of archetype and kind of tags the way Ryan and Matt tend to do, and the story here is not much of a surprise. The total performance of workshops over these 18 events 32 top eights which works out to 22.2 percent that's it pretty the, consistent with what we've seen pr- prior in the year right i mean yes it is 20, around 23 percent of workshops and top eight so even after the restriction of thorn mentor gush and probe shops is still the biggest as an archetype the biggest chunk of the vintage metagame yep and on average it, it, it's a little it's a little bit depressed because of the number three deck but we'll get to that in a second okay Second most represented archetype is Mentor at 16 and two-thirds, so 17%, which goes up significantly if you lump all the Xerox decks together, because if you add in Delver and a few other variants, the whole Xerox category goes up to 
40 decks or 28%. That's a combination of Jeskai Mentor mostly, and a fair bit of Delver, and then miscellaneous other Pyromancer-style decks. Yeah, we've, se- we've seen usually. Delver kind of come back a little bit. Yep. Now, those those Pyromancer decks overlap with some Tendrils decks occasionally, so obviously these lines are a little bit blurred when you get to this high categorization, but the third-place deck is really the new one on the scene here recently, and that is Oath. Over the same time period, Oath is almost the same as Mentor, 15.9 or 16%. It's just not even 1% in total behind Mentor in total appearances. Uh, these are mostly Kelly Oaths. Mostly Kelly Oaths. Uh, otherwise, it's, it's not Kelly Oath. It is the more recent uh, Inferno Titan build that has no salvagers in it. And if it's not that, it's mostly Golden Gun Oath or just Gristlebrand lists. Beyond that, the ne- the fourth most popular deck is Paradoxical Outcome at 9%, and then the, the percentages get much smaller after that. Delver by itself is 5.5%, etc. So Oath has really stepped onto the scene and taken a lot of percentage from the, the otherwise top two decks, Shop and Mentor. They're both a little depressed over this time period because of Oath's uptick. In the past, we've seen Oath in the 7 to 10% range. And now it's at 16%. Yeah, it's a huge increase. Yeah. yeah. So you can see it has taken 1% to 3% from the other top four or five decks. It's remarkable. Yeah. And Outcome has not, you know, Outcome is that deck that we said, <laughs> you know, it, it spikes up and it spikes down. And it has been relatively consistent in over this time period. It is kind of constantly present. But from week to week, you'll see zero outcomes and you'll see three outcomes you know per top eight so it seems to still be really swingy in its representation but overall it is still the fourth most popular deck in the metagame but it's a nine percent yeah yes which is a healthy number and you must respect it now one important note from a timing perspective is shops has had two interesting poles of appearances in this time period that is you know overall 22 percent but there was a constellation of top eights in September. There was where a every one of them, yeah. yeah, a cluster where every one of them had three or four sh- shops in the top eight, four weeks in a row, basically. Yeah. We got to a depressed period in October and November where shops made top eight only twice in six weeks. Yeah. <laughs> Two top eights well, in well, six weeks. Yeah, it only, it had in, in, in a six, yeah, there was a six week. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> But then it spiked up again in in the the first half of December. In December, first, yeah, yeah. The the middle three weeks of December, there was again three to four shop decks in each of the top eights. So I, I don't know if that's particularly meaningful. It might just be down to the players involved and some yeah. and some other variance factors. Maybe the holidays. I, I really don't know. But it's worth noting that shops has not been uniform throughout this whole data set. There was a spike in mid September and a spike in mid December. And we'll see if that has any particular trend to it or if it's just variance in players. Uh, Dredge, though, was around 5% of the top eights, along with yep. Delver. And Bug was about 2.5% of top eights, Bug Control. Yep. So this, the top eight, aggregate top eight for Magic Online, which is only one way of looking at Vintage, but from the Vintage Challenge, looks actually fairly healthy in the last four months of the year. You know, Shops at 22%, Mentor at 17%, Oath at 16%, Paradoxical at 9%. That's a fairly diverse, healthy grouping. I have to say, surprisingly so after the after the um, vintage championship results. So, um, based upon that, I would be surprised to see anything restricted in in the January fifteenth announcement. 
I'll, uh, I, we won't read the uh, match win percentages from the various cha- aggregate challenges, the, the monthly challenge aggregates, but I will, you know, for each month, but I will mention a couple things from December. So there were uh, five vintage challenges in December, and the aggregate results show that the combined metagame overall for shops was 19.8% or 20%. So shops' top eight per penetration is higher than its overall representation in the metagame, mm-hmm. and shops has by far the highest metagame win percentage in December at 60%. The next highest is Fish, which is only which was actually 9% of, of the metagame at 55%. And Xerox, which is 19% of the overall metagame, actually is underrepresented in top eights. I'm sorry, overrepresented in top eights, has 50.7% win percentage. So it's interesting that Xerox actually has a 50% win percentage compared to Shop's 60% win percentage uh, combined uh, events for December. So in terms of policymaking and, and metagame, it seems pretty clear that shops are still the best deck, just the best deck. <laughs> they're not the largest, they're the largest percentage of the metagame as an archetype. They have the highest win percentage and the highest top eight percentage. Well, the, the data throughout the year showed more often than not exactly that. Tournament over tournament, we commented on, geez, how well did shops do this time? Intermittently, there were other decks that spiked up but Shops is certainly the consistent performer of 2017. Right, it is. Now, it's way down from its dominance in, uh, I mean, it was like 40% of top eights in the summer, yep. and now it's down to 22%, so that's a much more acceptable range. But I think we will have to see what happens in the next couple of months, you know, as, as people kind of filter back into vintage from the holidays and things get a little bit more competitive. We'll see what happens. Well, that tells us then that we should talk about the cards and sets that came out this year that informed all these changes. Can't wait to do it. And we're also going to award our vintage moxies. All right. So let's talk about how the sets deployed this year and the cards that that really impacted yes, vintage. Yes. In sh- in short, there were four main sets this year with what one commander set as well. So in January, January twenty, we had Aether Revolt. In April, on the twenty eighth, Amonkhet. July fourteen, Hour of Devastation. August twenty five, Commander twenty seventeen, which we did not review and was not impactful. And then September twentieth, Ixalan. Now, we've broken down some noteworthy cards from each of these sets, and, and obviously the listening audience already is aware of several critical ones. But, Steve, do you want to talk about the sets as a whole individually, well, or do you want to talk about the specific I, I think cards we should, next? we should just mention like wh- what the key cards that each set introduced, and maybe some of the key mechanics, if necessary, or rules yeah. changes. So go ahead. All right. So back to January. Aether Revolt gives us one of the most impactful cards of the year, Walking Ballista. Other noteworthy cards from Aether Revolt include Fatal Push and Baral, Chief of Compliance. A card, a card that's and, easy to forget about. Yeah, and uh, you know one that's that has a special place in our hearts, but not so much the metagame Hope of Giraper. Aw, poor, poor Hope. Poor, our preview card just didn't see much play, <laughs> no, did it? exactly, exactly. Then comes Amonkhet Block. It starts in April with Amonkhet, and noteworthy inclusions there are Harsh Mentor and Byforce and Manglehorn. All these, especially these fantastic anti-artifact cards, 
a little less so as foretold, which we had fun reviewing but did not pan out. Next, Hour of Devastation in July brings us A Braid, Raminap Excavator, Hollow One, and Solemnity. And then Ixalan brought us Sorcerer's Spyglass, and I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel here, Carnage Tyrant, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> which is still comical to me, but is still being played in, in Oath sideboards. Commander, as we said, did not bring any meaningful cards to Vintage this year. We did not even review it. Hopefully that trend will change maybe a little bit. I, I don't know. We don't want you don't you don't want a fluster storm again from from a R and D standpoint and containment priest. I think those were mistakes from a product standpoint. Well, but I do well, like one those of the cards. Other changes that was brought by Exelon was the Planeswalker rule change. Definitely, and that's an important one because then it let me put Jace Vin's Prodigy <laughs> and Jace Telepath Unbound and Jace the Mind Sculptor into play uh, on on VSL, which was fun. Yeah, I think that, that that will have some small impact on Vintage going forward. It's obviously huge for the game as a whole, especially things like Commander. For Vintage, it really just means that you get to have max value from JVP and Jace the Mind Sculptor in your blue decks for the foreseeable future. If they ever make a new DAC, then we'll be talking. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we... It- at the end of our year, for folks who haven't listened to our year-in-review show, we award a Moxie, which is our you know our Oscar or Emmy or Tony or whatever you want to call it, our award, to the best set of the year, the best new card of the year, and the most compelling or biggest storyline of the year, and often the best deck of the year as well. So, Kevin, based upon this set review, this is the set review is a little bit harder than I thought it would might be because on the one hand you have a few sets that had really key cards, but then you had some sets that had like a bunch of playables. So how do you balance Aether Revolt's yeah. walking ballista against Hour of Devastations, you know, Crucible on legs and Hollow One, you know, or yeah, <laughs> and a braid. braid, which is huge. Yeah. How do you well, how do you balance that? Clearly you've zeroed in on on exactly the challenge and I think it has it all comes down to how you how you attribute this category, right? We call it the best set. It's, you know, it's intentionally brief and somewhat glib in fact. But the truth is, is that if you wish to evaluate a set, I believe that it must be more than a single card. No no set is just one card, obviously. And clearly, Walking Ballista has had just an enormous um, enormous impact on the vintage metagame from January to January. It, it, it's undeniable. But I don't think Aether Revolt was the best set for vintage. I think that that has to go to Hour of Devastation. Hour gave us a braid and Hollow One, which have become staples in their respective decks, just like Walking Ballista, really. It also gave us Raminap Excavator, which is approaching the level of staple. I mean, it's not quite there, but many, many bug decks are playing it now, especially the Green Sun Zenith package. And Hour also gave us Solemnity, which was just so incredibly fun, both to analyze and to play, and I personally had a great time with it. And if, if Magic Online can ever figure out how Solemnity is meant to work, then maybe it'll become a little more popular in the day-to-day vintage as well. But, you know, for my money, I think I've got to go with Hour in terms of its overall quality as a set (laughs) for vintage. Well, I think that's a a justifiable choice. I think, you know, so when you look back at the sets of of vintage history, sometimes the sets just have like one or two big cards. I mean, uh, Dark Ascension is an interesting set that had, obviously the marquee card was Grafdigger's Cage, but it also had Thalia with it, you know? Um, so, so there's sometimes yeah. sets arrive like um, Shards of Alara that brings Tezzeret, but it also had Ad Nauseam. 
So it's you know it's it's hard to. <laughs> I think I'm going to give my Moxie award to Aether Revolt because although Walking Ballista, as I think we're going to find out, probably the most important card of the year, it had just enough additional cards to to push it ahead of Hour of Devastation. I think Fatal Push and Baral have both seen play. And I think Hope of Girapur is an interesting enough addition, even though it hasn't seen play. I, I think it eventually will. I really do. I think eventually, you yeah. know. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give my Moxie right, to a Revolt. Another well reasoned approach as well. Well, we're up to next. We're up to new card next, and it's unfortunate you, you can't really <laughs> you can't really rate a set without kind of revealing your feelings yeah. on cards. But I think this one is this a slam was, this dunk. Was like there the is just no card. Yeah, exactly. Walking Ballista had just an enormous impact. You know, when we were reviewing it, yeah, we hesitated a little bit in the sense that we said, well, it might not be a four of, you know, people are playing trike. This one's smaller. It's, it's probably good enough, right? Well, you know, we, we really kind of undersold it when we initially reviewed it, but quickly everyone in, us included realized that walking ballista is just incredibly efficient incredibly synergistic and it has driven so much of the organization of the metagame from what workshops play to what their opponents play to down to one of the narratives that's fed into the vintage champs finals this year which was a steel yeah. overseer you know the presence of ballista yeah. has just informed so much of workshop deck construction and the surrounding metagame it's, it's interesting it's sometimes cards arrive and they arrive at the wrong moment and they don't seem play you know <laughs> i think like maybe hope of Girapur, right but sometimes cards arrive that aren't necessarily like objectively powerful in some way but they arrive just at the right moment and you know there's mm-hmm. a handful of instances like that like revel arc being printed just when it did at the time when a flash was legal flash had been errated and the flash combo revel arc allowed flash combo to be an instant win it was just perfect timing yeah. right or like painter's servant being printed it's exactly the time when flash decks and tyrant oath decks were the two best decks in the metagame painter's servant was probably going to see play in, almost, in most many vintage metagames but it wasn't going to see as much play as it would have at that particular moment i think walking ballista right. is like a contemporary example of that it's almost like walking ballista's arrival is almost like the the fact that tezzeret arrived the same moment the time vault was errated. It was like it could not have hit at a better moment, which was which was maybe I'm overstating that. Maybe it could have arrived any time in the last couple of years, <laughs> but it arrived at a moment when token strategies were were dominant, it borderline dominant in the format. Yeah, and it attacks the the, the token strategy. So yeah, it, it's it's its arrival was was perfect for the metagame, uh, and it's it's proven to be a ridiculously people even want, have talked about restricting it. That's how powerful it is. So <laughs> well. Yeah, well, we're gonna have to talk about that as one of our narratives for the year. But I completely agree with you, and I think it's undeniable at this point. Which dovetails, of course, with the best deck for the year. Now, this one, in my opinion, is a little bit trickier from a categorical standpoint. Because what do you mean by yeah. best? Right, the the most popular deck, the best performing deck, the best new deck, uh, the most exciting right, right. deck, or the deck that won the most high profile tournaments. Right. I think unavoidably the answer to more than half of those questions this year is the Ballista Shops deck in all its various yep. incarnations, which there's a fair bit of diversity, mind you, but there's a lot of, a lot, a lot, a lot of uniformity to, to go along with the archetype throughout the year. The, <clears throat> it informs the narrative of the whole year from beginning to end. It informs the tension of the metagame. 
And we've already alluded to the fact that it simply had the most best and consistent match win percentage throughout the year. And it won most of the high profile events for the year. Those yep. being uh, the, NYC, the NYSE Open, the Manadrain Open, and North American yep. Eternal Weekend. And it also attracted some of the best players in the format. You know, it, it brought, it brought Rich Shea over to the Brown side, so to speak, <laughs> a couple of years back. No, and he yeah. hasn't looked back as it pertains yeah. to vintage champs, you know, an, a, an avowed Manadrain player for most of his life. And similar a couple of years back with Brian DeMars, you know, these, these long time mind yep. slaver Manadrain and Hiramichi. Yep. I, I just think it's unavoidable that from most definitions, not all, but most definitions that Ballista Shops is the best deck of 2017. I am 100% there with you. I think the Moxie has to go to Ballista Shops. It's It's been dominant at times. Dominant to a degree that we've never seen Workshop decks be dominant. It had more percentage of top eights over the summer than Trinisphere decks, Shop decks, than Lodestone decks. When we interviewed Andy Markiton, we asked him, is this the best shop deck of all time? And he said, head-to-head, yes. <laughs> you know, it's just, yeah. there's not even a, a second place, really. I mean, the golf is so so uh, remarkable. Um, it's, it's the best deck of the year. It's the defining Absolutely. deck of the year. Well, Steve, as it pertains to the biggest storyline of the year, I, th- I think I'm going to let you go so- first. Uh, you and I have talked <laughs> about this, and it, it's... It's really it's really interesting and tricky. Well, there's so, so many good go storylines this year, and I, I love that about Vintage. That Vintage really gives you it is a format. It, it has a reputation for being a, a format where you you um, it, nothing changes, right? Where it's like this, it's homeostatic. It's the same thing from year to year, right? That you, but it, in reality, so much changes from year to year, and yeah. and, and, and and when the closer you look at the metagame from a year to year basis, I mean. It's actually remarkable. If you were to ask someone in January, January 1st, what would happen at the end of the year and almost any year in the last eight years, you would have gotten it completely wrong. I mean, it's just that's how dramatic, you know, the the restrictions are, the printings are, the the creative innovation is. There are a lot of great storylines this year. I love the VSL storylines. Uh, Brian, Brian Kelly's, uh, reemergence with Oath as the ultimate Weissman Swiss Army Knife solution deck, metagame deck is just brilliant. The, um, Montolio's run at Eternal Weekend. I mean, Andy Markenton's online run and his repeat back to back vintage shop championship top eights. Uh, the, the printings, um, the, uh, there's so many big stories. The changes to Magic Online, huge stories. But I have to think the biggest, the biggest story of the year is is the re 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 restriction of gush. It, I think, it, and and that story <laughs> is the debate before the restriction, and then the fallout afterwards, and the consequences. I think that the, the restrictions are probably the biggest storyline, but the specific story of the restriction of gush and what happened before and after, both the the DCI's warning about looking at data and then how it apparently ignored the data. And, and, you know, listen to, I think, some other voices. I think that is just the biggest, that has to be the biggest story. I mean, it created the most anxiety before and after. The f- I mean, it was a kind of a, you know, to have something restricted three times. We've never seen that happen. But I just think that has to be the biggest story of the year. That's When we look back at this year, there's a lot that people are going to look at. They're going to look at the restriction of mentor. Pro- the restriction of mentors pro- pro- may be the thing that people look at this year for. But I think in terms of the biggest storyline in the moment, it has to be the yeah. restriction of gush. You know, I can't, I can't um, disagree with anything you just said. I just want to add additional color in that 
there was a lot of bombast this year from a policy standpoint. We, I mean, we did, we had community polls and, and <laughs> threads getting deleted on the manager and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And a, a lot happened on social media and there's a lot of theorizing about what was right and best for vintage. That was, I think, the most impactful part of the community. On, I mean, upon the community and our, our interactions throughout the year, the policy change itself actually resulted in only moderate incremental changes, right? We talked about how the gush change made almost no change. In fact, it kind of solidified the metagame, if anything. And then the mentor restriction opened the door a little bit, took some percentage points here or there. You know, for such structural arguments that we had over the nature of the format, (laughs) the actual result on the metagame was not that large from beginning to end. Walking Ballista was far more impactful than than these restrictions restrictions were. Right. So... I think that the storyline that you just described, the effects that it had from a policy standpoint, from yes. a social standpoint, and all the debate and yes. the stern and drawing, that, that is definitely the story of the year and the thing we'll look back upon. Yes, good, good developments were made in decks. Yes, they're formative for 2018. Yes, Andy Markiton is a fantastic vintage champ and, and we hope to see more of him and Brian Kelly and Rich Shea and the others in future years. But but this is the year that Gush got restricted for the third time. <laughs> and, and there was so much dissension about it. So much dissensus, rather. Yeah. So much yeah. dissensus. It was it was so it yeah. was so divisive. And hopefully uh yeah. hopefully from a like- positive standpoint, there will be um improvements to policy yeah. from going forward. Hopefully there will be some lessons learned on the part of the yeah, It was ECI a very polarizing community. debate. I mean it was I mean, almost as polarizing yeah. as the 2016 presidential election. <laughs> <laughs> almost. <laughs> what a great year, though. I mean, we made it through. We made it through alive, and uh, was a great, great, great finale. Right. I think, and we we and, have a lot um, of good things to show for it, right? We have a, a healthy metagame. We have a, a great vintage champ. We have uh, good sets, both in the past and coming up in the future, to look forward to. I know you and I will still continue continue to enjoy and love our set reviews and our analysis of, of banner restricted policy, et cetera, et cetera. So all signs point to health for Vintage, I think, in 2018. We will be back very shortly with a podcast on the next set, which is, mm-hmm. Kevin... Rivals of Ixalan, which will be fully spoiled within a week or two, so our next show will not be as long in waiting and for, we'll as this And we'll also one take a look at any ban and restricted listen uh, changes. But before we go, we have the question of the day and then the of the show, and then we have some bonus content for you unrelated right. to magic. So clearly, with a show like this one and leading into 2018, the, the question is, is fairly obvious, but what do you think is going to happen in 2018? And that question is intentionally <laughs> open-ended. So Almost mysteriously open-ended. <laughs> given, given everything we've discussed here and the nature of the moxies and the diverse topics at hand, what do you think 2018 bodes for Vintage? Now, Steve, you just alluded to some bonus content. We're not in the habit of doing this very often in this show. How could we resist? But we're at a unique yeah. point in time. I, that's right. How could we resist? For those of you who've listened to this show, you know, once or maybe, you know, 73 <laughs> prior times... You might notice a, a, an undercurrent of fandom that Steve and I have, and it percolates into the show every once in a while, for Star Wars. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> so, after the credits roll on this uh, this music here in just a moment, you can hang out if it interests you to hear Steve and I discuss... And review. The last, and review The Last Jedi. So, hang out if you will. But, until then... 
Thank you for listening to episode 74 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next year, we wish you many insane plays. So as Kevin just mentioned, we are longtime Star Wars fans. That's one of our many shared interests, Kevin and I. Kevin, why don't we just share, you know, you know, we met in in the very early aughts. Um, <laughs> and and uh, I mean, I think we should just share how, how far our Star Wars fandom goes. I'll, I'll let you tell the story. Well, I'm not sure which story you mean, in fact, because... The, the, our, our campouts. Yeah, I was going to say, there's, there's at least two of them that I can think of. So Steve and I met after episode two had released. Steve and I became friends, shared this, this great fandom for, for Star Wars. We got into a tent and <laughs> camped out at the AMC in... Yeah, uh, the Lennox 24. The Lennox 24, <laughs> just off campus. What's well, on campus, technically, uh, in Columbus, Columbus Ohio. Yeah. yeah, at Ohio State University. We camped out... And we were, we weren't the first people in line. Well, were we? There were like two or three other no. campers there. But anyway, that was, that was our, our overnight experience waiting for episode three. But that wasn't even where it ended because then over the course of, I guess it was that, that summer, I can't remember. It must have been, it must have been two or three months later when the, the, the movie went to the dollar theater on Bethel. <laughs> and, and you and I just were like, we're talking one day, like, hey, it's at the Dollar Theater. You want to go see it? So we went and saw it. A couple days later, we're like, geez, that was really good. You want to go see episode three again? <laughs> so, Steve, I don't know how many times we saw it, but at least one time, at least one time, we saw it twice consecutively. We walked out of that theater and said, you want to go see it again? I don't remember this. Yes. That's so funny. We, you and I saw episode three together at least five times, I think. Oh my and god! And at least twice in the same. At least one time we saw it twice in the same that day. That is so amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so amazing. <sighs> well, well, and and I, what I remember for episode um, three was that I had been reading this James Luchino book, Luciano book, which was a lead-in to episode three. Yeah. It was called. Um, oh, it was called Labyrinth of Evil. Mm-hmm. Which was a, um, it was actually leads right into the beginning of Star Wars Episode Three, and I'd read it, and I really loved the book. I don't read a lot of fantasy books. I read you know, pretty heavy. I've always read pretty heavy, heavy material, and uh, you know, I read a lot of fantasy books when I was in middle school. Not going to lie about that. <laughs> about you know, fifty or so. But uh, you know, and I, but this particular book I thought was really well written um, and really fascinating, and had had a good kind of detective plot. Um, and I, I handed it to you and I was like, Kevin, we were camping and we're like, you finished it right before we got into the movie theater, <laughs> which was really funny, yeah. but we had a great time and we, we played like star Wars trivial pursuit while we were camping. Yeah. We played magic. I'm sure. <laughs> I don't remember for sure, but I, I would bet money on yeah, it. Me too. <laughs> um, and you know, we, in, in our long rides to star city games tournaments and other places, we would have long debates over star Wars with people like Brian DeMars 
um, <laughs> who, sh- who shares our, our fascination with Star Wars. And he was one of the first people that you and I both talked to after this film came out. Absolutely. Yeah. So I was really excited to review this this film, which has been more polarizing than the OJ trial. I mean, <laughs> you know, the the critics the critics l- love it. You know, they started off getting like ninety four percent on Rotten Tomatoes. It's now to about ninety ninety one percent. But the audience is is split. It's fifty percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and it's not just that people are split. It's it's that they either love it or hate it, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of room in between. Yeah, <laughs> which is really odd. For Star Wars, I mean, you know. Yeah, for Star Wars it is, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, since Kevin and I love Star Wars, we thought we would share a review of the of the movie. And, and you know, obviously some of these discussions have gotten quite deep, quite intense, quite heated. <laughs> we have some interesting perspective. Now, this movie, Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi, is a fairly complicated topic. And you know how we treat magic with, <laughs> with uh, I think, a lot of depth which we're going to apply to this, but I want to be very careful. I want to peel the layers of this onion very carefully because there's so much to talk about. Um, the place I want to start is the biggest picture. I don't want to get into the, in the details. I want to ask, first of all, we'll share. We'll both share how many times we've seen this movie, <laughs> and then we'll share initial reactions. We'll share fee- how we felt about it, and then we'll get into details about themes, crit- criticisms, stuff like narrative, stuff like that. So, Kevin, uh, you've seen it more than I have. I'll let you just big picture. How many times have you seen it? I've seen it five times. What? Oh my god! Wow, I've only seen it twice so far. I've been. I, I really want to see it at least one more time in the theater. That is awesome. Yeah. Wow. I, last I heard, you had seen it three or four times. So that's right. Five. Wow. I saw it. On, I saw it on a- New Year's Day. Uh, not New Year's Day. New Year's Eve. Excuse me. That was my fifth viewing. And I, I'd like awesome. to just add that I have still not seen the trailer for this film. Or <laughs> that's amazing. Or the trailer for any of the last three Star Wars films. This is an interesting side topic. Yes. Kevin and I have often discussed, and Kevin was remarkably disciplined in avoiding trailers for the prequel film. I mean, I couldn't believe how how you avoided the Episode Three trailer, yeah. but you did. Uh, and and um, one of the debates we've had—I don't want to get totally sidetracked on this—but one of the debates we've had is, you know, to what extent does the filmmaker design the trailer to be seen? Yeah. As and uh, but but your your point about wanting to be completely uh, ignorant in the best sense of the word about what you're going to experience and exp- and let it wash over you is really well taken, yeah, right? It, that's exactly right, and I think it, I think it may have had the most stark effect for this film out of any film, really. Really, why is that? If you haven't seen the trailer, how do you know that? <laughs> because part because one of the overarching themes of this film is is subverting expectations. And yes. A, so, a trailer. So this is a good point. To, I mean, this is the good point to give the spoiler warning. Oh yeah. If you if you haven't assumed it already, <laughs> we are going to be giving massive, massive spoilers to this oh, film. Yeah, this... So if you haven't seen it and you want to see it, stop the podcast and come back and listen to this after you've seen it. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you said that. I I was thinking that was a given at this point, but you're totally right. This is a spoiler full discussion. <laughs> <laughs> so, to, Steve, to your point, yes, I haven't seen the trailer, so I can't say what's in it, but I can tell you <laughs> that. There's no way this trailer that I haven't seen doesn't set expectations for the viewer, right? Fair enough. The, the, and there's multiple trailers, by the way. Oh, that's fair. There's yeah. the two trailers and then the TV tra- teaser. Yeah. So, the, well, part of the point of a trailer is to whet your appetite. It's to tease you for something. And invariably, yes. I'm I have a high degree of confidence, without actual empirical evidence, that this trailer contributes to subverting expectations, or the trailers for this film contribute to the subversion of expectations. So let's start here. I don't want you to talk any plot points yeah. or 
narrative points, just what's your overall impression of the first time you saw it and then subsequent viewings? How did you feel? How would you think? The overall impression was that there was a conflict between the narrative and how I felt. Uh, I... I you disentangle the first time. What do you think the first time when you came out? Yeah, that's what that's what I, I mean. Though. You I felt pretty mixed, like, mixed feelings. Yeah, yeah I did not like the narrative. I thought it was narratively weak and convoluted. And but I enjoyed some of the messages, and I enjoyed the emotion that it evoked at certain key points. Interesting. Yeah. Let's let's pause on that, yeah. and I'll, I'll share my initial reaction. Then we can talk about our subsequent. My initial reaction was that I felt that the narrative didn't hang together very well. Mm-hmm. That it was disjointed and that there were some pretty massive plot holes, like you just said, yeah. alluded to. But I also thought that unlike any other Star Wars film I'd ever seen, which Star Wars is very much about narrative, this was much more of a tone film. You know, I don't think we give nearly enough credit to the role that music plays. I mean, John Williams' <laughs> score is obviously very highly regarded and we love what it does, but I don't know if we give enough credit to the way it bestirs emotions mm-hmm. and sets tone. <laughs> and I felt this film was the most tonally interesting and resonant that I had. I left the movie thinking, my initial feel, feeling, the narrative was weak, but as a tone film, this was incredibly powerful. And that it almost reminded me, I don't want to spoil this, but the end of Twin Peaks Season 3. <laughs> Where it really wasn't about narrative, it was just about the feeling you're left with, the impression that you're left with, and the way it haunted you Yeah. when you left. And then when I saw it the second time, and I want to hear the differences between your, and without getting the plot points, the second time I saw it, it felt far more cohesive. It hung together much more fluidly. It felt much less disjointed. And the emotional, it felt less, it felt very tonally resonant, but it was emotionally deeper. I literally cried two or three times after I saw it the second time. During the film, that's how powerful it was. Yeah. So tell me, t- tell me the second, second, third, fourth, and fifth. What was it like? How has it changed? How has it devolved? The things that I observed that I just explained to you upon the first viewing were the second viewing kind of cemented them. Is what I would say. I had mm. I had a poor opinion of the narrative the first time and a strong opinion of of the feeling, the tone, as you put it. Those things got further apart after my second viewing. Because the things that were bugging me about the narrative stood out more. And, yeah. And then the highs of the feel, the emotion, were also higher for me the second time. Yeah. Because in, in, inevitably, upon subsequent viewings, you're less concerned about discerning the narrative. And right. more concerned with appreciating or absorbing the narrative, right? And and so the, the, the hows and whys of people are doing things... In the hows, I should say, of, of people doing things is less important. And then the whys and what does it mean to them, you know, they stand out more. So second viewing really polarized me even further, actually, internally. Right. The thir- Between the great the elements you loved and the elements you yeah. were unhappy about. It was after my yeah. second viewing, because again, spoiler free, <laughs> I didn't read reviews after either yeah. until after the second time I saw it, which was a matter of days later, of course, I started reading reviews and analysis. And and inevitably, I saw you know, many contrasting opinions, but one of the themes that came through upon the reviews that others have read analyses was the film's importance on character development. And so I, my third through fifth viewings have focused on character development and really basking in <laughs> the emotional beats of the film, both those that are kind of manipulative of the audience and those that are just in, internal to specific characters. So without going into any specific spoilers, I have found that the if you can look past some of the narrative holes and just 
acknowledge that they're you know suspend disbelief basically the the emotional highs get much higher and i just am really appreciating the film more and more upon subsequent viewing so 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 your your fifth viewing was better than the second and third yes. and fourth yeah i think it's it better i, think with I have each liked viewing. it more every time since the second viewing yeah well i was crying at the second viewing so yeah. i mean i i left the first viewing at the very end with a feeling of awe yeah that was the only word i could describe it the second viewing, I, I, it was like a lot, It was like a feeling of relief, not awe, but relief. <laughs> it was like this feeling. It was like a being coddled in like a. It was like Huga. You know what Huga is? The the yeah. uh, you know the uh, Scandinavian comfort. comfort. Yeah, yeah. That's what it was like. It was just. It was just so powerful and emotionally, emotionally, um, it, resolving. Like there was a resolution there. Yeah. So so now I think we could peel off this first layer. I want to start with a theory yeah. about what Star Wars is and, and the narrative issue. And then we'll get into some of the deeper elements of it. Yeah. And so, Kevin, when I first met you, one of the things that I used to share with you, I think, was Space.com had a, had a series on episode one that was called, um, it was called like Phantom Heresies. <laughs> and it was a series of really brilliant, entirely intelligent essays about Star Wars. It was before Phantom Menace even came out, I believe, and then it was maybe you know afterwards. And one of them was a, was an essay on um, Star Wars as ritual theater. And you and I both also enjoy theater. Yeah. Um. You know. You you know. I don't know if a lot of people know, but I'm a huge Shakespeare fan. Love Shakespeare. Um. And I also like a lot of the Greek tragedies and classic Greek plays. But what makes something ritual theater is that you know what's happening and you know what's going to happen but you you enjoy the unfolding of the story and the dialogue you know i could watch you know richard i, I could watch richard the uh, third you know 10 times yeah you know um you know i i you could but we you and i have watched star wars countless times mm-hmm. and the same same thing you know same thing for a lot of people who watch antigone or liz estrada right they're ritual theater you it, it, it it's about bringing people together it's about community it's about experiencing this thing as a com- as a community right and and star wars is a form of ritual theater we go back to the theater and we watch it and you could they could bring back the original you know films in the theater and we would go watch them yep. like we did like the special editions in the late 90s which yep. i love which i got to see with my dad um so if star wars is ritual theater part of what makes it a- a- appealing to a large segment is that the plot dynamics are like grooves in a record, your favorite album, right? <laughs> it's like, and I think that's what makes this film so polarizing. That is, what a lot of people loved, I don't think it's too much to say that The Force Awakens, Episode 7, which was widely appreciated and adored by critics and fans alike, I don't think it's too far to say that it was largely derivative. In fact, some could say it was a remake, <laughs> right? I mean, borderline. really. I mean, it yep. was borderline. Um, and people loved it. And I think the criticism of it is that it was too derivative. Um, it's like, you know, I don't know what your favorite album is, but <laughs> but one of the albums that I've heard a lot of is the Beatles' White Album, mm-hmm. right? And one of the things that you know is like, if you know, you know, for example, that if, if anyone here likes the White Album, you know that when um, My Guitar Gently Weeps is over, Happiness is a Warm Gun is the next Warm Gun is the next song, yeah. right? And like the, when you hear the final notes of While My Guitar Gently Weeps, your mind is already preparing for the next for for the first few notes of Happiness is a Warm Gun, right? Yeah. It's mentally preparing. And I think Star Wars is like that. I think that and that is the fundamental tension in this film. 
which is that it takes those notes that you are expecting to hear, sets them up, it sets you up, it cues them up, and then it plays a completely disharmonic note or chord. (laughs) (laughs) And it takes you in a completely different direction. So I think that what makes this film so polarizing is that it has thwarted expectations that people had going in. Mm -hmm. And we can talk about what those are, but I think that's the fundamental tension in this film. And I think there are some problems that this film had to resolve that I want to talk about that are separate from this, but that's my fundamental observation and theory on why people did not like this film. Yeah. Is because it, it went against what their expectations and even their hope. Do you, do you agree with that? I do. I think that that takes a couple of different forms. One of them is lifelong fans like you and I, especially people who grew up with the original trilogy and right. a, a bit of a, of hero worship for Luke specifically. I think right. that's, there's a whole constellation of feelings in that sense. But I also think that there are issues that are actually more impactful for to me about the contrasts between episodes seven and eight. And there are just a number of examples, <laughs> almost comically so, where Ryan Johnson zigged where J.J. Abrams was yes. clearly setting up a zag. And right. there's nothing wrong with subverting expectations. I, I, I would, I'm not critical of that action. I am concerned though that star wars is now being written in an episodic standpoint yeah without a cohesive arc but we don't know that that's the case but that is a legitimate concern but there are enough examples of zigging and zagging amongst seven and eight that it seems uh, unless unless we're all being played you know for fools and all of the zigs and zags are meant to set up some giant reveal in episode nine which seems very star wars but also less likely yeah. these day and age um it's, i have a bit, a bit of pessimism about how the franchise is being managed from a creative standpoint i don't well, i don't well, want star wars to be written by a different person every other movie and have it feel more like the x-files you know where this movie is just a monster yeah. of the week and this one contributes to the overall arc i don't want that from my star wars but well, that's a, that's a fair point yeah. but i i would like to draw your attention to the original trilogy I mean, when the original trilogy was written and Empire was written, Lucas didn't know that Darth Vader was that's, Luke's that's father, there nor was, did he... That's because there was basically no such thing as a blockbuster franchise in Hollywood yeah, at that point. but nor nor when Empire was written did they did he know that he was going to have Leia be Luke's sister. Yeah, because there still so, wasn't such a thing know, as franchise management back then. No, that's you fair, can't, that's fair. You can't... I mean, I've seen this a number of different times. I've seen a number of people say, yeah, well, that sucked in the original trilogy, too. And yeah, okay, that was 40 years ago. I mean... <laughs> It's okay for something to have improved over time. I'd like it to improve. Please don't point to the thing from 40 years ago as, as a precedent fair, fair, <laughs> from, fair a, enough, from a movie-making standpoint. Fair enough. You're, so you're right, but I, I, that is not persuasive to me. I, I want, especially because it's Disney, I, I want there to be a clear hand in managing the franchise, and I feel like these two particular films demonstrate the opposite of that. That's, that's, a good, that's an interesting point. But that's a meta-observation that doesn't yeah. necessarily manifest when you're sitting in the theater, right? <laughs> well, we're going to talk about some of the ways in which John, Ryan Johnson set up things that we expected to go to zig and said they zagged, yep. to, to use your metaphor. But you and I had some interesting conversations before the movie, and certainly many more after. <laughs> but one of the things that I asked you, Kevin, before we even saw the movies, I said, my biggest concern, I was palpably anxious about going into this movie. Yeah. And my anxiety was, the locus of my anxiety was had the treatment and handling of Luke Skywalker. And in particular, I was afraid, number one, that he was going to be killed. Mm -hmm. And number two, I was afraid he was going to be killed in a less than appropriate, 
appropriately grand and heroic manner. <laughs> okay. You remember I remember me talking about this yep. and I said I'm yep. like I just like what I feared was like Kylo was going to kill him or Snoke was going to kill him or something like that, you know? It's like something really lame. <laughs> so my number one concern is a, from a personal perspective was that if you, you know, I asked you, I said, Kevin, do you think they're going to kill Luke Skywalker in this trilogy? And you said, yes, he's probably going to die in episode eight or nine. It's just the way these things work, right? Sure. And I was just terrified that they were going to kill him <laughs> in a manner that wasn't appropriate to the, respectful to the character, whom, whom I have tremendous respect for. Yeah. And I'll talk a little bit about that later. Um, and in particular, I was concerned about, you know, when you watch his progression from Empire to Return of the Jedi, it's easy to miss what a Jedi master he becomes in Return of the Jedi. That, you know, he really is an untrained Jedi. He's not even a Jedi yet in Empire. And by Return of the Jedi, he's a complete master. And and my feeling is that by the time you get to this point, he's going to have to be even further advanced, right? Yeah. That's a personal anxiety. The biggest problem, though, in terms of the the philosophy or the, let's say, the narrative problem with, with The Last Jedi, which I need to be resolved, in, and we talked about before the film came out, was how do you resolve the fundamental dialectic between light and dark? That is, how do you resolve the problem of the Jedi Order creating the seeds of its own destruction by training, developing the next generation of dark side force users? Because that's exactly what happened, right? Yep. The Jedi cre- trained Anakin Skywalker, who was manipulated by the dark side, dark side ma- master, the Sith, to overthrow the Jedi. And Kylo Ren in The Force Awakens is clearly a dark side user who's been created by Snoke, right? That's one of the problems. That, to me, the fundamental problem of the, the dialectic between light and dark and how the Jedi Order continues to create the seeds of its own destruction is the fundamental tension that I felt was unresolved going into this, and I would like to see how The Last Jedi resolved it. Now, obviously, from the title of the movie and the trailer I had seen, I assumed that Luke was going to basically be of the opinion that the Jedi needed to die, needed to, needed to go away because the reason I just said that it sowed the seeds of its own demise and that it needed to be, and then only, the only way to end the kind of Sith or the dark side dominating the galaxy is to stop creating the next generation of the dark side users, potential dark side users, <laughs> right? And so, and so that to me is the fundamental philosophical question that had to be resolved by this movie. And one of the reasons I was so pleased and happy with the film is I felt it was the boss best possible resolution of that dialectic, which we'll talk about. One other problem, though. The other problem that I felt that this film had to deal with or address in some way is the problem of Snoke. <laughs> As someone observed online, the fundamental problem with Snoke is the ex nihilo way in which Snoke arrives. That is, at, there's no way that Darth Sidious Palpatine would have allowed Snoke to exist in his galaxy. <laughs> This massively powerful dark side user would have been a competitor, and the rule of two clearly rules that out. Yep. So there's only a couple of ways of dealing with that issue, and, and we'll talk about how this film dealt with that. But to me, those were the fundamental problems that, that had to be dealt with. The treatment of Luke, uh, the resolution of the light-dark dialectic, and the problem of Snoke. Uh, the rest of the things are just narrative that can play out in different kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you asked me before I had seen it and when I hadn't seen the trailers about what I expected from this film, my first response was a lot of philosophizing about what it means to be a Jedi. <laughs> yes, I remember you told me that. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, um, among other things, and, and I think that I would not say there was a lot of it, <laughs> but it was no. central to multiple characters' motivations. And I'm glad that, that Yoda appears to, you know, address that issue. I think that it's interesting. You mentioned resolution of the light versus dark dialectic but i feel like that's actually kind of a stumbling block for this film because while there is plenty of talk about balance between by luke and by snoke 
there's also a whole bunch of binary talk by many of the main characters. And I don't know if that's intentional to display their ignorance or if it's yeah. or if it's sloppy writing. Yeah. I don't know how you would discern between the two. I guess it's not good writing, but it may be intentional, but it still doesn't feel like it. Let's put it that way. So so let's 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 get let's get let's get to the what the resolution was. Um I actually think that this might be the most I, I I'm not gonna hide. I love this film. <laughs> My review is I loved it, and I loved it because it was emotionally satisfying and it was intellectually satisfying. And the intellectual resolution of the dialectic of light and dark, from my perspective, well, let me just set this up a little bit more. I mean, you and I appreciate the prequels. We might not love them. We certainly really like Revenge of the Sith. Yeah. One of the essays that from the Space.com series that I mentioned was about the hubris and arrogance of the Jedi Order, right? Yeah. I mean, under the auspices of this dominant religion, this minor group uh, in opposition came into existence and overthrew and killed thousands of Jedi, right? Yep. The hubris of that to have happened has to be – is just not acknowledged at all because there hasn't been an opportunity to acknowledge it, right? Yeah. I mean, the resolution is Luke persuading his father to kill and destroy Darth Sidious at the end. And there's no, there's never an acknowledgement by the titular head of the Jedi Order that he screwed up. And this movie gave that us that resolution. Mm-hmm. And it gave us the resolution in a way that both was cathartic, deeply cathartic, to someone who cares about that arc from the prequels to the original original trilogy and beyond, but also, in my opinion, resolved this dialectic of light and dark. So the way it resolved the dialectic was that instead of giving up, you have to learn from your mistakes. That there will be mistakes. That, that yes, you will... You will Move on, you will press on, you will do your best, and bad things will happen. And the only way that you can, that you press on is by teaching your failures as well. Mm-hmm. I think the most profound statement in the film is when he says, you didn't, Yoda says to Luke, you didn't listen, you didn't pass on what you have learned, include failures most of all. Yeah. That line, in my opinion, is the most important line in the entire movie, possibly the entire series in the sense and, and it has the deepest most profound meaning because that meaning the depth of that meaning is only apparent or visible when you layer or juxtapose the previous two trilogies yeah because only when you juxtapose the prequels which are about the rise of Darth Sidious under the nose of of Yoda and the Jedi order and there's no one who is more deserving of the, of the arrogance and hubris of the Jedi than, than Yoda. I mean, the whole point of Yoda, I mean, the whole contrasting persona of Yoda in the pre- prequels is that he is this rigid, doctrinaire uh, enforcer of the Jedi Order, yep. right? And it was him, through his rigidity, through his, his blindness, his arrogance, that allowed this Darth Sidious to, to rise. Remember, Qui-Gon was constantly at tension with the Jedi Council. Yep. He wasn't admitted to the Jedi Council because he didn't accept the doctrinaire, the doctrinaire rules that Yoda had, had laid down. And so Yoda, appearing in this moment, that both resolved the dialectic of light and dark, which is, can nev- which is resolved by acknowledging it can never be resolved, but the best we can do is do our best, <laughs> right? That we learn, if we learn from our mistakes, then we can try and avoid the same mistakes in the future. But you can't give up. Right, number one, mm-hmm. and number two, but the cathartic moment of Yoda acknowledging his failure—that is so powerful; it cannot be understated. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that is that is the most powerful lesson of this entire film. And I don't think that we can. To me, I've said this to you: that interaction, that engagement, and not only you know, not only where Yoda was like, you know, he 
by burning down the tree that was like the you know the one of the first Jedi temples yep. is essentially a a statement of personal growth from Yoda from where he was and who he was in the prequel, right? Yeah, I mean it was a tremendous a tremendous uh, maturation from someone from from particularly important important character, and that was that was really really remarkable. Well, I, I do admit and, that and I that assume was, that's what you loved you loved about it, right? Um, I, I well, I I liked that aspect. Um. I was not as moved by it by you as you were, and I think it's simply because it doesn't feel like a revelation at all to me. Which I guess isn't isn't really your point. I'm not trying to <laughs> not trying to put words into your mouth, but it wasn't as revelatory because that's how I felt about the Jedi all along. It's been a <laughs> it's like yeah, duh. Yes, y- you you know you were the, the the dogmatic people who contributed to this environment. Um, but also, <laughs> I, I, so, so I completely acknowledge that the Jedi's failures, and you're right, this is the first time it's really been addressed in the films. It didn't move me that much, also because I've been, I've been reading and learning a lot more about Sidious and Plagueis lately, and it almost felt like that no amount of preparation could have stopped Sidious's rise. I mean, it's not like, it's not like if the Jedi were a little bit more lax and they admitted some older kids that Sidious wouldn't have taken over, right? I don't think that that's necessarily clear. I think that I think that it's it's at least strongly suggested that Qui Gon Jinn was a far more perceptive Jedi than anyone on the council. Um, okay. And and in fact, Count Dooku even acknowledges that at one point. Well, that- I mean, in in Episode Two, I, I think that there is an argument to be made that Qui Gon Jinn might have sussed out what was happening. Okay, I mean. I can either but, but I, I can either argue that or, think, or you know con- yeah I combat mean it's, it. it's kind of beside the point I think the reason it's so cathartic isn't because we don't acknowledge it on a on an intellectual level yes we know the Jedi Order failed and we know how they failed and we know why they failed and we know the the be, the, the whys and wherefores yeah but what's cathartic about it is that you have the titular head the personification of this order yeah acknowledging it in a very Zen way yeah. Where he, in a very playful way, in a very emotionally open way, in his engagement, it, it really brings back his personality in Empire, which was so different from his personality, you know, in, in Attack of the Clones, where he's like, you can't do this, you can't do that, yeah. you know, fear in you, blah, 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 not, shouldn't be trained, you know, all these things, you know, and in that openness, that emotion, that the catharsis comes from Yoda acknowledging it, and that is the cathartic moment. Yeah. It's the it's the character acknowledging it is what makes it cathartic, not the intellectual appreciation of it, and the way in which he then the way it's displayed by 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 Luke trying to burn down and then Yoda beating him to it, just just doubles down on that point, right? He's like saying, "No, actually, I really get this. You're right, you're right, but but the mistake you made was that you didn't you didn't pass on our failures and your failures as well." Yeah. That was the that was the lesson. I I, I want to pivot a little bit. I know you have more to say, but I'm going to give you plenty of opportunity. I want to pivot to one of the major complaints people had, which was this idea of like Luke being this depressed hermit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that we can really blame. So first of all, I don't. Um, everyone, as everyone's pointed out, it's the exact same thing that both Yoda and Obi Wan did, right? I right. mean, like Yoda didn't stay on Coruscant and fight and, and go back and, and and try and kill Darth Sidious. He gave up and ran away. Yep. And Obi-Wan did the same thing as well. So there is precedent for that, <laughs> you know, um, of, of allowing darkness to, to sweep over the, the, the galaxy again. But I actually think that when you really think about it, I don't think Ryan Johnson had an alternative option. 
if the problem is actually in Force Awakens, not the Last Jedi. The, what people here, let me frame this another way: what people dislike about the Last Jedi is actually seated in the Force Awakens, mm-hmm. and it's because the plot of Force Awakens has Luke having removed himself from the center of action in the galaxy, having essentially gone into hiding, right? Yep. After after we know his temple's been destroyed, his uh, his um, students have been killed, and one of his rogue students is now you know fully enmeshed in the dark side. So we know all that. All that is already set up before The Last Jedi. What possible explanation could there be for Luke's exile besides the fact, I mean, there's only, what possible action explanation could there be besides the one that that ryan gave i mean the it's just implausible to say as an alternative explanation that luke went to the first jedi temple to kind of redouble his efforts to like recenter himself in the force that doesn't even make sense i mean if he's going to do that he would have done he would have done that and then gotten back into the action not gone into hiding right well i I, Am I wrong? I believe that that was one possible outcome, and I believe that it was at least hinted at that that was the direction things were going in Episode Seven. Um, there's a lot of apo- there's really a lot of apology sense? for Luke yeah. in Episode Seven on the part of Han and Leia, you know, and Han's yeah. description of why he left, even though it's it's not a complete description because he doesn't really know apparently, right? But it's not he left in shame. Or he left and he'd never be back. It was he went to go find this temple. That implies agency on Luke's part. That's true. Where the temple is the goal, not the exile. That's true. Right. And this this goes back to my my concern for the for the stewardship of but the franchise. But he said it was a rumor or something. But yeah. Well, sure. I mean, a lot of people have criticized J.J. Abrams' writing for Episode Seven for being the mystery box writing, but. <laughs> but the simple truth is there's a lot of evidence <laughs> that's a big AJ, that's a jj abrams trope yeah. by the way there's a lot of evidence book, though i read his book estraka and it was exactly the same thing yeah everything you, so i i'm agreeing with you in the sense that the problems that, that that eight has caused were rooted in seven because even though it's a mystery you're conditioned by multiple indicators that it means a certain thing no nope, so, you know, so let, let's let's finish that let's yeah. finish that thought though so let's say he went to he went to this planet, this remote island, to the first Jedi Temple. What's he doing there? Is he trying to get stronger in the Force? Is Maybe. that what he's doing? Then why is he waiting? Well, who's he waiting for? We actually don't know how long he's been gone, do we? I mean, it's not well, long. It seems like it seems like it's been many years. I mean, oh, I, his, guess, I guess you're right. He could, yeah. I mean, it shows him as a much younger man when his temple's destroyed. Well, they thought he was dead, and then he disappeared. We uh, we don't see him as a younger man in TFA. So in episodes, no. so we don't know at the end of seven how long he's been gone because we don't know what he looked like when he was training Ren. We only get that uh, in eight. But we know it's been years. We know that that might be. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess that's reasonable. I don't know if it's actually alluded to in seven. I'm sorry, I can't so recall. So I, I do think but, we, I do think we know. I do think we know Kylo Ren's age. Um, but whatever it is, it might actually be like ten years. Okay, that's because fine. yeah, because he was clearly a kid. It's it says that he's tw- uh, 29 at the time of the Force Awakens. Um, and um, what is he like 14 or 15 in the flashback scene? So it's probably been more than a decade actually that he's been on this island planet. Well. I don't think that's well conveyed in seven. Uh, from but an expectation making, standpoint, yeah. uh, from an expectation standpoint, that seems less important than everyone's opinion of him, right? 
you have inferred, wait a second, why has he been here so long? But no one else in the movie appears to care about that exactly. They're like, we need to go find him. He's Luke Skywalker. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, J.J. Abrams is trying to leave it open. But I'm yeah. saying, if you were sitting down as the screenwriter and trying to figure out what's the actual compelling reason that he's here, and you, it, you I mean, would have to work really hard. <laughs> you, would, you would have to work really hard to say, he's trying to recommune with the Force, and he's waiting for like the next dis- dis- disciple to come to him. I, That's just... I don't think that really would wash. I, I really don't like, think it would make sense. I feel like I, I can't prove this one way or another, but it sounds like results-oriented thinking on your part. Now that you've seen the movie twice, you feel like this is the way it should have been. I can very easily see a version of Episode Eight where Luke goes to the Jedi Temple and learns some new Jedi wisdom that has been lost through the ages right because no one's ever been there for a thousand years and so he's like this is how you prevent people from going to the dark side and he comes back and applies that directly to ben i could that yeah, could definitely have so, been the narrative again, if so why would he be gone for so long maybe it takes that long to learn it who knows yeah i, I, I mean my I, point again, is that the time you, the time di- the time dilation right. from episode seven is not the important part it's not the meaningful I, part i just i just think you may be right that it's results oriented but i also honestly think that to do a convincing or persuasive alternative explanation require quite a bit of work. Well, quite a bit of work. It's work that you, they apparently you weren't willing to there. put into other elements of eight. So <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> All these people who wanted a different Luke Skywalker wanted what were what I'm talking about or some variation. Yes. They wanted him to come yeah, back and be badass and have learned some I, great wisdom. I I wanted that as well. Yeah, I wanted that as well. But what I'm saying is that. This rings much truer to me in the sense that well, given the setup, given the setup as between like <laughs> Luke goes to this temple to like become like this next level Jedi master, which he already is, <laughs> or he, he, he's been in this remote island for 15 years be- because he is like giving up, like that actually just makes more sense. Well, I mean, given the I, events, given the whole constellation of events, I, I feel like that you are. I feel I, like you you're, you're powerfully colored by it because throughout the whole of the Star Wars universe, yes, Ben and yes, Yoda did go into exile after their defeat. But when you meet them after, they don't have Luke's attitude. So there's a similarity, but then there's a sharp contrast. They're yeah, not wallowing I mean, Yoda- in self-pity for years and, and, okay. and, and, yeah. and completely resistant to helping anyone, right? Yeah, they, they I, I immediately mean, step up and help people as soon as they're called I, upon. My, my only point—I don't want to argue the point because I don't think there's. I'm not saying that there wasn't an, an impossible alternative, yeah. but I'm just saying that the explanation that was given is actually a quite natural. It all—it it aligns with all the facts that were given and set up in The Force Awakens. That's all. Okay, well, that's fair. It's a very natural direction to go. I do feel like it was very convincing. Fact. What? I do feel like it was very convincing. Well, the only reason it's convincing is because it fits so well with the facts that are the predicates that that your that Ryan Johnson began with. That's what I'm saying. So, um, okay. So, um, let's let's talk about. I mean, so so obviously Luke's uh, state uh, is quite interesting. <laughs> you know how he, how you know how he en- ends up what ends up how it ends up being resolved. And there's all these little things that you see that you're primed to think something's going to happen one way. I mean, like the elevator ride up to Snoke's thing, the X-wing in the in the water. You know, all these little things that you think are going to happen one way or the other. But one of the things I thought was most effective about this film, and I, this is my next and probably final piece of praise before we get to some criticism <laughs> and then some speculation about Episode Nine, is that it it zagged so many times and went in so many different directions from what you expected that you actually were left. I I was felt very um, open 
it zagged so many times from where you thought it would go that by the middle of the film, um, I was legitimately uncertain what was going to happen next, specifically with Ray and Kylo. That is, um, although Ray's character was portrayed with such resolute earnestness, you always got the feel from her that she knew what the right thing to do was. But when Luke pointed out to her that she immediately went to the, for the dark, remember that she said you immediately went for the dark. Yeah. And um, and then when when in the final time she touched Kylo and she had a very clear picture of what was going to happen and he had a very clear picture of what was going to happen. They both had force. They both had uh, um, force visions. Force visions. I was going to say. Uh, yeah, they had forced visions of what was going to happen, and they were both ended up being right. By the way, both of their visions ended up being right. Yeah, that was transparently manipulative writing. Right, but but the <laughs> thing is, it was really, it really was unclear. Like I felt like it was really unclear whether Ray was going to join Kylo because her sense of belonging and need to belong might have overwhelmed her sense of like very strong sense of what was right or wrong. And similarly, it was really unclear what Kylo was going to do. Like, I honestly felt like it was unclear in these key moments how things were going to be resolved. I felt like, and, and, and because, because Ryan made so many, like I said, zags, it, it allowed me to genuinely question and have greater uncertainty than I ever would have had, um, had that not been the case. Hmm. Did you feel that way at all? I mean, obviously you've seen it five times, so it's hard to, <laughs> it's hard to put yourself in your original viewing. But. I, I was never of the opinion that Ray was ever at risk. What about Kylo at risk coming back? Yeah, obviously he is at risk. Yeah. His his motivation is the primary tension. Hers is I mean, they're trying to make it a tension, but it's unconvincing because all the signs are there that she's as you said completely resolute and also her experience at the cave. But, but that's not but that's not true. That was the point, right? Is that she f- went to the darkness. He said That's um he's, that's bad writing. <laughs> so i have strong opinions but that's about what luke said i know that's what luke said that's bad writing he said she went right to the dark yeah i have strong opinions about that particular interaction i don't want to go on a rant but okay. let, let me suffice it to say do you think ray knows anything about the dark side <laughs> i mean before her first lesson with it's luke hard. would you say she knows it's anything about to, it it's really hard to know what she knows about the force it's not it's hard to know because so- she tells you right before that scene at the beginning of that scene she says it's a power oh, that, the dark, right. that the jedi yeah. have to control people and lift rocks <laughs> She doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> she doesn't know anything. She's complete noob as it pertains well, to the force. At a conscious force. level, at a conscious level, but it's clear that she's quite powerful at an unconscious level. Okay, that she knows how to do things. She, okay, she doesn't know how she knows how to do things, right? Do you believe she has any control? No, not really. So no. she's completely ignorant about the way the force works. She doesn't know how to control her newfound powers. Luke gives her a, a ten-second lesson of reach out with your feelings on sitting on a rock, and she is. And she, and she she feels all the force on the island, right? Which is, yeah. okay, so fine. She falls all this stuff. The plants, the trees, the life, the death, the light, the dark. She says, hey, there's this dark place. Luke says, yeah, powerful light, powerful dark, right? He's speaking about the balance of the force, which is you know, structural to the film's message about the force, right? It's reinforced many, many times. He says, yeah, there's powerful light and there's powerful dark. Does anything in his tone tell you, now don't look at that ever again and back away slowly? No, she's just like, Huh, that's interesting. It's it's trying to say something to me. And then all of a sudden she can't hear him anymore. He's screaming in her face. She breaks out of it and she's like sopping wet and he says, "You went right to the dark." Yeah. 
this noob student that you just took at you know kindergarten level force training and they're attracted <laughs> to the most seductive part of the force and you didn't train her at all to not do that you didn't prepare her for the fact that the dark side of the force yoda even says you know it's quicker more seductive but you don't go down that path right yoda at least says that to luke in empire he gives her absolutely no preparation and then it's sitting there agape at the 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 you know the nerve this young idiot has to have been attracted to it it is the most uncompelling and stupid thing among many uncompelling and stupid things in that whole film is how aghast he is that she didn't that she didn't resist the dark side in her first ever lesson <laughs> now his well, comment about yeah. his comment about her power being similar to ben's right. is not so stupid that's like okay yeah no. she's she's inherently powerful for some reason um but the simple notion that it was her fault, some failing of hers, that she was attracted to the dark side is laughably idiotic at that moment in that narrative. That's fair. And, That's interesting. And also, also, I would point out I, that there was never there's a, there's never any point in that film where you feel she's at risk of turning to the dark side. Well, well, there's. It's not that I felt that she would turn to the dark side, but I did think there was a legitimate chance that she would join Ben. Okay, Kylo. Well, that's that's and, fair. And Those that, are two different the, things. Yeah. It, it, so here's I mean, she, the thing. Ostensibly, she did join Ben in a very yeah, I mean, real context. There was context. a whole battle where they were fighting together. Yeah, and, and many conversations before and some after. So it's obviously to a very large degree ambiguous what the Force is, how it works, what the dark side is, what the light side is, and you know we have a lot of different figures in the Star Wars films opining on this. And anytime there's ever tried to be an explanation, it's often come out looking quite dumb, like midi chlorians, right? Uh, well, so there are obviously there are obviously big ambiguities. I mean, what is actually meant by the balance? I actually and I don't want to don't agree. This similar to Yoda's quote unquote revelation of the Jedi's failures. I don't feel like the nature of the Force is any big mystery. The notion that the light side and the dark side are two sides of a coin and that well, they offer you different things has been established for decades. Well, and Luke's what, and Luke's <laughs> description of the Force to Ray is actually very simple and elegant. The meaning, you know, the practical well, applications me, of all of it is deep. Yeah. But the notion that the force is the you know what binds the universe together, light side, dark side, it's between everything. That's not hard to understand. Yeah, but, yeah, but well, okay. L- l- let me. L- so we know that the path of the dark side is anger, hatred, blah blah blah. These powerful negative emotions, right? Yeah. That consume you and give you very powerful dark side powers. Um. Well, that's and, okay. That's that. The, what you just said is problematic, but. <laughs> I mean, what well, you just the, said is the equivalent the, of Ray saying the Force is, a, you know, well, the, a, a power Darth that the Jedi have. Well, the Emperor, Emperor Palpatine told him to give in to your hatred. The, the hate is the path to the dark side. Yeah, but and your that's hate, not a commentary on Anakin, the Force. Your, he says your hate makes you powerful. Yeah. Your hatred makes you powerful, in, in specifically in, in the dark side. And so, so I, when, when Ray is doing this kind of vision quest thing, yeah. where she's like saying, like, power, like, I see birth and death and blah, blah, blah. There's this kind of overtone of meanings that, and you've seen it way more than I have, so, but there's this overtone of meanings that, like, darkness is embodied in, like, nat, there's, like, this natural things that happen that are dark side parts of the force. Sure. That's not what I have seen, that's not how the force has typically been implied or conveyed in the previous films. It's not been conveyed as, like, a, a part of nature, as natural, or the natural world. Well, Rather, it's been more tied towards, uh, human emotions. And, and 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 channeled through human emotions. That's been typically how we've understood what the dark side is: pain, suffering, hate. I don't anger. I don't see how you can escape that the force is a 
is part of the natural world given Yoda's original description of it? It it it's again, I think there's a subtle distinction here. Okay. We're talking about what the force is through how force users channel it. Yeah. The way that force users channel it is through certain kinds of feelings and emotions. Okay. The what it is is this natural thing. Okay. And what and, and there's a tension between like I think there's like a there's a there is a move a, there's kind of a disjuncture in how the force is portrayed and how it's described in this movie from the previous films. I think that's clear. Um, that is in the previous films, it's it's kind of viewed as like this, yes, a natural thing that is all around us. It surrounds us, binds us, you know, blah, 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 all living thing. But it's channeled by certain kinds of emotions and feelings. And the dark side of the force, which gives you certain powers, is channeled by negative feelings. And the light side is channeled by a desire to help, blah, blah, blah compassion, empathy. That's kind of the binary that's set up. Now, I realize there have been lots of people, like Palpatine says in episode three, he says, if you're going to be a wise leader, you must understand the the force and all the mystery in all of its aspects. Yeah. Right? He he's kind of has this like, but really he's trying to get Anakin to buy into the dark side, to become his pupil. Um, I, I just I just don't see what you're saying. I think that there are real big ambiguities in in what is meant by balance. Uh, is balance like a natural thing, or is it something that force users accomplish? Is it something that is? I, I just well, I think there's a much a lot more. There's a lot more Taoism in this film than I'd ever seen in previous films. Yeah, the this, the this word kind of, balance is is put into a Star Wars film when they want to make the plot interesting, but they haven't figured out a way to write it. So it's well, just it's well, just a mechanism the that they put in <laughs> to make you think the things you're saying right now. It's like, wow, what does that mean? Balance? It could mean anything. Well, it's not that. No, it's not that I'm saying that it's not that I'm like in wide-eyed wondering what this means. I'm simply saying that I think there is a different set of meanings that are being implied by this film. It's more Taoist. Taoist, powerful light, powerful dark. That there's there's both sides. There's a kind of you know and and yeah. and, and, and it's been clear in previous films that when people go to the dark, it's because their emotions are leading them there. And they're channeling the dark side of the force, which is in nature, part of the natural world. But there's but it's also been clear that like that that Although the force is a part of nature, I don't, I don't, we're getting way down this rabbit hole. Yeah. Uh, but all I'm saying is that it's been exceptionally clear that there that the human element, human emotion and 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 feelings are the ways in which the force is channeled, even though the force itself is part of the natural world. That well. the, the the way in which the force is used is not uh is not just like a natural an, an inherent byproduct of the natural world. It's 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 a something that's applied through through discipline, study, uh, you know, all that. Well, I didn't come away from the prior eight films with the kind of ambiguity about the force and its use that that I hear you describing. Um, I I found Luke's simple summation of the force to Ray at their first training session to be very elegant and also not very useful. I mean, it's it's like the Force one hundred and one. Okay, yes, it's yeah. between all things. You know, lesson two is how do I use it, which I think is part of what you're alluding to. And he, and so the the conflict that arises from that first lesson is a mishmash of all these concepts. Like he says, you went straight to the dark, which is an it, implication it, that it's yeah. Ray's fault. Yes, it's 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 that, and part of it was that her searching for her parents was such an overriding imperative for her. Yeah. That it blind he, the the implication was that it was such an overriding imperative that it would that it would um, subordinate her sense of right and wrong 
and acting in in alignment with the with the uh uh the light side of the force yeah that she would be tempted to the dark side and and tend towards dark side seduced into dark side because of her emotions that's what that that was what that was saying to me that was what the whole encounter in the cave was that she was drawn to that cave because yeah. by by extension her she, she did her her fear about her loss of her parents her desire for belonging yep her desire to find out who she was yep. uh, override her sense of right and wrong to some degree. Well, as, I, as I agree. It, that's what I thought. I agree that, that that's what the about. primary dark side tension is for her, her belonging and her finding her roots. And I also agree that that's the basic message of her time in the cave. But yeah. in the end, I did not find and, that it created any kind of tension for me. She was well, never. I think it did, especially when she found that when when the there was really that Rashomon moment, right, about what actually happened uh, between Kylo and and Luke. Yeah. Right. The, the, there was a really that was so fascinating. I mean, it, I mean, there was a moment where she felt like like Luke was in the wrong, and I love the moment where she said though she said no, Kylo betrayed you. You know, so there was a there was some tension there. I mean, you weren't you weren't bought, you didn't buy it. No, but it it was entirely um, it, within the the realm of possibility to imagine that there would be some new synthesis in which Kylo and 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 Ray would agree uneasily to work together with with both of them like you know partially off off of the their ends of the spectrum of the Force, right? Like Ray Ray partly not necessarily her going to the dark side, yep. but like. Not necessarily entirely as a Jedi in the light either. So I, I agree with that last part, and um, I guess it, it part of my summation of the whole thing is that it was pretty clear that Ray was conflicted and had yes. and had goals. Yes. But there's that, and then there's becoming a dark side force user. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, yeah, I sh- I should have been clear earlier. The tension in my mind was in the uncertainty was not whether she would become a a powerful dark side user. Yeah. But whether whether she would end up joining Kylo yeah. in in some sort of what he would believe is you know some like it's essentially like when when Vader asked Luke to join him right yeah. and then he said we can overthrow the Emperor and rule as his father and son but you can imagine obviously Kylo offered some iteration of that but you can imagine some different iteration of that right where it's like where it's like we're not going to rule the galaxy but we can we can fix things yeah right. Join me and we can fix things. Yep. Right? Where she has kind of one set of understandings with some dark side tendencies, and he has a different set of understandings with some light side tendency. Well, right? I mean, I, I believe that that was the kind of tension that they were trying to, to um, create. The kind of emotions that you have come to accept as leading to the dark side, right? Like yeah. fear. Fear, suffering, anger, fear, hatred. suffering. Yeah. Yep. They're all set out. <laughs> so. Any fear that Ray might have had is completely undermined. I mean, it's it's basically not there. She when she's at the cave, um, you know, in the standing yeah, in the line, she said she didn't fear. Right. Yeah, she specifically she said. says she wasn't afraid, so the fear is not there. Yeah, she overcome it. Yeah, overcame it. Yep. That's huge, in my opinion. Her it is. her statement it is right huge. there is enormous. Um, anger. You know, she briefly displays anger against Luke. When she believes that he, yes, she does. She briefly displays anger against Ben, but that all softens immediately. I mean, within moments, it's softened. Um, hatred? No, she doesn't particularly hate anybody. Suffering? But, I mean, but all her suffering said, is in the past, basically. 
But she also says, but look, these four emotions or feelings that we've described in the, does not necessarily exhaust the past. <laughs> I know, the dark but side. I'm, I'm making a point. And, I'm making a point yeah. that she briefly demonstrates some of these things. And in every case, every one of them, moves away. it's immediately softened. And she, she, her resolution, her strength just immediately pushes it to the side. I agree. That's why I, I say I was never compelled to believe that there was any risk of her turning, so to speak. But but I did think there was a really good chance that she would join Kylo and that the movie would end with them in some sort of easy alliance. Okay, that's fair. That, that would, I mean, that, that's, she, that's what I meant. That's what okay. I thought might happen. I see what you mean. But this, yeah. this speaks to one of the problems I have with the film that I already referenced, and that is the characters in the film, specifically Ray and, and Ben, seem to still be laboring under oversimple understandings of the force they both oh god let's both, not talk let's not get on that i know again. but <laughs> but it's it's we don't have to rehash all that the point is they both say to themselves you're the other one i mean they say you're gonna turn i saw your future and you're gonna turn no you're gonna turn yeah. right as though light and dark is just a light switch like you're this or you're that and that's what i'm alluding to when i say i don't understand if that's bad writing or if it's good writing displaying their joint naivete, both of them don't yeah. understand the Force well enough, well, which doesn't make it, sense it, given it, that Ben like has I, been trained for years well, by Luke goes, and Snoke. Well, this goes back to what I said earlier. My opinion is that this is an inherently ambiguous concept, and the more you try and define it, the, the more absurd it becomes, like midichlorians. <laughs> and I just I just think that you, you are probably, you think, well, I just think that, it, yeah, I just think it's far more ambiguous than, than I think you're willing to admit. And I think that like th- these these nuances about like to what extent is a Jedi allowed to entertain feelings that that might have dark aspects? You know, I mean, think about Luke, right? Yep. Luke in Return of the Jedi, like the Emperor even says, your hate has made you powerful, and it was his anger that allowed him. I mean, remember what triggered him was when Vader says to him, uh, Luke had actually said, "I will not fight you, Father." Yeah, I will, and he and he, and he dearms himself, yep. and then Vader says, "Sister." You've aban- now you betrayed, you know, now she, if you won't turn, then she will. Yeah. And then Luke becomes like full on power and just like annihilates Vader. Yep. And then when he sees what he's done, he pulls himself back from the brink, back from the dark side. Yep. So you could say one reading of that situation is that Luke was using the dark side of the force to defeat his father. But then mm-hmm. what? He pulled himself back. And then, you know, it's even possible, I mean, it's even hard to say, what, did Vader really come back to the light? I mean, or did he just have so much empathy for his son that he didn't want the Emperor to kill him? But then Vader answers that question, right? He says, tell your sister you were right. Yeah. But it's just, it's ambiguous. It's hard to know, like, what's actually happening internally with these characters. We don't know. We don't know what they're feeling or experiencing. We see what they say. <laughs> And we see their actions and behavior. Yeah. But we don't actually know. It's not really clear. <laughs> well, and I just think, I just think that you, you're, you're, you have a, a kind of overly, and you're happy with this overly simplistic understanding of the force and light and dark. And I don't think the problem is with the writing in this film. I think it's just inherent in the nature of how the force has been presented and the duality of the light and the dark and the Sith and the Jedi. I just don't think it's really, it's ever been fully explicated. And I don't really want it to be fully explicated <laughs> because it will just be absurd. Well, it will it will become it will raise any attempt to explain it will raise more problematic questions than it can possibly resolve. I'm serious. You and I are not going to agree on this, so let's move on. Okay. One of the things that um, I think (laughs) one of the things that that uh, one of my biggest criticisms of the film, you know, after seeing it the first time, as I said, I thought it didn't hang together very well, and seeing it the second time, it felt far more cohesive. But one of the things that became more sharply in focus is that the 
in the original trilogy and in the in the prequel trilogy, you have a real sense of the stakes, the stakes for the galaxy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That like in the in in the in the in the first trilogy, the original trilogy, the oppression of the empire and the like they obviously tried to evoke both the music and the style Nazi Germany, right? That we're trying to kill these space Nazis who have brought the the galaxy into the under their oppression, right? Yep. And 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 there's a real sense that that every rebel victory is an attempt to bring freedom to the galaxy and restore the republic, right? Which is democracy. Yep. And and there's a real sense of of that. The stakes of that are incredibly clear, even clearer perhaps in the prequel trilogy, which has all these quotes about this is how democracy dies. You're either for us or against us, which was a direct allusion to George W. Bush and the wars in Iraq and the Middle East. And and there's a real sense of what the stakes for freedom and ordinary people are. But there's a kind of sense in there's a my one of my criticisms of this film and the previous film is that that's been lost. That's just totally lost. Yes, we see like these little vignettes of like children, but my but but the setup for this film is that the resistance is like this rogue radical element in the new republic, right? And so the, it's just impossible to know what ordinary people in the galaxy are thinking. It's <laughs> one reading is that like that really that ordinary people couldn't give a, a crap about what's happening, and that's basically two radical organizations, just like basically terrorist organizations, going at it against each other. You know? Yeah. It's just really not clear. I feel like there's no s- galactic stakes anymore, and the whole the whole um, arc of the original six films, which is really about the rise and fall of democracy and liberty and freedom. That's been entirely lost or largely lost, not entirely. Lost. And the way in which these like the larger st- the stakes are displayed are really not, not clear. And I think it's partly the fault of The Force Awakens. But I think that the I think that the filmmakers could have done a much much better job. In fact, they kind of reinforced this like apathetic reading, right? When they say like we we put out the call and no one's responding, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's that's really bad. I mean, that's kind of like sad, right? Well, I think it was, it could have been addressed with just a couple of lines of dialogue, of course. So there's that. But also, that's one of the many sub themes of this film is, again, I think it falls under the heading of subverting expectations to a degree, but also refocusing the scope of the conflict. The, yeah. It's, it's not about galactic government at this stage, it's about the resistance I mean, is down to 40 people. Yeah. And it's about hope and those kind of things. And also, we don't <laughs> one of the things that the the Force Awakens just elides is is what the First Order even is, how big it or is. Or what the resistance is and that what the resistance relationship with the New Republic was. Right. I mean, it was briefly touched on and almost elided entirely. Yeah. It was super unclear, right? It's, yeah, it's funny going back to the conversation you and I had before our first viewings again I hadn't seen a trailer at all and one of the things you asked me is what did I expect and I said I'm real interested to see if the first order is still around because yeah. because yeah. to your point here th- there is no measurement of scale for the first order or the resistance in the force awakens right. or the republic for that matter you don't know yeah. is the first order entirely on star killer base you know did we get right. them all was it destroyed <laughs> when that base blew yeah. up how big are they a thousand people uh, then this movie starts, it's plainly obvious, because the first lines are, the First Order reigns. But now we have this perspective of, oh, they also have this giant naval fleet <laughs> right. that was just right. not present in TFA. At the Starkiller base, yeah. yeah. 
And so apparently they're a much bigger organization. That's neat. But I mean, that would have been nice to have been have had that explained. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, that, I mean, that kind of thing bothers of me saying. a little bit. But ultimately, is that what this story is about? No, it's not. This no, is not about no. the galactic stakes anymore. But, so your observation but, is correct, but ultimately irrelevant to the telling but, of this particular the, story. That's the problem. Is Star Wars thematically, has, as I said already, is about the rise and fall of democracy and the rebirth, hopefully, of democracy. And and to the extent that this trilogy is leaving that behind, it is kind of a thematic. Uh, it's it's a walking walking back one of the most important themes in my opinion of the Star Wars series. Well, they could dive back in yeah. in Episode Nine. We don't know. Yeah, Episode Nine could have a whole of, bunch of Senate elections. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was one of my yeah right. That was that was one of my criticisms of, of the film. I also I, I also actually you know when I first saw it I didn't think the humor was very compelling, but the more I watched it I enjoyed the humor a lot more. Yeah, there's some hits um, and some misses. Including the uh, the reference to uh, was it called uh, Hard Wars? Yeah, Hardware Hardware Wars. Wars. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I did want to mention one other thing. If there's anything else that we need to touch on, but Brian DeMars. So, so we talked about the problem of Snoke, right? And Snoke has a very important function in the new trilogy. His function is to explain how the dark side gets rebooted, right? (laughs) I mean, he's the one who turns Kylo to the dark side. You could have done it by having, you know, one of Luke's students naturally like rediscover the dark side, but but you, but to really get things moving, you need an external force, and that's the function of S- Snoke. So I I was actually not entirely displeased by the way in which the filmmakers here decided we're just going to like quickly dispose of Snoke. I mean, Ryan Johnson is on is on um, record saying like, what if we had you know explained like who Darth Sidious, you know, like wh- like. Wh- what if Snoke had said, I'm Darth Plagueis, yep. and Darth Sidious was my, you know, Ray would have blinked for a moment and then said, okay, and they would have moved on, yeah. right? It really doesn't make any difference at the end of the day, um, to, on some level, who Snoke is. But I do think there is the problem that, as I said before, Sidious would never have allowed Snoke to exist in his galaxy. So Snoke either has to come from outside of the galaxy, or, which I originally theorized after watching The Force Awakens, that he is Plagueis. That is that he that he dies. The whole point of Darth Plagueis is that he knows how to defeat death. And I had abandoned that theory, but Brian DeMars reopened it. And what I thought was interesting about it is that it solves almost every problem of Snoke. And uh, I wondered what you think of the theory. But it solves the problem number one of where Snoke came from, right? Yep. Number two, it means that Snoke is not actually dead. Yep. But that he wanted Kylo to kill him. To strengthen himself in the dark side, because it's clear that that Kylo's wavering, right? He even said it split you to the bone yep. to kill your father, yep. and that you're weak, yep. and uh, blah blah blah. Um, number so so it, it's a it's a Snoke allowing Kylo to kill him uh, is a way of of strengthening Kylo's character, which it immeasur- immeasurably and unquestionably has, right? Right. Um, it also means that that Snoke is not dead, and so. It also allows explains why he reemerged, right? Because with Sidious dead, now he can come come out of the pub into public, yeah. right? With Sidious alive, he's there's no reason for him to interfere. Um, it also explains why he would be around when uh, we've had for so many years the rule of two, yep. right? Because because Snoke has superseded the rule of two by by being able to cheat death and live forever. Um, so there's there's a theory which I would love to see happen. Which is where Snoke is back in Episode Nine, and he finally reveals himself. He doesn't have to reveal himself as Plagueis, but he reveals himself as someone who's found ways to cheat death. 
So I wonder if you have any thoughts on that theory. Well, and then we can begin wrapping up. I over the course of of eight slash nine movies now, I find the the machinations of the dark side uh, practitioners to be far more interesting than the light side. Uh, so the notion, I mean, it's it's almost as though if this were true, and I said this to you offline, that the entire nonagy of Star Wars is the story of Darth Plagueis, which I find. So, somewhat satisfying and pretty pretty deeply uh, interesting. At the same time, um, it seems a little bit wishful thinking. Like <laughs> I really doubt that this is the case. Um, right. But but I don't know. I mean it. I mean it, it is strongly the, implied in Episode Three that Plagueis created Anakin Skywalker. I mean he he specifically says in that scene he says that Plagueis found a way not only to cheat le- cheat death but to create life. Well, I mean it's Im- so, it's implied that Sidious did it. Because one of them, Plagueis or Sidious, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, anyway, um, yeah, absolutely, it is. And there are certain indicators that that point to this theory having certain merit. For example, part of Snoke's dialogue in Eight is, "I can't be de- betrayed, I can't be defeated, or I can't be beaten," is what he says, which is a yes. very Plagueis concept. Uh, if he has yeah. truly done this, and it's also very interesting in the sense that what you what you said about transcending the rule of two, the rule of two is kind of a <laughs> it's an interesting plot device and it, yes it makes for some interesting old republic talk but it's not very good for the franchise because it it hems in the options and the motivations for all of the evil for all the villains basically well so far so far as i can uh, uh tell city has followed the rule of two pretty religiously I mean, when Maul was killed, he he brought he he converted Dooku to the dark side. It's really unclear how Dooku was converted. Well, I mean, Dooku in, in in Attack of the Clones, Dooku says that he was disillusioned and he was one of the lost Jedi who who you know left the order. But it's not clear. Yeah. And, and then he tells Obi Wan. Remember, he says to Obi Wan uh, that that um, he learned the truth. If he had known the truth as I have, he would have joined me. Yeah, that if Qui Gon had learned the truth as I had, and then and then he b- before he took Anakin as his apprentice, uh, Dooku was killed. So so far as I know, Sidious actually followed the rule of two pretty well. Yeah, it's a little unclear about his uh, understanding or his opinion of Asajj Ventress in the Clone Wars. But to your I point, I don't consider that canon. Well, but yes, it, yeah, I mean, understood, but still. Anyway, th- that's. I still think that once you've once you've got a, a sequence of villains operating under the rule of two, either they have to live a long, really long time, or you have to knock a whole bunch of the apprentices off, which is what happened in the prequel trilogy, or you end up with this whole tension of is the apprentice going to betray their master, which now we've had, had happen twice. It's just the possible outcomes are very few, and we've already exhausted a bunch of them, in my opinion. Well, yeah, but but the whole point of the rule of two is is I mean the the whole point that that Snoke as Plagueis solves this problem is oh, because y- yeah so that's he that's why he doesn't need the rule of two anymore because he lives forever. There's no need for <laughs> that's why I yeah, mentioned that, it is that it it helps them get out of a writing problem for the franchise yeah. if they get rid of the rule of two, so to speak. So I think that's a, a mark in its favor. Um, I don't know what to make of it. I, I'm I'm wary of of succumbing to too many fan theories about various things it, as well as it, it does. And by fit. the way. <laughs> Yeah, and by the way, how did Luke learn Darth Sidious's name? <laughs> I love the fact that he mentioned Darth Sidious, but you know, yeah, 
I, um, he has been studying at the Jedi Library for a couple of years. So. Yeah, well, I don't know if you noticed this, but it was really subtle. But Yoda says, "Oh, read them, have you?" And Luke is kind of, and Luke, Luke is yeah. kind of like he says, uh, "Well, yeah, exactly." <laughs> yeah, I actually thought that was a pretty good joke. Like, I mean, yeah, I highly stir them. So, so I, I think I really hope that this this theory that the Snoke's plague is actually turns out to be the case. I, I want to make one other observation, and then we can we can close here. I, I want to say that I think that people's full appreciate. I think there's a correlation between appreciating and enjoying the Last Jedi, and really enjoying the ballet scene in the 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 opera, uh, the, the opera slash ballet opera box seat scene where Palpatine tells the story, the tragedy of Darth Plagueis the Wise to to Anakin, because that. If you, if you really like that scene, and you it means that you care about the rise of of Darth Sidious and the seduction of Anakin, and it also means that you care about this this plot about Sidious and the hubris of the Jedi Order and the way in which that was resolved cathartically by this movie, because this movie was the cathartic resolution of that problem. Yeah, and and uh, by the way, I also have I told this to Brian, but I actually think it makes the case for watching the movies in their release order. <laughs> because you want to encounter Yoda as his playful, you know, warm self in Empire and Return of the Jedi, and then see him as his more rigid self in the prequels, and then see him return to that and how it's resolved in this in this trilogy. So I think from an emotional perspective, it really makes the case for the release order viewing. I think there's something to be said for that. I think the 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 Vader reveal in Empire is just too good to ignore. Yeah. And it, so it has to be maintained. You're familiar with the Machete Order? Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I do think that the Machete Order has some value too. I'm not as down on episode one as apparently 98% of the rest of the internet. But um, so I, I mean, I, I would, I don't pro- profess to believe that episode one should just be removed from canon like so many other right. people appear to. Right. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I mean, there, there are certainly things that I liked about both episode one and two, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think Liam Neeson's performance is really, really amazing in episode one, <laughs> frankly. Yeah. I think looking back on The Last Jedi, picturing how I'm going to feel about it in the in the distant future, I think there are just many incredible moments that will make for the ritual theater being very good. The I have found that the moment when when um sorry i'm trying to think the moment when ben pulls the lightsaber out of of snoke and it flies at the camera <laughs> and then ray's hand reaches up and grabs it yeah it's just incredibly <laughs> thrilling to me i don't know what it is and and then the slow motion beginning she stands up and they share a look and and he ignites his lightsaber and yeah. the slow motion turn of her away from him toward the guards is just yes. I love that moment. It's it is it, thrilling. It gets better it's every so time exciting. I see it. It's um, it's 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 emotionally tense, but also like really again, kind of cathartic. It's like they're finally working yeah, together absolutely. or something. It's fantastic. I I am um, there's also a ahead. number of other moments. Obviously there are many tender moments involving Luke and Leia. Um, yeah. which I just enjoyed one every moments, one of those. One of the moments that I point out to you that you, you really enjoyed ever since we talked about yeah. it was when Luke winks at 3PO. Oh, it's, I love that moment. It's, yeah, the wink, it, it's not just that, though. It's the completely reverent way 
the hushed tones that 3PO says Master Skywalker or Master Luke. He says Master yes. Luke, yeah. It's just like, and what does it's Luke like say? Almost, Luke says, I'm sorry? What does Luke say in response? Oh, nothing. He just winks at him. Yeah, he just it, winks. But it's, that's going to be a great, that's yeah, a great internet meme. It is. But I want just, that GIF. <laughs> just the, compl- the, the almost the almost reverent way that C-3PO says Master Luke in that moment perfect. is awesome. But also when Luke uh, meets R2 again, I, that that is an that's an absolutely beautiful yeah. moment. Well, that whole I, scene I loved, though, like the whole scene is beautiful. Him, that was a dirty trick, yeah. and then he he plays in full yeah. the original message to Obi Wan. That was just awesome, and that was awesome. There's also one of the greatest comedy moments in there too, which is when Luke says, "Hey, Sacred Island, watch the language." <laughs> <laughs> because, <Yeah. laughs> because the subtle sub theme of R two just having a foul mouth goes all the right. way back to Episode four. Right, right. The original movie. Yes, multiple times C-3PO objects to the things that R2 has just called him. Right. Like, Don't call me a mindless what? philosopher, you overweight... Uh, what does he say? What? Overweight yeah. something something. I forget what it is. One of the um, jokes that I didn't see appreciate or, or, or process the first time I saw it, but I thought was hilarious yeah. on the second viewing, um, was when um, Ray is talking to Chewbacca, and she's saying... <laughs> yeah. um, Finn's awake. What am I going to say to him? Yeah. And then Chewie growls a couple of times, and then she's like, "Yes, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah, it's perfect. Say that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was good. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, there's a long tradition of of Star Wars humor involving things that you that are not in English and are not ever translated. Right. So right. I, I like that tradition. Yeah, there's, there's several oh. examples of that because at the the very beginning of the film, in fact, the, the one of the first lines of the film is BB-8 and. And that's where, where yeah. Poe says happy beeps, buddy. You know, I want to hear happy beeps. Well, so, it's been it's been widely accepted at this point that BB-8 sit there says the first line of the film is I have a bad feeling about this. Right. But it's never stated. Yeah, it's no, never stated it, in English. It, right. It's ex- but it's understood. Yeah. yeah. We, we, we there's so much more that we could say, but we have to wrap up. Yeah. I I want I want to do key takeaways though. I, I think from my perspective, because of what I love about Star Wars is partly about Star Wars is. You know, um, certainly what I love about it is the story of, of freedom and, and, and democracy and the rise and fall of empires and republics. But, but one of the things I really, really enjoy about Star Wars is the, is the battle between the Sith and the Jedi. And in particularly, I'm fascinated by the rise of Darth Sidious um, and uh, the machinations that he, he engineered and then his fall. And, and the parallelism between Return of the Jedi and Episode Three, I just absolutely love. Right. And, you know, the way in which he both turned Anakin, the, the way in which he turned Anakin, you know, like feigning weakness yep. and the way in which he ultimately was overthrown by the same way. And and um, and I think this film, The Last Jedi, is is the resolution of that tension and arc in a very powerful and potent emotional way with some additional lessons embedded in it. Right. Like I love the line. The fate of all masters is to be surpassed. Surpassed, right? Yeah. That's the fate. That's that. I mean, that's applicable in the magic and everything else, right? It's, <laughs> it's just, it's it's brilliant. It's so brilliant. And it's so perfect. Um, and and I feel like the, it resolved in a brilliant way, so deftly, the dialectic of light and dark for the Jedi going forward, and it resolved the cathartic tension of Yoda and the Jedi Order's responsibility for the rise of the of 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 Darth Sidious. By explicitly acknowledging it, and so I think I think for me the takeaway is if you love that scene in Episode Three, if you appreciated the 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 performance, and you cared about the rise of Darth Sidious, this movie is a very very satisfying resolution, 
And I think it's a little bit like a Rorschach blot. It, it reveals what you like about Star Wars yeah. or don't, right? Sure. And for me, I really, really care about that through the original six film. And that means this film is just awesome to me. And I mean, I was, I was heard Chris Pakula say like he absolutely hated this film and, but he hadn't seen episode three. And so it led me to wonder like, if you really don't care about what episode three, then I think there's a correlation between people who like things about episode three and people who like this. Would you agree with that? I think so. You made an observation after we saw the force awakens that as a film, it basically ignored the prequels. Yes, it did. And this there was film, almost no element. Yeah, yeah. And this film doesn't. And I believe, that, as I've alluded to a few times, it's pretty popular online to just hate on the prequels. The other terrible yeah. films, Machete Order doesn't even want episode one, blah, blah, blah. The prequels have a lot of flaws, but from a narrative standpoint, narrative. they yes. give you a ton more history Meaning, and lore yeah. into the larger picture than does the whole original trilogy. In fact, the original trilogy has almost no lore, uh, almost no explanation beyond what it is to be a Skywalker, kind of. <laughs> and they don't yeah. even tell that whole story. So if you're the sort of people like you and I are who really enjoy the motivations of people, the longer arcs, the the lore, the prequel trilogies are where you get all of that. And so you to know, say I, that this film wraps yeah. up things that are the seeds that are made there, it's kind of no surprise that a whole bunch of people who hate the prequel trilogies aren't getting the satisfaction of so much resolution here that is I, I that think, started there. I think you make a really good point. And, 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 and it sounds a little bit like a defense of the prequels, which it might be. I mean, but to I an think, aspect I think, of them. Yeah. I, I, when, when episode three came out, you and I were both of the opinion, this is a remarkable film. Yeah. And, and I actually hold episode three in a very high regard. Yeah. Because, because I, in particular, again, the the scene the, the ballet and I think it is it's actually a ballet box seat not opera but that scene might be one of the greatest scenes in in the entire star it might be the greatest best performance in the entire Star Wars film <laughs> like Nanaji it just might be the best yeah right the single best scene in terms of performance depth of meaning layered meanings yeah uh you know Ian significance <laughs> Ian McDiarmid's brilliant performance. Uh, it, you know, part the, the prequels suffered by the expectations of the original trilogy, and 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 there were many flaws, right? Like yeah. the overboard on technology, computer animation, CGI, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But I've always held or maintained that, like a hundred years from now, when people watch these movies, Episode Three is going to be much more highly regarded than it is right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because people watching it fresh eyes outside of the context of our current culture and society will be more focused on not what does Star Wars mean culturally as a cultural touchstone. Yeah. And like from a point of view of nostalgia, but just from a it'll be much more purely narrative and and like, you know, what does the narrative mean, right? Yeah. And so people won't have an appreciation of growing up with Star Wars a hundred years from now or like what did Star Wars mean is is inaugurating along with Jaws the the Hollywood blockbuster. You know, all these things will be lost. Not lost, but it'll be academic. Right, it won't be, and, and I really believe that Return Revenge of the Sith will be much, much more highly regarded fifty to hundred years from now, and and I think, yeah, that's all. There are two primary um, character dyads across the Nanaji. I'm sorry, there are three primary character dyads across the character Nanaji at this point. There's Anakin and Obi Wan begins as as friendship and youth, and you know, master Padawan relationship which then falls apart and they become 
bitter enemies. Yep. Then there's Luke and Vader, who begin as enemies, unknown, and then learn about their connection, which makes their you know their conflict even more meaningful. And they the resolution is that they you know they join forces. And now there's Kylo Ren and Rey. Yeah. It's going to be very difficult for the two of them to have as meaningful and satisfying a conclusion, you know, culmination, I guess is a better word, yeah. of their relationship well, in the next film. They just don't they just don't have enough runway, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, this film I laid a lot of runway. It it did. It did, but it, you know, <laughs> I mean, the whole arc of Yoda, he's been in what? He's been in almost all the films now, yeah. right? I mean, he's been all but two of the films. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we were, we had an inter- intriguing question that we oh. were debating yeah, I love recently, this. which is who is the main character in Star Wars? <laughs> you, you, you know, it's like in one way of answering that question is who is in the most number of films, right? Obviously, Anakin Skywalker is not at all in uh, the last trilogy. Yep. Whereas Yoda is in all of the trilogies, but not in every film. Yep. So it's in, and uh, anyway, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, and there are different answers. I, I think um, going back to our prior observations, for people who, for, the people for which the answer to that question is Luke Skywalker are possibly the you know the large overlap with people who don't like the Last Jedi. Yeah, that's possibly. And true. I think for people whose answers it might be Yoda or Darth Sidious or Anakin Skywalker, I think they're more inclined to like this film. Right. I I really did like. I I think Ray and and Kylo were 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 great. And someone made a really interesting point. They said, imagine if someone like um I can't remember the actor's name who plays Kylo Ren. Uh, Adam uh, Driver. Yeah, but imagine if Adam Driver or someone like him had been cast as Anakin Skywalker. Oh, jeez. I mean, yeah, I know he would have been just, a great Anakin. My word. Great, <laughs> great. Uh, but anyway, um, I, I, I I love the film. It certainly had its flaws. There were some plot holes. We didn't even get into some of the other problems. But yeah. uh, overall, I really loved it. And it's hard to rank it along with the other films because it really, like, the ranking really depends on the criteria. Yeah. Like, if you were to ask me, like, a non-Star Wars fan, rank the films just in terms of, like, how would the American, you know, the the uh, American Film Institute rank these films? Like, for a generic audience, I would give you a very different ranking <sighs> sure. than if you were to ask me, like, what's your favorite of the Star Wars films? Sure. Like, if you were to ask, like, in terms of, like, great filmmaking... I would probably begin with the first two films, you know, episode four and episode five, in probably reverse order. <laughs> but if you were to ask me, like, what films are the most compelling to me, I would have to say, you know, like like this movie, Revenge of the Sith, Return of the Jedi, yeah. and Empire yeah. are my top four. Yeah. So Yeah, I think that's totally reasonable. I'm not big into ranking the films either, but your assessment yeah. is pretty similar to mine. I uh I I really liked the the new character Rose. I thought she was fantastic. Um, she was pretty cool. Um yeah, I thought that her quote-unquote love for Finn was a little bit surprising at the end. <laughs> I didn't I didn't yeah. expect that kind of affection, but we'll see how that that pans out. Well, I look forward to seeing this movie as many times as you have. <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever catch up because you'll probably be ahead of me, but I'll uh, yeah. look forward I, to it. I don't it. know how many more times I'll see it in the theater. Maybe maybe once. I don't know. We'll see. But I, uh, I'm looking forward to owning it on disc at home and watching it more here. Cool. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Yeah. And thank you, Steve, for this idea for us to talk about this. I mean, that's just never going to pass up an opportunity to talk Star Wars with you for an hour or three. <laughs> <laughs> Same. <laughs> well, thanks, everyone, for listening to this additional content episode 74. And uh, 
yeah, so many insane plays and stuff. Vintage is not safe protective game. <laughs> <laughs>